Chapter 7 On Free Immigration and Forced Integration 1. The classical argument in favour of free immigration runs as follows. Other things being equal, businesses go to low-wage areas and labour moves to high-wage areas, thus affecting a tendency toward the equalisation of wage rate for the same kind of labour as well as the optimal localisation of capital. An influx of migrants into a given-sized high-wage area will lower nominal wage rates. However, it will not lower real wage rates if the population is below its optimum size. To the contrary, if this is the case, the produced output will increase over-proportionally and real incomes will actually rise. Thus, restrictions on immigration will harm the protected domestic workers qua consumers more than they gain qua producers. Moreover, immigration restrictions will increase the flight of capital abroad, the export of capital which otherwise might have stayed, still causing an equalization of wage rates, although somewhat more slowly, but leading to less than optimal allocation of capital, thereby harming world living standards all around. The law of migration and location, explains Ludwig von Mises, makes it possible for us to form an exact concept of relative overpopulation. The world, or an isolated country from which emigration is impossible, is to be regarded as overpopulated in the absolute sense when the optimum of population, that point beyond which an increase in the number of people would mean not an increase but a decrease in welfare, is exceeded. A country is relatively overpopulated where, because of the large size of the population, work must go on under less favourable conditions of production than in other countries, so that, Ceteris Paribus, the same application of capital and labour yields a smaller output there. With complete mobility of persons and goods, relatively overpopulated territories would give up their population surplus to other territories until this disproportion had disappeared. End quote. In addition, traditionally, labour unions and nowadays environmentalists are opposed to free emigration, and this should, prima facie, count as another argument in favour of a policy of free immigration. 2. As it is stated, the above argument in favour of free immigration is irrefutable. It would be foolish to attack it, just as it would be foolish to deny that free trade leads to higher living standards than does protectionism. It would also be wrong to attack the above case for free immigration by pointing out that because of the existence of a welfare state, immigration has become, to a significant extent, the immigration of welfare bums who do not increase but rather decrease average living standards even if the United States, for instance, is below her optimal population point. For this is not an argument against immigration but against the welfare state. To be sure, the welfare state should be destroyed in its entirety. However, the problems of immigration and welfare are analytically distinct problems and must be treated accordingly. The problem with the above argument is that it suffers from two interrelated shortcomings which invalidate its unconditional pro-immigration conclusion and or which render the argument applicable only to a highly unrealistic, long-bygone situation in human history. The first shortcoming will only be touched upon. To libertarians of the Austrian school, it should be clear that what constitutes wealth and well-being is subjective. Material wealth is not the only thing that has value. Thus, even if real incomes rise due to immigration, it does not follow that immigration must be considered good, for one might prefer lower living standards and a greater distance to other people over higher living standards and a smaller distance to others. Instead, a second, related shortcoming will be the focus here. With regard to a given territory into which people immigrate, it is left unanalyzed who, if anyone owns, controls this territory. In fact, in order to render the above argument applicable, it is implicitly assumed that the territory in question is unowned 
and that the immigrants enter virgin territory, open frontier. Obviously, today this can no longer be assumed. If this assumption is dropped, however, the problem of immigration takes on an entirely new meaning and requires fundamental rethinking. 3. For the purpose of illustration, let us first assume an anarcho-capitalist society. Though convinced that such a society is the only social order that can be defended as just, I do not want to explain here why this is the case. Instead, I will employ it as a conceptual benchmark, because this will help explain the fundamental misconception of most contemporary free immigration advocates. All land is privately owned, including all streets, rivers, airports, harbors, and so on. With respect to some pieces of land, the property title may be unrestricted, that is, the owner is permitted to do with his property whatever he pleases, as long as he does not physically damage the property owned by others. With respect to other territories, the property title may be more or less severely restricted. As is currently the case in some housing developments, the owner may be bound by contractual limitations on what he can do with his property, voluntary zoning, which might include residential versus commercial use, no buildings more than four stories high, no sale or rent to Jews, Germans, Catholics, homosexuals, Haitians, families with or without children or smokers, for example. Clearly, under this scenario, no such thing as freedom of immigration exists. Rather, many independent private property owners have the freedom to admit or exclude others from their own property in accordance with their own unrestricted or restricted property titles. Admission to some territories might be easy, but it might be nearly impossible to others. In any case, however, admission to the property of the admitting person does not imply a freedom to move around unless other property owners consent to such movement. There will be as much immigration or non-immigration, inclusivity or exclusivity, desegregation or segregation, non-discrimination or discrimination based on racial, ethnic, linguistic, religious, cultural, or whatever other grounds as individual owners or associations of individual owners allow. Note that none of this, not even the most exclusive form of segregationism, has anything to do with the rejection of free trade and the adoption of protectionism. From the fact that one does not want to associate with or live in the neighborhood of blacks, Turks, Catholics or Hindus, etc., it does not follow that one does not want to trade with them from a distance. As Ludwig von Mises reminds us, quote, even if such a thing as a natural and inborn hatred between various races existed, it would not render social cooperation futile. Social cooperation has nothing to do with personal love or with the general commandment to love one another. People do not cooperate under the division of labor because they love or should love one another. They cooperate because this best serves their own interests. Neither love nor charity nor any other sympathetic sentiments but rightly understood selfishness is what originally impelled man to adjust himself to the requirements of society, to respect the right and freedoms of his fellow men, and to substitute peaceful collaboration for enmity and conflict. End quote. To the contrary, it is precisely the absolute voluntariness of human association and separation, the absence of any form of forced integration that makes peaceful relationships, free trade between culturally, racially, ethnically, or religiously distinct people possible. Contrary to the currently fashionable multiculturalism, it might be pointed out that no multicultural society, and especially no democratic one, has ever worked peacefully for very long. Peter Brimelow, in Alien Nation, Common Sense About America's Immigration Disaster, has provided some recent evidence to this effect. Looking back from the present, look at the record, Eritrea, ruled by Ethiopia since 1952, splits off in 1993. Czechoslovakia, founded in 1918, 
splits into Czech and Slovak ethnic components in 1993. Soviet Union splits into multiple ethnic components in 1991, and many of these components are threatened with further ethnic fragmentation. Yugoslavia, founded in 1918, splits into several ethnic components in 1991, and further breakup is still underway. Lebanon, founded 1920, effective partition of Christians and Muslims under Syrian domination since 1975. Cyprus, independent since 1960, effective partition of Greek and Turkish territories in 1974. Pakistan, independent since 1947, ethnically distinct Bangladesh splits off in 1971. Malaysia, independent since 1963, Chinese-dominated Singapore is expelled in 1965. The list goes on with cases which have not yet been resolved. India and the Sikhs and Kashmiris, Sri Lanka and the Tamils, Turkey, Iraq, Iran and the Kurds, Sudan, Chad and the Arabs versus Blacks, Nigeria and the Ibos, Ulster and the Catholics versus the Protestants, Belgium and the Flemish versus the Walloons, Italy and the German-speaking South Tyrolians, Canada and the French versus the English. But is not Switzerland, with an assembly of Germans, French, Italians and Romans, an exception? Put briefly, the answer is no. All essential powers in Switzerland, in particular that of determining cultural and educational matters, schools, are concentrated in the hands of the cantons rather than those of the central government, and almost all of the 26 cantons and half-cantons are ethnically homogeneous. 17 cantons are almost exclusively German, 4 cantons are almost exclusively French, and one canton is predominantly Italian. Only three cantons are bilingual, the Swiss ethnic balance has been essentially stable, and there is only a limited amount of intercantonal migration. Even given these favourable circumstances, Switzerland did experience an unsuccessful, violently suppressed war of secession, the Sonderbundskrieg of 1847. Furthermore, the creation of the new, breakaway French-speaking canton of Jura from the predominantly German canton of Bern in 1979 was preceded by years of terrorist activity. 4. In an anarcho-capitalist society, there is no government and, accordingly, no clear-cut distinction between inlanders, domestic citizens, and foreigners. This distinction only arises with the establishment of a government, that is, an institution which possesses a territorial monopoly of aggression, taxation. The territory over which a government's taxing power extends becomes inland, and everyone residing outside of this territory becomes a foreigner. State borders and passports are an unnatural coercive institution. Indeed, their existence and that of a domestic government implies a twofold distortion with respect to people's natural inclination to associate with others. First, inlanders cannot exclude the government, the taxman, from their own property and are subject to what one might call forced integration by government agents. Second, in order to be able to intrude on its subjects' private property so as to tax them, a government must invariably have control of existing roads and it will employ its tax revenue to produce even more roads to gain even better access to all private property qua potential tax source. This overproduction of roads does not result merely in the innocent facilitation of interregional trade, a lowering of transaction costs, as starry-eyed economists would have us believe, but leads to forced domestic integration, artificial desegregation of separate localities. In fact, as noted by Max Weber, Sociologie, Weltgeschichtliche Analysen, Politik, the famed roadways of ancient Rome were typically regarded as a plague rather than an advantage, because they were essentially military rather than trade routes. Moreover, with the establishment of a government and state borders, immigration takes on an entirely new meaning. 
immigration becomes immigration by foreigners across state borders, and the decision as to whether or not a person should be admitted no longer rests with private property owners or associations of such owners, but with the government as the ultimate sovereign of all domestic residents and the ultimate super-owner of all their properties. Now, if the government excludes a person while even one domestic resident wants to admit this very person onto his property, the result is forced exclusion, a phenomenon that does not exist under private property anarchism. Furthermore, if the government admits a person while there is not a single domestic resident who wants to have this person on his property, the result is forced integration, also non-existent under private property anarchism. 5. It is time to enrich the analysis through the introduction of a few realistic, empirical assumptions. Let us assume that the government is privately owned. The ruler owns the entire country within state borders. He owns part of the territory outright, his property title is unrestricted, and he is partial owner of the rest, as landlord or residual claimant of all of his citizen tenants' real estate holdings, albeit restricted by some pre-existing rental contracts. He can sell and bequeath his property, and he can calculate and capture the monetary value of his capital, his country. Traditional monarchies and kings are the closest historical examples of this form of government. What would a king's typical immigration and emigration policy be? Because he owns the entire country's capital value, he will tend to choose migration policies that preserve or enhance rather than diminish the value of his kingdom, assuming no more than his self-interest. As far as emigration is concerned, a king would want to prevent the emigration of productive subjects, in particular of his best and most productive subjects, because losing them would lower the value of the kingdom. Thus, for example, from 1782 until 1824, a law prohibited the emigration of skilled workmen from Britain. On the other hand, a king would want to expel his non-productive and destructive subjects, criminals, bums, beggars, gypsies, vagabonds, etc., for their removal from his territory would increase the value of his realm. For this reason, Britain expelled tens of thousands of common criminals to North America and Australia. On the other hand, as far as immigration policies are concerned, a king would want to keep the mob, as well as all people of inferior productive capabilities, out. People of the latter category would only be admitted temporarily as seasonal workers without citizenship, and they would be barred from permanent property ownership. Thus, for example, after 1880, large numbers of Poles were hired as seasonal workers in Germany. A king would only permit the permanent immigration of superior, or at least above-average people, that is, those whose residence in his kingdom would increase his own property value. Thus, for example, after 1685, with the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, tens of thousands of Huguenots were permitted to settle in Prussia. And similarly, Peter the Great, Frederick the Great and Maria Theresa later promoted the immigration and settlement of large numbers of Germans in Russia, Prussia, and the eastern provinces of Austria-Hungary. The settlement of Germans in Eastern Europe actually began in the 11th century and was generally encouraged by various regional Slavic kings and princes who thereby hoped to promote the economic development of their realms. A highly illuminating account of the social effects and repercussions of these migration policies in the multicultural Habsburg Empire is provided by Mises in Nation, State and Economy. Quote, As a result of centuries-long colonization, the urban bourgeoisie and the urban intelligentsia were German everywhere in Austria and Hungary. Large land ownership was in great part Germanized, and everywhere, even in the middle of foreign-language territory, there were German peasant settlements. All of Austria outwardly bore a German stamp. Everywhere, German education and German literature were to be found. Everywhere in the empire, the Germans were also represented among the petty bourgeoisie, among the workers and among the peasants, even though in many districts, especially in Galicia, 
in many parts of Hungary and in the coastal territories, the German minority among the members of the lower strata of the population was quite small. But in the entire empire, Upper Italy accepted, the percentage of Germans among the educated and among the members of the higher strata was quite considerable, and all those educated persons and prosperous bourgeois who were not themselves German and did not want to acknowledge belonging to the German nation were German by their education, spoke German, read German, and appeared at least outwardly to be German. Thus, Austria no doubt was not German, but politically it wore a German face. Every Austrian who wanted to take any interest at all in public affairs had to master the German language. For the members of the Czech and of the Slovene peoples, however, education and social assent could be achieved only through Germanness. They still had no literature of their own that would have made it possible for them to do without the treasures of German culture. Whoever rose became German because precisely the members of the higher strata were German. The Germans saw that and believed that it had to be so. They were far from wanting to Germanize all non-Germans compulsorily, but they thought that this would take place on its own. They believed that every Czech and South Slav would try, even in his own interest, to adopt German culture. In brief, while through his immigration policies a king might not entirely avoid all cases of forced exclusion or forced integration, such policies would by and large do the same as what private property owners would do, if they could decide whom to admit and whom to exclude. That is, the king would be highly selective and very much concerned about improving the quality of the resident human capital so as to drive property values up rather than down. 6. Migration policies become predictably different once the government is publicly owned. The ruler no longer owns the country's capital value, but only has current use of it. He cannot sell or bequeath his position as ruler. He is merely a temporary caretaker. Moreover, free entry into the position of a caretaker government exists. In principle, anyone can become the ruler of the country. As they came into existence on a worldwide scale after World War I, democracies offer historical examples of public government. What are a democracy's migration policies? Once again assuming no more than self-interest, maximizing monetary and psychic income, money and power, Democratic rulers tend to maximize current income, which they can appropriate privately at the expense of capital values, which they cannot appropriate privately. Hence, in accordance with democracy's inherent egalitarianism of one man, one vote, they tend to pursue a distinctly egalitarian, non-discriminatory emigration and immigration policy. As far as immigration policy is concerned, this implies that for a democratic ruler, it makes little, if any, difference whether productive or unproductive people, geniuses or bums, leave the country. They all have one equal vote. In fact, democratic rulers might well be more concerned about the loss of a bum than that of a productive genius. While the loss of the latter would obviously lower the capital value of the country and loss of the former might actually increase it, a democratic ruler does not own the country. In the short run, which is of the most interest to a democratic ruler, the bum, voting most likely in favor of egalitarian measures, might be more valuable than the productive genius who, as egalitarianism's prime victim, will more likely vote against the democratic ruler. To avoid any misunderstanding, it should be emphasized here that the difference between monarchical and democratic republican government with respect to emigration policy is not one of restrictive versus unrestricted emigration. In fact, the most severe restrictions on emigration were imposed in the 20th century by the so-called socialist people's republics of Eastern Europe. Rather, the difference is one concerning the type of restrictions, respectively the motivation underlying such restrictions. Thus, whereas monarchical immigration restrictions were typically motivated by economic concerns, democratic-republican restrictions are typically motivated by power concerns, 
with the most frequent restriction being that one may not emigrate until one has fulfilled one's compulsory military service. For the same reason, quite unlike a king, a democratic ruler undertakes little to actively expel those people whose presence within the country constitutes a negative externality, human trash which drives individual property values down. In fact, such negative externalities, unproductive parasites, bums and criminals are likely to be his most reliable supporters. As far as immigration policies are concerned, the incentives and disincentives are likewise distorted and the results are equally perverse. For a democratic ruler, it also matters little whether bums or geniuses, below or above average, civilized and productive people immigrate into the country, nor is he much concerned about the distinction between temporary workers, owners of work permits, and permanent, property-owning immigrants, naturalized citizens. Of all major European countries, it has been France, the country with the longest democratic-republican tradition, which has boasted the most liberal, that is, least restrictive, immigration and naturalization policy. In fact, bums and unproductive people may well be preferred as residents and citizens because they create more so-called social problems and democratic rulers thrive on the existence of such problems. Moreover, bums and inferior people will likely support his egalitarian policies, whereas geniuses and superior people will not. The result of this policy of non-discrimination is forced integration. The forcing of masses of inferior immigrants onto domestic property owners who, if the decision were left to them, would have sharply discriminated and chosen very different neighbors for themselves. Thus, as the best available example of democracy at work, the United States immigration laws of 1965 eliminated all previous quality concerns and the explicit preference for European immigrants, replacing them with a policy of almost complete non-discrimination, multiculturalism. To put matters into perspective, Brian Lowe in Alien Nation documents that from 1820 until 1967, when the new immigration laws went into effect, almost 90% of all immigrants were of European descent. In contrast, from 1967 until 1993, some 85% of the close to 17 million legal immigrants arriving in the U.S. came from the Third World, mostly Latin America and Asia. Rather than selection by skill and job qualification as before 1967, the primary selection criteria currently are family reunification, asylum, and diversity lottery. Consequently, the average level of education and the average wage rate of immigrants has continually fallen as compared to their Native American counterparts. Moreover, the welfare participation rate of immigrant households significantly exceeds, and increasingly so, that of the Native population, which includes blacks and Puerto Ricans with an already extremely high welfare participation rate. For instance, the welfare participation rate of Cambodian and Laotian immigrants is almost 50%, that of Vietnamese immigrants is above 25%, Dominican Republic 28%, Cuba 16%, former Soviet Union 16%, China 10%. As well, immigrants remain on the dole for increasingly longer periods. Last but not least, Brimlow estimates that if the current trends of legal as well as illegal immigration continue, the population of European descent, which has traditionally made up close to 90% of the U.S. population, will be on the verge of becoming a minority by the year 2050. But won't all of the immigrants be assimilated and become Americans? Not likely, because in order to be successfully assimilated, the influx of immigrants needs to be small in comparison to the host population. However, the current influx of about 1 million legal immigrants and two to 300,000 illegal immigrants per year is concentrated in just a few regions, California, Texas, Illinois, Florida, New York and New Jersey. And most immigrants actually move to just six metropolitan areas, Los Angeles, 
Anaheim, Chicago, Miami, New York, and Washington, D.C. In these regions, the number of immigrants is proportionally so large that any assimilation is essentially out of the question. Rather than gradually being Americanized then, in these areas, immigrants have established foreign third-world countries on formerly American soil. George Borjas notes further that almost a quarter of immigrant households received some type of assistance compared to 15% of native households. What's more, the use of public assistance by immigrants increases over time. It seems that assimilation involves learning not only about labor market opportunities, but also about the opportunities provided by the welfare state. A study by the National Academy of Sciences concluded that immigration in fact raised the taxes of the typical native household in California by about $1,200 per year. As for refugees in particular, the evidence indicates that, after 10 years in the United States, 16% of Vietnamese refugees, 24% of Cambodian refugees, and 34% of Laotian refugees were still receiving public assistance. Moreover, Borges emphasizes, quote, Ethnicity matters in economic life, and it matters for a very long time. That is, the increasingly high skill differential between the native and the immigrant population does not quickly disappear as the result of cultural assimilation. Instead, immigrants typically move to ethnic ghettos, which incubate ethnic differences, and thus ethnic skill differentials may persist for three generations. End quote. Indeed, the immigration policy of a democracy is the mirror image of its policy toward internal population movement, to the voluntary association and dissociation, segregation and desegregation, and the physical distancing and approximating of various private property owners. Like a king, a democratic ruler promotes spatial over-integration by overproducing the public good of roads. However, for a democratic ruler unlike a king, it will not be sufficient that everyone can move next door to anyone else on government roads. Concerned about his current income and power rather than capital values and constrained by egalitarian sentiments, a democratic ruler will tend to go even further. Through non-discrimination laws, one cannot discriminate against Germans, Jews, Blacks, Catholics, Hindus, homosexuals, etc. The government will want to increase the physical access and entrance to everyone's property to everyone else. Thus it is hardly surprising that the so-called civil rights legislation in the United States, which outlawed domestic discrimination on the basis of color, race, national origin, religion, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, etc., and which thereby actually mandated forced integration, coincided with the adoption of a non-discriminatory immigration policy, that is, mandated international desegregation, forced integration. 7. The current situation in the United States and in Western Europe has nothing whatsoever to do with free immigration. It is forced integration, plain and simple, and forced integration is the predictable outcome of democratic one-man, one-vote rule. Abolishing forced integration requires the de-democratization of society and ultimately the abolition of democracy. More specifically, the power to admit or exclude should be stripped from the hands of the central government and reassigned to the states, provinces, cities, towns, villages, residential districts, and ultimately to private property owners and their voluntary associations. Until the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1875, the regulation of immigration into the United States was considered the state rather than a federal matter. The means to achieve this goal are decentralization and secession, both inherently undemocratic and anti-majoritarian. One would be well on the way toward the restoration of the freedom of association and exclusion, as is implied in the idea and institution of private property, 
and much of the social strife currently caused by forced integration would disappear if only towns and villages could and would do what they did as a matter of course until well into the 19th century in Europe and the United States. To post signs regarding entrance requirements to the town and ones in town for entering specific pieces of property. No beggars, bums or homeless, but also no Muslims, Hindus, Jews, Catholics, etc. To expel as trespassers those who do not fulfill these requirements and to solve the naturalization question somewhat along the Swiss model where local assemblies, not the central government, determine who can and who cannot become a Swiss citizen. What should one advocate as the relatively correct immigration policy? However, as long as the democratic central state is still in place and successfully arrogates the power to determine a uniform national immigration policy, the best one may hope for, even if it goes against the nature of a democracy and thus is not very likely to happen, is that the democratic rulers acts as if they were the personal owners of the country and as if they had to decide who to include and who to exclude from their own personal property into their very own houses. This means following a policy of the strictest discrimination in favor of the human qualities of skill, character, and cultural compatibility. More specifically, it means distinguishing strictly between citizens, naturalized immigrants, and resident aliens, and excluding the latter from all welfare entitlements. It means requiring for resident alien status, as well as for citizenship, the personal sponsorship by a resident citizen, and his assumption of liability for all property damage caused by the immigrant. It implies requiring an existing employment contract with a resident citizen. Moreover, for both categories, but especially that of citizenship, it implies that all immigrants must demonstrate through tests not only English language proficiency, but all around superior, above average intellectual performance and character structure, as well as a compatible system of values with the predictable result of a systematic pro-European immigration bias. Currently, about one-half of the U.S. foreign-born citizens, after more than five years of presence in the United States, still speak virtually no English. Of the largest immigrant group, Hispanics, well above two-thirds speak practically no English. Their level of intellectual performance is significantly below the U.S. average, and growing evidence indicates that the crime rate of the immigrant population systematically exceeds that of the native-born population. Chapter 8 On Free Trade and Restricted Immigration 1. It is frequently maintained that free trade is connected with free immigration, as is protectionism, with restricted immigration. That is, the claim is made that while it is not impossible that someone might combine protectionism with free immigration or free trade with restricted immigration, these positions are intellectually inconsistent and thus erroneous. Hence, insofar as people seek to avoid errors, they should be the exception rather than the rule. The facts, insofar as they have a bearing on the issue, appear to be consistent with this claim. As the last Republican presidential primaries indicated, for instance, most professed free traders are advocates of relatively free and non-discriminatory immigration policies, while most protectionists are proponents of highly restrictive and selective immigration policies. Appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, I would argue that this thesis and its implicit claim are fundamentally wrong. In particular, I will demonstrate that free trade and restricted immigration are not only perfectly consistent, but even mutually reinforcing policies. That is, it is not the advocates of free trade and restricted immigration who are wrong, but rather the proponents of free trade and free immigration. In taking the intellectual guilt out of the free trade and restricted immigration position and putting it where it actually belongs, I hope to promote a change in current public opinion 
and facilitate substantial political realignments. 2. Since the days of Ricardo, the case for free trade has been logically unassailable. For the sake of argumentative thoroughness, it would be useful to summarize it briefly. The restatement will be in the form of a reductio ad absurdum of the protectionist thesis as proposed most recently by Patrick Buchanan. David Ricardo's discussion can be found in his Principles of Political Economy and Taxation. The most brilliant 19th century defense of free trade and intellectual demolition of all forms of protectionist policies can be found in Frédéric Bastia's Economic Sophisms. For a modern, abstract and theoretically rigorous treatment of the subject of free trade, see Ludwig von Mises' Human Action, a Treatise on Economics. Buchanan's contrary anti-free trade pronouncements are presented in his The Great Betrayal, How American Sovereignty and Social Justice Are Sacrificed to the Gods of Global Economy. Lest it be thought that protectionist views are restricted to journalistic or political circles, see David S. Landy's The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, who displays views quite similar to Buchanan's. The free trade doctrine, according to Landy's, is a religion, and its proponents, such as William Stanley Jevons, are true believers. Landy's quotes Jevons as stating in 1883 that, Quote, freedom of trade may be regarded as a fundamental axiom of political economy. We may welcome bona fide investigations into the state of trade and the causes of our present oppression, but we can no more expect to have our opinions on free trade altered by such an investigation than the mathematical society would expect to have axioms of Euclid disproved during the investigation of a complex problem. End quote. While he obviously disapproves of Jevons's contention, Landis, like Buchanan, does not attempt to provide anything resembling a refutation of it. The central argument advanced in favor of protectionism is one of domestic job protection. How can American producers paying their workers $10 per hour possibly compete with Mexican producers paying $1 or less per hour? They cannot, and American jobs will be lost unless import tariffs are imposed to insulate American wages from Mexican competition. Free trade is only possible between countries that have equal wage rates and thus compete on a level playing field. As long as this is not the case, as with the U.S. and Mexico, the playing field must be made level by means of tariffs. As for the consequences of such a policy of domestic job protection, Buchanan and his fellow protectionists claim that it will lead to domestic strength and prosperity, and in support of this claim, examples are cited of free trade countries that lost their once preeminent international economic position such as 19th century England, and of protectionist countries which gained such preeminence, such as 19th century America. This or any other alleged empirical proof of the protectionist thesis must be rejected out of hand as containing a post-hoc, ergo-propter-hoc fallacy. The inference drawn from historical data is no more convincing than if one were to conclude from the observation that rich people consume more than poor people, that it must be consumption that makes a person rich. Indeed, Protectionists, such as Buchanan, characteristically fail to understand what is actually involved in defending their theses. Any argument in favor of international protectionism rather than free trade is simultaneously an argument in favor of interregional and interlocal protectionism. Just as different wage rates exist between the United States and Mexico, Haiti or China, for instance, such differences also exist between New York and Alabama or between Manhattan, the Bronx and Harlem. Thus, if it were true that international protectionism could make an entire nation prosperous and strong, it must also be true that interregional and interlocal protectionism could make regions and localities prosperous and strong. In fact, one may even go one step further. If the protectionist argument were right, 
It would amount to an indictment of all trade and a defense of the thesis that everyone would be the most prosperous and strongest if he never traded with anyone else and remained in self-sufficient isolation. Certainly, in this case, no one would ever lose his job and unemployment due to unfair competition would be reduced to zero. In thus deducing the ultimate implication of the protectionist argument, its complete absurdity is revealed, for such a full employment society would not be prosperous and strong. It would be composed of people who, despite working from dawn to dusk, would be condemned to poverty and destitution or death from starvation. In Power Market, Murray and Rothbard has offered his reductio ad absurdum of the protectionist thesis. Quote, Suppose that Jones has a farm, Jones Acres, and Smith works for him. Having become steeped in pro-tariff ideas, Jones exhorts Smith to buy Jones. Keep the money in Jones Acres. Don't be exploited by the flood of products from the cheap labor of foreigners outside of Jones Acres. And similar maxims become the watchword of the two men. To make sure that their aim is accomplished, Jones levies a thousand percent tariff on the imports of all goods and services from abroad, that is, from outside the farm. As a result, Jones and Smith see their leisure or problem of unemployment disappear as they work from dawn to dusk, trying to eke out the production of all the goods they desire. Many they cannot raise at all, others they can given centuries of effort. It is true that they reap the promise of the protectionists, self-sufficiency, although this sufficiency is bare substance instead of a comfortable standard of living. Money is kept at home, and they can pay each other very high nominal wages and prices, but the men find that the real value of their wages in terms of goods plummets drastically. End quote. International protectionism, while obviously less destructive than a policy of interpersonal or interregional protectionism, would have precisely the same effect and be a recipe for America's further economic decline. To be sure, some American jobs and industries would be saved, but such savings would come at a price. The standard of living and the real income of the American consumers of foreign products would be forcibly reduced. The cost to all United States producers who use the protected industry's products as their own input factors would be raised, and they would be rendered less competitive internationally. Moreover, what could foreigners do with the money they earned from their U.S. imports? They could either buy American goods, or they could leave it in the U.S. and invest it, and if their imports were stopped or reduced, they would buy fewer American goods or invest smaller amounts. Hence, as a result of saving a few inefficient American jobs, a far greater number of efficient American jobs would be destroyed or never come into existence. See further on this, Murray and Rothbard, the dangerous nonsense of protectionism. What the proponents of fair trade typically leave unanswered, Rothbard here points out, is why U.S. wage rates are higher than in Mexico or Taiwan in the first place. Quote, If the American wage is twice that of the Taiwanese, it is because the American laborer is more heavily capitalized, is equipped with more and better tools, and is therefore, on the average, twice as productive. In a sense, I suppose it is not fair for the American worker to make more than the Taiwanese, not because of his personal qualities, but because savers and investors have supplied him with more tools. But a wage rate is determined not just by personal quality, but also by relative scarcity. And in the United States, the worker is far scarcer compared to capital than he is in Taiwan. Putting it in another way, the fact that American wage rates are on the average twice that of the Taiwanese does not make the cost of labor in the U.S. twice that of Taiwan. Since the U.S. labor is twice as productive, this means that the double wage rate in the U.S. is offset by the double productivity, so that the cost of labor per unit product in the U.S. and Taiwan tends, on the average, to be the same. 
One of the major protectionist fallacies is to confuse the price of labor, wage rate, with its cost, which also depends on its relative productivity. Thus, the problem faced by American employers is not really with the cheap labor in Taiwan, because expensive labor in the U.S. is precisely the result of the bidding for scarce labor by U.S. employers. The problem faced by less efficient U.S. textile or auto firms is not so much cheap labor in Taiwan or Japan, but the fact that other U.S. industries are efficient enough to afford it because they bid wages that high in the first place. So, by imposing protective tariffs and quotas to save, bail out, and keep in place less efficient U.S. textile or auto or microchip firms, the protectionists are not only injuring the American consumer; they are also harming efficient U.S. firms and industries. Which are prevented from employing resources now locked into incompetent firms, and who would otherwise be able to expand and sell their efficient products at home and abroad. End quote. Thus, it is nonsense to claim that England lost its former preeminence because of its free trade policy. It lost its position despite its free trade policy, and because of the socialist policies which took hold in England during the last third of the nineteenth century. Likewise, it is nonsense to claim that the rise of the United States to economic preeminence in the course of the 19th century was due to its protectionist policies. The United States attained this position despite its protectionism and because of its unrivaled internal laissez-faire policies. Indeed, America's current economic decline, which Buchanan would want to halt and reverse, is not the result of her alleged free trade policies. But of the circumstance that America, in the course of the 20th century, gradually adopted the same socialist policies that had ruined England earlier. Three, given the case for free trade, we will now develop the case for immigration restrictions to be combined with free trade policies. More specifically, we will build a successively stronger case for immigration restrictions. From the initial weak claim that free trade and immigration restrictions can be combined and do not exclude each other, to the final strong claim that the principle underlying free trade actually requires such restrictions. From the outset, it must be emphasized that not even the most restrictive immigration policy or the most exclusive form of segregationism has anything to do with the rejection of free trade and the adoption of protectionism. From the fact that one does not want to associate with or live in a neighborhood of Germans, Haitians, Chinese, Koreans, Mexicans, Muslims, Hindus, Catholics, etc., it does not follow that one does not want to trade with them from a distance. Moreover, even if it were the case that one's real income would rise as a result of immigration, it does not follow that immigration must be considered good, for material wealth is not the only thing that matters. Rather, what constitutes welfare and wealth is subjective. And one might prefer lower material living standards and a greater distance from certain other people over higher material living standards and a smaller distance. It is precisely the absolute voluntariness of human association and separation, the absence of any form of forced integration, which makes peaceful relationships, free trade between racially, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, or culturally distinct people possible. The relationship between trade and migration is one of elastic substitutability rather than rigid exclusivity. The more less you have of one, the less more you need of the other. Other things being equal, businesses move to low-wage areas and labor moves to high-wage areas, thus affecting a tendency toward the equalization of wage rates for the same kind of labor, as well as the optimal localization of capital. With political borders separating high from low-wage areas, and with national, nationwide trade and immigration policies in effect. These normal tendencies of immigration and capital export are weakened with free trade and strengthened with protectionism. As long as Mexican products, 
the products of a low-wage area can freely enter a high-wage area such as the United States, the incentive for Mexican people to move to the United States is reduced. In contrast, if Mexican products are prevented from entering the American market, the attraction for Mexican workers to move to the United States is increased. Similarly, when the United States producers are free to buy from and sell to Mexican producers and consumers, capital exports from the United States to Mexico will be reduced. However, when United States producers are prevented from doing so, the attraction of moving production from the United States to Mexico is increased. Similarly, as the foreign trade policy of the United States affects immigration, so does its domestic trade policy. Domestic free trade is what is typically referred to as laissez-faire capitalism. In other words, the national government follows a policy of non-interference with the voluntary transactions between domestic parties, citizens, regarding their private property. The government's policy is one of helping to protect its citizens and their private property from domestic aggression, damage or fraud, exactly as in the case of foreign trade and aggression. If the United States followed strict domestic free trade policies, immigration from low-wage regions, such as Mexico, would be reduced, while when it pursues social welfare policies, immigration from low-wage areas is more attractive. 4. To the extent that a high-wage area, such as the United States, engages in unrestricted free trade, internationally as well as domestically, the immigration pressure from low-wage countries will be kept low or reduced and hence the question as to what to do about immigration will be less urgent. On the other hand, insofar as the United States engages in protectionist policies against the products of low-wage areas' products and in welfare policies at home, immigration pressure will be kept high or even raised, and the immigration question will assume great importance in public debate. Obviously, the world's major high-wage regions, North America and Western Europe, are presently in this latter situation in which immigration has become an increasingly urgent public concern. In order to put matters into proper perspective, it might be useful to supply some brief comments on these regions' free trade and domestic welfare records. These remarks concern in particular the situation in the United States, but they apply by and large to the situation in Western Europe too. Free trade means to impose neither import tariffs or quotas, nor to subsidize the exportation of goods or engage in any other export promotion schemes. In particular, Free trade does not require any bilateral or multilateral agreements or treaties. Instead, free trade policies can be implemented instantaneously and unilaterally, and intergovernmental trade agreements, regardless of what they are called, must invariably be regarded as indicators of international trade restrictions rather than free trade. In light of this, the free trade record of the United States must be considered dismal. A labyrinthine system of tariffs and regulations restricts the free importation of literally thousands of foreign goods, from raw materials to agricultural products, machine tools and high-technology products. At the same time, the U.S. government engages in a wide variety of export promotion schemes, ranging from simple export subsidies and foreign aid requiring the purchase of certain U.S. goods to massive financial bailouts of U.S. investors in foreign countries and open or concealed military pressure and threat. Moreover. With the so-called North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, a document of about 2,400 pages, when free trade prescriptions can be summarized in two sentences, the U.S. government, in collaboration with the government of Canada and Mexico, has recently adopted another maze of international trade restrictions and regulations. In effect, NAFTA involves the upward harmonization of the tax and regulation structure across North America, very much like the so-called European Union, EU, does for most of Western Europe. Similar strictures apply to the new creation, 
as the result of GATT's General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade recent Uruguay Round of the World Trade Organization. Clearly even more striking is the domestic welfare record of the U.S., and similarly of Western Europe. The record in this regard is not uniform across the U.S. Public welfare assistance is higher in California than in Alabama, for example, which explains significant welfare migration within the U.S. Suffice it to say, however, that U.S. welfare assistance, including cash grants as well as numerous in-kind benefits such as food stamps, housing allowances, Medicaid, aid to dependent children, and public education, etc., can easily reach a household net income of $20,000 per year and rise as high as $40,000 per year. In light of steadily mounting immigration pressure from the world to low-wage regions, three general strategies of dealing with immigration have been proposed. Unconditional free immigration, conditional free immigration, and restrictive immigration. While our main concern will be with the latter two alternatives, a few observations regarding the unconditional free immigration position are appropriate, if only to illustrate the extent of its intellectual bankruptcy and irresponsibility. According to proponents of unconditional free immigration, the United States, qua high wage area, would invariably benefit from free immigration, hence, it should enact a policy of open borders regardless of present conditions, that is, even if the United States were entangled in protectionism and domestic welfare. Such a position has been advocated repeatedly, for instance, by the editorial page editors of the highly influential Wall Street Journal, led by the neoconservative Robert Bartley. See, for example, the Wall Street Journal of July 3, 1990, where a constitutional amendment is proposed, there shall be no borders. Likewise, open border policies have been proposed by Stephen Moore of the Cato Institute, Donald Boudreau of the Foundation for Economic Education, and Jacob Hornberger of the Future of Freedom Foundation. While these individuals and institutions typically refer to Julian L. Simon as their patron saint in this regard, Simon, in fact, does not advocate an open border policy. Far more modestly, Simon recommends instead, quote, to increase immigration quotas in a series of increments of significant size, perhaps half a percent or 1% of total population at each step, to check on any unexpected negative consequences, end quote. More importantly, Simon suggests weeding out those potential immigrants who will become a welfare burden. He recommends discrimination in favor of educated immigrants and those who demonstrate proficiency in English. He suggests giving preference to applicants with financial assets capable of making a direct investment in a host country, and he's particularly fond of the idea of selling the right of immigration into the U.S. to the highest bidders. In his last published article, Simon moves still further away from advocating an open-door policy. Surely such a proposal must strike a reasonable person as fantastic. Assume that the United States, or better still Switzerland, declared that there would no longer be any border controls, that anyone who could pay the fare might enter the country, and as a resident would then be entitled to every normal domestic welfare provision. Is there any doubt about the disastrous outcome of such an experiment in the present world? The United States, and even faster Switzerland, already weakened by protectionism and welfare, would be overrun by millions of third-world immigrants. Two useful figures may indicate the magnitude of the potential problem. For one, according to surveys conducted during the early 1990s in the former Soviet Union, more than 30% of the population, that is close to 100 million people, expressed the desire to emigrate. Second, during the 1990s the U.S. held an annual diversity lottery, offering visas to persons originating in countries with low rates of immigration to the United States. The 1997 lottery attracted some 3.4 million applicants for 50,000 available visas. 
Welfare costs would quickly skyrocket and the strangled economy would disintegrate and collapse as the subsistence fund, the stock of capital accumulated in and inherited from the past, fathers and forefathers, was plundered. Civilization would vanish from the United States and Switzerland just as it once did from Greece and Rome. A truly remarkable position is staked out by Walter Bloch in A Libertarian Case for Free Immigration, Journal of Libertarian Studies 13, number 2, from 1998. Bloch does not deny the above predicted consequences of an open border policy. To the contrary, he writes, quote, Suppose unlimited immigration has made the order of the day, while minimum wages, unions, welfare, and a law code soft on criminals are still in place in the host country. Then it might well be maintained the host country would be subjected to increased crime, welfareism, and unemployment. An open-door policy would imply not economic freedom, but forced integration with all the dregs of the world with enough money to reach our shores. End quote. Nonetheless, Bloch then goes on to advocate an open-door policy regardless of these predictable consequences, and he claims that such a stand is required by the principles of libertarian political philosophy. Given Bloch's undeniable credentials as a leading contemporary theoretician of libertarianism, it is worthwhile explaining where his argument goes astray and why libertarianism requires no such thing as an open-door policy. Bloch's pro-immigration stand is based on an analogy. Take the case of the bum in the library, he states, quote, What, if anything, should be done about him? If this is a private library, the law should allow the owner of the library to forcibly evict such a person, if need be, at his own discretion. But what if it is a public library? As such, libraries are akin to an unowned good. Any occupant has as much right to them as any other. If we are in a revolutionary state of war, then the first homesteader may seize control. But if not, as at present, then, given just war considerations, any reasonable interference with public property would be legitimate. One could stink up the library with unwashed body odor, or leave litter around in it, or liberate some books, but one could not plant landmines on the premises to blow up innocent library users. End quote. The fundamental error in this argument, according to which everyone, foreign immigrants no less than domestic bums, has an equal right to domestic public property, is Bloch's claim that public property is akin to an unowned good. In fact, there exists a fundamental difference between unowned goods and public property. The latter is de facto owned by the taxpaying members of the domestic public. They have financed this property, hence they, in accordance with the amount of taxes paid by individual members, must be regarded as its legitimate owners. Neither the bum, who has presumably paid no taxes, nor any foreigner, who has most definitely not paid any domestic taxes, can thus be assumed to have any rights regarding public property whatsoever. Since unconditional free immigration must be regarded as a prescription for societal suicide, the typical position among free traders is the alternative of conditional free immigration. According to this view, the United States and Switzerland would have to first return to unrestricted free trade and abolish all tax-funded welfare programs, and only then could they open their borders to everyone who wanted to come. In the meantime, while the welfare state is still in place, Immigration would be permitted, subject to the condition that immigrants are excluded from domestic welfare entitlements. While the error involved in this view is less obvious and the consequences less dramatic than those associated with the unconditional free immigration position, the view is nonetheless erroneous and harmful. To be sure, the immigration pressure on the United States and Switzerland would be reduced if this proposal were followed, but it would not disappear. Indeed, with foreign and domestic free trade policies, Wage rates within the United States and Switzerland might further increase relative to those at other locations, 
with less enlightened economic policies. Hence, the attraction of both countries might even increase. In any case, some immigration pressure would remain, so some form of immigration policy would have to exist. Do the principles underlying free trade imply that this policy must be one of conditional free immigration? No, they do not. There is no analogy between free trade and free immigration and restricted trade and restricted immigration. The phenomena of trade and immigration are different in one fundamental respect, and the meaning of free and restricted in conjunction with both terms is categorically different. People can move and migrate. Goods and services of themselves cannot. Put differently, while someone can migrate from one place to another without anyone else wanting him to do so, goods and services cannot be shipped from place to place unless both sender and receiver agree. Trivial as this distinction may appear, it has momentous consequences. For free in conjunction with trade means trade by invitation of private households and firms only, and restricted trade does not mean protection of households and firms from uninvited goods or services, but invasion and abrogation of the right of private households and firms to extend or deny invitations to their own property. In contrast, free in conjunction with immigration does not mean immigration by invitation of individual households and firms, but unwanted invasion or forced integration and restricted immigration actually means, or at least can mean, the protection of private households and firms from unwanted invasion and forced integration. Hence, in advocating free trade and restricted immigration, one follows the same principle of requiring an invitation for people as for goods and services. The free trade and free market proponent who adopts the conditional free immigration position is involved in intellectual inconsistency. Free trade and markets mean that private property owners may receive or send goods from and to other owners without government interference. The government stays inactive vis-à-vis the process of foreign and domestic trade because a paying recipient exists for every good or service sent. Hence, every locational change, as the outcome of an agreement between sender and receiver, must be deemed mutually beneficial. The government's sole function is that of maintaining the very trading process by protecting citizen and domestic property. However, with respect to the movement of people, the same government will have to do more to fulfill its protective function than merely permit events to take their own course because people, unlike products, possess a will and can migrate. Accordingly, population movements, unlike product shipments, are not per se mutually beneficial events because they are not always, necessarily and invariably, the result of an agreement between a specific receiver and sender. There can be shipments, immigrants, without willing domestic recipients. In this case, immigrants are foreign invaders and immigration represents an act of invasion. Surely, a government's basic protective function would include the prevention of foreign invasions and the expulsion of foreign invaders. Just as surely then, in order to do so and subject immigrants to the same requirements as imports of having to be invited by domestic residents, a government cannot rightfully allow the kind of free immigration advocated by most free traders. Just imagine again that the United States and Switzerland threw their borders open to whoever wanted to come, provided only that immigrants be excluded from all welfare entitlements, which would be reserved for United States and Swiss citizens, respectively. Apart from the sociological problem of thereby creating two distinct classes of domestic residents, and thus causing severe social tensions, there's little doubt about the outcome of this experiment in the present world. Note that even if immigrants were excluded from all tax-funded welfare entitlements, as well as the democratic right to vote, they would still be protected and covered by all currently existing anti-discrimination affirmative action laws, 
which would prevent domestic residents from arbitrarily excluding them from employment, housing and any other form of public accommodation. The result would be less dramatic and less immediate than under the scenario of unconditional free immigration, but it would also amount to a massive foreign invasion and ultimately lead to the destruction of American and Swiss civilization. Even if no welfare handouts were available to immigrants, this does not mean that they would actually have to work, since even life on and off the public streets and parks in the United States and Switzerland is comfortable as compared to real life in many other areas of the world. Thus, in order to fulfill its primary function as the protector of its citizens and their domestic property, a high-wage area government cannot follow an immigration policy of laissez-passer, but must engage in restrictive measures. 5. From the recognition that proponents of free trade and markets cannot advocate free immigration without being inconsistent and contradicting themselves, and that therefore immigration must logically be restricted, it is but a small step to the further recognition of how it must be restricted. In fact, all high-wage area governments presently restrict immigration in one way or another. Nowhere is immigration free, unconditionally or conditionally. However, the restrictions imposed on immigration by the United States and by Switzerland, for instance, are quite different. Which restrictions should exist? More precisely, which immigration restrictions is a free trader and free marketeer logically compelled to uphold and promote? The guiding principle of a high-wage area country's immigration policy follows from the insight that to be free in the same sense as trade is free, immigration must be invited. The details follow from the further elucidation and exemplification of the concepts of invitation versus invasion and forced integration. To this end, it is necessary to presuppose, as a conceptual benchmark, the existence of what political philosophers have described as a private property anarchy, anarcho-capitalism, or ordered anarchy. All land is privately owned, including all streets, rivers, airports, and harbors. With respect to some pieces of land, the property title may be unrestricted, that is, the owner is permitted to do whatever he pleases with his property, as long as he does not physically damage the property of others. With respect to other territories, the property title may be more or less restricted. As is currently the case in some housing developments, the owner may be bound by contractual limitations on what he can do with his property, restrictive covenants, voluntary zoning, which might include residential rather than commercial use, no buildings more than four stories high, no sale or rent to unmarried couples, smokers or Germans, for instance. Clearly, in this kind of society, there is no such thing as freedom of immigration or an immigrant's right of way. Rather, there exists the freedom of many independent private property owners to admit or exclude others from their own property in accordance with their own restricted or unrestricted property titles. Admission to some territories might be easy, while to others it might be nearly impossible. Moreover, admission to the property of one party does not imply the freedom to move around unless other property owners have agreed to such movements. There will be as much immigration or non-immigration, inclusivity or exclusivity, desegregation or segregation, non-discrimination or discrimination, as individual owners or associations of individual owners desire. If every piece of land in a country were owned by some person, group or corporation, elaborate Murray and Rothbard, quote, this would mean that no immigrant could enter there unless invited to enter and allowed to rent or purchase property. A totally privatized country would be as closed as the particular inhabitants and property owners desire. It seems clear, then, that the regime of open borders that exists de facto in the U.S. really amounts to a compulsory opening by the central state, the state in charge of all streets and public land areas, and does not genuinely reflect the wishes of the proprietors. 
Under total privatization, many local conflicts and externality problems, not merely the immigration problem, would be neatly settled. With every locale and neighborhood owned by private firms, corporations, or contractual communities, a true diversity would reign according to the preferences of each community. Some neighborhoods would be ethnically or economically diverse, while others would be ethnically or economically homogenous. Some localities would permit pornography or prostitution or drugs or abortions, while others would prohibit any or all of them. The prohibitions would not be state-imposed, but would simply be requirements for residents or for use of some person's or community's land area. While statists, who have the itch to impose their values on everyone else, would be disappointed, every group or interest would at least have the satisfaction of living in neighborhoods of people who share its values and preferences. While neighborhood ownership would not provide utopia or a panacea for all conflicts, it would at least provide a second-best solution that most people might be willing to live with. End quote. The reason for citing the model of an anarcho-capitalist society is that no such thing as forced integration, uninvited migration, is possible, permitted, within its framework. Under this scenario, no difference between the physical movement of goods and the migration of people exists. Just as every product movement reflects an underlying agreement between sender and receiver, so are all movements of immigrants into and within an anarcho-capitalist society the result of an agreement between the immigrant and one or a series of receiving domestic property owners. Hence, even if the anarcho-capitalist model is ultimately rejected, and if for realism's sake the existence of a government and of public, in addition to private goods and property, is assumed, it brings into clear focus what a government's immigration policy would have to be if and insofar as this government derived its legitimacy from the sovereignty of the people and was viewed as the outgrowth of an agreement or social contract, as is presumably the case with all modern post-monarchial governments, of course. Surely, such a popular government, which assumed as its primary task the protection of its citizens and their property, the production of domestic security, would want to preserve, rather than abolish this, no forced integration feature of anarcho-capitalism. In order to clarify what this implies, it is necessary to explain how an anarcho-capitalist society is altered by the introduction of a government and how this affects the immigration problem. Since there is no government in an anarcho-capitalist society, there is no clear-cut distinction between inlanders, domestic citizens, and foreigners. This distinction appears only with the establishment of a government. The territory over which a government's power extends then becomes inland, and everyone residing outside of this territory becomes a foreigner. State borders and passports, as distinct from private property borders and titles to property, come into existence, and immigration takes on a new meaning. Immigration becomes immigration by foreigners across state borders, and the decision as to whether or not a person should be admitted no longer rests exclusively with private property owners or associations of such owners, but ultimately with the government qua domestic security producer monopolist. Now, if the government excludes a person while a domestic resident exists who wants to admit this very person onto his property, the result is forced exclusion. And if the government admits a person while no domestic resident exists who wants to have this person on his property, the result is forced integration. Moreover, hand in hand with the institution of a government comes the institution of public property and goods, that is, of property and goods owned collectively by all domestic residents and controlled and administered by the government. The larger or smaller the amount of public government ownership, the greater or smaller will be the potential problem of forced integration. Consider a socialist society like the former Soviet Union or East Germany, for example. All factors of production, capital goods, 
including all land and natural resources, are publicly owned. Accordingly, if the government admits an uninvited immigrant, it admits him to any place within the country, for without private land ownership there are no limitations on his internal migrations other than those decreed by government. Under socialism, therefore, forced integration can be spread everywhere and thereby immensely intensified. In fact, in the Soviet Union and East Germany, for instance, the government could quarter a stranger in someone else's private house or apartment. This measure and the resulting high-powered forced integration was justified on the grounds of the fact that all private houses rested on public land. By the same token, under socialism, every form of internal migration was subject to government control. Socialist countries are not high-wage areas, of course. Or if they are, they will not remain so for long. Their problem is not immigration, but emigration pressure. The Soviet Union and East Germany prohibited emigration and killed people for trying to leave the country. However, the problem of the extension and intensification of forced integration persists outside of socialism. To be sure, in non-socialist countries such as the United States, Switzerland and the Federal Republic of Germany, which are favorite immigration destinations, a government-admitted immigrant could not move just anywhere. His freedom of movement would be severely restricted by the extent of private property and private land ownership in particular. Yet by proceeding on public roads or with public means of transportation, and by staying on public land and in public parks and buildings, an immigrant can cross every domestic resident's path and move into virtually any neighborhood. The smaller the quantity of public property, the less likely this will occur, but as long as any public property exists, it cannot be entirely avoided. 6. A popular government that wants to safeguard its citizens and their domestic property from forced integration and foreign invaders has two methods of doing so, a corrective and a preventative one. The corrective method is designed to ameliorate the effects of forced integration once the event has taken place and the invaders are there. As indicated, to achieve this goal, the government must reduce the quantity of public property and expand that of private property as much as possible, and whatever the ratio of private to public property may be, the government should help rather than hinder the enforcement of a private property owner's right to admit and exclude others from his property. If virtually all property is owned privately, and the government assists in enforcing private ownership rights, the uninvited immigrants, even if they successfully cross the border and enter the country, would not likely get much further. The more completely this corrective measure is carried out, the higher the degree of private ownership, the smaller will be the need for protective measures such as border defense. The cost of protection against foreign invaders along the United States-Mexico border, for instance, is comparatively high because for long stretches no private property exists on the U.S. side. However, even if the cost of border protection were lowered by means of privatization, it would not disappear as long as there are substantial income and wage differentials between high- and low-wage territories. Hence, in order to fulfill its basic protective function, a high-wage area government must also engage in preventative measures. At all ports of entry and along its borders, the government, as trustee of its citizens, must check all newly arriving persons for an entrance ticket, that is, a valid invitation by a domestic property owner, and anyone not in possession of such a ticket must be expelled at his own expense. Valid invitations are contracts between one or more private domestic recipients, residential or commercial, and the arriving person. Qua contractual admission, the inviting party can only dispose of his own private property. Hence, similar to the scenario of conditional free immigration, 
The admission implies that the immigrant will be excluded from all publicly funded welfare. On the other hand, it implies that the receiving party must assume legal responsibility for the actions of his invitee for the duration of his stay. The inviter is held liable to the full extent of his property for any crimes by the invitee committed against the person or property of any third party, as parents are held accountable for crimes committed by their offspring as long as these are members of the parental household. This obligation, which implies that inviters will have to carry liability insurance for all of their guests, ends once the invitee has left the country or once another domestic property owner has assumed liability for the person in question by admitting him onto his property. The invitation may be private, personal or commercial, temporary or permanent, concerning only housing, accommodation, residency or housing and employment, but there cannot be a valid contract involving only employment and no housing. In the current legal environment, wherein domestic property owners are essentially barred from engaging in any form of discriminatory action, the presence of foreign guest workers would inevitably lead to widespread forced integration. Once admitted, based on an existing employment contract, these workers would then be able to use the courts in order to gain entrance also to housing, schooling, and any other form of public establishment or accommodation. Hence, in order to overcome this problem, employers must be required to offer their guest workers not just employment, but housing, and other things such as shopping, medical, training, or entertainment facilities, that is, the amenities of an entire self-contained factory town. In any case, however, as a contractual relationship, every invitation may be revoked or terminated by the host, and upon termination, the invitee, whether tourist, visiting businessman, or resident alien, will be required to leave the country unless another resident citizen enters into an invitation contract with him. The invitee, who is at all times subject to the potential risk of immediate expulsion, may lose his legal status as a non-resident or resident alien only upon acquiring citizenship. In accordance with the objective of making all immigration, like trade, invited contractual, the fundamental requirement for citizenship is the acquisition of property ownership, or more precisely the ownership of real estate and residential property. In contrast, it would be inconsistent with the very idea of invited migration to award citizenship according to the territorial principle, as in the U.S., whereby a child born to a non-resident or resident alien in a host country automatically acquires U.S. citizenship. In fact, as most other high-wage area governments recognize, such a child should acquire the citizenship of his parents. Granting this child's citizenship involves the non-fulfillment of a host country government's basic protective function and actually amounts to an invasive act perpetrated by the government against its own citizenry. Becoming a citizen means acquiring the right to stay in a country permanently and a permanent invitation cannot be secured by any means other than purchasing residential property from a citizen resident. Only by selling real estate to a foreigner does a citizen indicate that he agrees to a guest's permanent stay and only if the immigrant has purchased and paid for real estate and residential housing in the host country will he assume a permanent interest in his new country's well-being and prosperity. Moreover, finding a citizen who is willing to sell residential property and who is prepared and able to pay for it, although a necessary requirement for the acquisition of citizenship, may not also be sufficient. If and insofar as the domestic property in question is subject to restrictive covenants, the hurdles to be taken by a prospective citizen may be significantly higher. In Switzerland, for instance, citizenship may require that the sale of residential property to foreigners be ratified by a majority of, or even all of the directly affected local property owners. 7. 
Judged by the immigration policy entailed by the objective of protecting one's own citizens from foreign invasion and forced integration, and of rendering all international population movements invited and contractual migrations, the Swiss government does a significantly better job than the United States. It is relatively more difficult to enter Switzerland as an uninvited person, and it is more difficult to stay on as an uninvited alien. In particular, it is far more difficult for a foreigner to acquire citizenship, and the legal distinction between resident citizens and resident aliens is more clearly preserved. These differences notwithstanding, the governments of both Switzerland and the United States are pursuing immigration policies that must be deemed far too permissive. Moreover, the excessive permissiveness of their immigration policies and the resulting exposure of the Swiss and American population to forced integration by foreigners is further aggravated by the fact that the extent of public property in both countries and other high-wage areas is substantial, that tax-funded welfare provisions are high and growing, and foreigners are not excluded, and that, contrary to official pronouncements, even the adherence to free trade policies is anything but perfect. Accordingly, in Switzerland, the United States, and most other high-wage areas, popular protests against immigration policies have grown increasingly louder. It has been the purpose of this chapter not only to make the case for the privatization of public property, domestic laissez-faire, and international free trade, but in particular for the adoption of a restrictive immigration policy. By demonstrating that free trade is inconsistent with both unconditionally or conditionally free immigration and requires instead that migration be subject to the condition of being invited and contractual, it is our hope to contribute to more enlightened future policies in this area. Chapter 9 On Cooperation, Tribe, City and State 1. Ludwig von Mises has explained the evolution of society of human cooperation under the division of labor, as the combined result of two factors. These are first, the fact of differences among men, labor, and or the inequalities of the geographical distribution of the nature-given factors of production, land, and second, the recognition of the fact that work performed under the division of labor is more productive than work performed in self-sufficient isolation. He writes, quote, if, and as far as labor under the division of labor is more productive than isolated labor, and if, and as far as man is able to realize this fact, human action itself tends toward cooperation and association. Man becomes a social being not in sacrificing his own concerns for the sake of a mythical Moloch, society, but in aiming at an improvement in his own welfare. Experience teaches that this condition, higher productivity achieved under division of labor, is present because its cause, the inborn inequality of men and the inequality in the geographical distribution of the natural factors of production is real. Thus, we are in a position to comprehend the course of social evolution. End quote. Several points are worth emphasizing here in order to reach a proper understanding of this fundamental insight of Mises into the nature of society, points which will also help us realize some first preliminary conclusions regarding the role of sex and race in social evolution. First, it is important to recognize that inequalities with respect to labor and or land are a necessary but by no means a sufficient condition for the emergence of human cooperation. If all humans were identical and everyone were equipped with identical natural resources, everyone would produce the same qualities and quantities of goods, and the idea of exchange and cooperation would never enter anyone's mind. However, the existence of inequalities is not enough to bring about cooperation. There are also differences in the animal kingdom, most notably the difference of sex, gender, among members of the same animal species 
as well as the difference between the various species and subspecies, races. Yet, there's no such thing as cooperation among animals. To be sure, there are bees and ants who are referred to as animal societies, but they form societies only in a metaphorical sense. The cooperation between bees and ants is assured purely by biological factors, by innate instincts. They cannot not cooperate as they do, and without some fundamental changes in their biological makeup, the division of labor among them is not in danger of breaking down. In distinct contrast, the cooperation between humans is the outcome of purposeful individual actions of the conscious aiming at the attainment of individual ends. As a result, the division of labor among men is constantly threatened by the possibility of disintegration. Within the animal kingdom, then, the difference between the sexes can only be said to be a factor of attraction, of reproduction and proliferation, whereas the differences of the species and subspecies can be referred to as a factor of repulsion, of separation, or even of fatal antagonism, of evasion, of struggle and annihilation. Moreover, Within the animal kingdom it makes no sense to describe the behavior resulting from sexual attraction as either consensual, love, or non-consensual, rape, nor does it make any sense to speak of the relationship between the members of different species or subspecies as one of hostility and hatred, or of criminal and victim. In the animal kingdom there only exists interaction, which is neither cooperative, social behavior, nor criminal, antisocial behavior. As Mises writes, quote, there is interaction, reciprocal influence, between all parts of the universe, between the wolf and the sheep that he devours, between the germ and the man it kills, between the falling stone and the thing upon which it falls. Society, on the other hand, always involves men acting in cooperation with other men in order to let all participants attain their own ends. End quote. In addition to an inequality of labor and or land, a second requirement must be fulfilled if human cooperation is to evolve. Men, at least two of them, must be capable of recognizing the higher productivity of a division of labor based on the mutual recognition of private property, of the exclusive control of every man over his own body and over his physical appropriations and possessions, as compared to either self-sufficient isolation or aggression, depredation, and domination. That is, there must be a minimum of intelligence or rationality, and men, at least two of them, must have the sufficient moral strength to act on this insight and be willing to forgo immediate gratification for even greater future satisfaction. But for intelligence and conscious will, writes Mises, quote, men would have forever remained deadly foes of one another, irreconcilable rivals in their endeavors to secure a portion of the scarce supply of means of sustenance provided by nature. Each man would have been forced to view all other men as his enemies. His craving for the satisfaction of his own appetites would have brought him into an implacable conflict with all his neighbors. No sympathy could possibly develop under such a state of affairs. End quote. A member of the human race who is completely incapable of understanding the higher productivity of labor performed under a division of labor based on private property is not, properly speaking, a person, a persona, but falls instead in the same moral category as an animal, of either the harmless sort, to be domesticated and employed as a producer or consumer good, or to be enjoyed as a free good, or the wild and dangerous one, to be fought as a pest. On the other hand, there are members of the human species who are capable of understanding the insight, but who lack the moral strength to act accordingly. Such persons are either harmless brutes, living outside of and separated from human society, or they are more or less dangerous criminals. They are persons who knowingly act wrongly, 
and who besides having to be tamed or even physically defeated, must also be punished in proportion to the severity of their crime to make them understand the nature of their wrongdoings and hopefully to teach them a lesson for the future. Human cooperation, society, can only prevail and advance as long as man is capable of subduing, taming, appropriating and cultivating his physical and animalistic surroundings, and as long as he succeeds in suppressing crime, reducing it to a rarity by means of self-defense, property protection and punishment. Rarely has the importance of cognition and rationality for the emergence and maintenance of society been more strongly emphasized than by Mises. He explains that one, quote, may admit that in primitive man the propensity for killing and destroying and the disposition for cruelty were innate. We may also assume that under the conditions of earlier ages the inclination for aggression and murder was favorable to the preservation of life. Man was once a brutal beast, but one must not forget that he was physically a weak animal. He would not have been a match for the big beasts of prey if he had not been equipped with a peculiar weapon, reason. The fact that man is a reasonable being, that he therefore does not yield without inhibitions to every impulse, but arranges his conduct according to reasonable deliberation, must not be called unnatural from a zoological point of view. Rational conduct means that man, in face of the fact that he cannot satisfy all his impulses, desires and appetites, forgoes the satisfaction of those which he considers less urgent. In order not to endanger the working of social cooperation, man is forced to abstain from satisfying those desires whose satisfaction would hinder establishment of societal institutions. There is no doubt that such a renunciation is painful. However, man has made his choice. He has renounced the satisfaction of some desires incompatible with social life and has given priority to the satisfaction of those desires which can be realized only or in a more plentiful way under a system of the division of labor. This decision is not irrevocable and final. The choice of the fathers does not impair the son's freedom to choose. They can reverse the resolution. Every day they can proceed to the transvaluation of values and prefer barbarism to civilization or, as some authors say, the soul to the intellect, myths to reason, and violence to peace. But they must choose. It is impossible to have things incompatible with one another. End quote. 2. As soon as these requirements are fulfilled, however, and as long as man, motivated by the knowledge of the higher physical productivity of a division of labor based on private property, is engaged in mutually beneficial exchanges, the natural forces of attraction arising from the differences in the sexes and the natural forces of repulsion or enmity arising from the differences between and even within the races can be transformed into generally social relations. Sexual attraction can be transformed from copulation to consensual relations, mutual bonds, household, families, love, and affection. Within the frame of social cooperation, writes Mises, quote, there can emerge between members of society feelings of sympathy and friendship and a sense of belonging together. These feelings are the source of man's most delightful and most sublime experiences. They are the most precious adornment of life. They lift the animal species, man, to the heights of a really human existence. However, they are not, as some have asserted, the agents that have brought about social relationships. They are the fruits of social cooperation. They thrive only within its frame. They did not precede the establishment of social relations and are not the seeds from which they spring. End quote. The mutual sexual attraction of male and female, Mises explains further, quote, is inherent in man's animal nature and independent of any thinking and theorizing. 
it is permissible to call it original, vegetative, instinctive, or mysterious. However, neither cohabitation, nor what precedes it and follows, generates social cooperation and societal modes of life. The animals, too, join together in mating, but they have not developed social relations. Family life is not merely a product of sexual intercourse. It is by no means natural and necessary that parents and children live together in the way in which they do in the family. The mating relation need not result in a family organization. The human family is an outcome of thinking, planning, and acting. It is this fact which distinguishes it radically from those animal groups which we call per analogium animal families. End quote. It testifies to the enormous productivity of the family household that no other institution has proven more durable or capable of producing such emotions, and inter- and intra-racial repulsion can be transformed from feelings of enmity or hostility to a preference for cooperating, trading with one another only indirectly, from afar and physically separated and spatially segregated, rather than directly as neighbors and associates. Human cooperation Division of labor based on the one hand on integrated family households and on the other on separated households, villages, tribes, nations, races, etc., wherein man's natural biological attractions and repulsions for and against one another are transformed into a mutually recognized system of spatial, geographical allocation, of physical approximation and integration, or of separation and segregation, and of direct or of indirect contact, exchange and trade, leads to improved standards of living, a growing population, further extensification and intensification of the division of labor, and increasing diversity and differentiation. As a result of this development, and an ever more rapid increase of goods and desires which can be acquired and satisfied only indirectly, professional traders, merchants, and trading centers will emerge. Merchants and cities function as the mediators of the indirect exchanges between territorially separated households and communal associations and thus become the sociological and geographical locus and focus of intertribal or interracial association. It will be within the class of merchants in which racially, ethnically or tribally mixed marriages are relatively most common, and since most people of both reference groups typically disapprove of such alliances, it will be the wealthier members of the merchant class can afford such extravagances. However, even the members of the wealthiest merchant families will be highly circumspect in such endeavors. In order not to endanger their own position as a merchant, great care must be taken that every mixed marriage is, or at least appears to the relevant ethnicities, to be a marriage between equals. Consequently, the racial mixture brought on by the merchant class will more likely than not contribute to genetic luxuration rather than genetic pauperization. In general, Apart from the upper strata of the class of merchants, peaceful racial or ethnic mixing is typically restricted to members of the social upper class, that is, to nobles and aristocrats. Thus, the racially or ethnically least pure families are characteristically the leading royal dynasties. Accordingly, it will be in the big cities as the centers of international trade and commerce where mixed couples and their offspring typically reside, where members of different ethnicities, tribes, Races, even if they do not intermarry, still come into regular direct personal contact with each other. In fact, that they do so is required by the fact that their respective tribesmen back home do not have to deal directly with more or less distasteful strangers, and where the most elaborate and highly developed system of physical and functional integration and segregation will arise. For instance, 
Fernand Brodel has given the following description of the complex pattern of spatial separation and functional integration and the corresponding multiplicity of separate and competing jurisdictions developed in the great trading centers such as Antioch during the heyday of the Islamic civilization from the 8th to the 12th century. At the city center, quote, was the great mosque for the weekly sermon. Nearby was the bazaar, that is, the merchant's quarter with its streets and shops, the souk, and its caravanserais or warehouses, as well as the public baths. Artisans were grouped concentrically, starting from the great mosque, first the makers and sellers of perfumes and incense, then the shops selling fabrics and rugs, the jewelers and food stores, and finally the humblest trades, curriers, cobblers, blacksmiths, potters, saddlers, dyers. Their shops marked the edges of the town. In principle, each of these trades had its location fixed for all time. Similarly, the Magzen, or Princess Quarter, was in principle located on the outskirts of the city, well away from riots or popular revolts. Next to it, and under its protection, was the Mela, or Jewish Quarter. The mosaic was completed by a very great variety of residential districts, divided by race and religion. There were forty-five in Antioch alone. The town was a cluster of different quarters, all living in fear of massacre. So, Western colonists, nowhere, began racial segregation, although they nowhere suppressed it. End quote. It will also be in the big cities where, as the subjective reflection of this complex system of spatial functional allocation, citizens will develop the most highly refined forms of personal and professional conduct, etiquette, and style. It is the city that breeds civilization and civilized life. To maintain law and order within a big city, with its intricate pattern of physical and functional integration and separation, a great variety of jurisdictions, judges, arbitrators and enforcement agencies, in addition to self-defense and private protection, will come into existence. There will be what one might call governance in the city, but there will be no government, state. Incidentally, the much maligned Jewish ghettos, which were characteristic of European cities throughout the Middle Ages, were not indicative of an inferior legal status accorded to Jews or of anti-Jewish discrimination. To the contrary, the ghetto was a place where Jews enjoyed complete self-government and where rabbinical law applied. For a government to arise, it is necessary that one of these judges, arbitrators or enforcement agencies succeed in establishing himself as a monopolist. That is, he must be able to insist that no citizen can choose anyone but him as the judge or arbiter of last resort, and he must successfully suppress any other judge or arbiter from trying to assume the same role, thereby competing against him. More interesting than the question of what a government is, however, are the following. How is it possible that one judge can acquire a judiciary monopoly, given that other judges will naturally oppose any such attempt, and what specifically makes it possible, and what does it imply to establish a monopoly of law and order in a big city that is over a territory with ethnically, tribally, and or racially mixed populations? First, almost by definition it follows that with the establishment of a city government, interracial, tribal, ethnic, and clannish familiar tensions will increase because the monopolist, whoever he is, must be of one ethnic background rather than another, Hence, his being a monopolist will be considered by the citizen of other ethnic backgrounds as an insulting setback, that is, as an act of arbitrary discrimination against the people of another race, tribe, or clan. The delicate balance of peaceful interracial, interethnic, and interfamiliar cooperation, achieved through an intricate system of spatial and functional integration, association, and separation, segregation, will be upset. Second, 
This insight leads directly to the answer as to how a single judge can possibly outmaneuver all others. In brief, to overcome the resistance by competing judges, an aspiring monopolist must shore up added support in public opinion. In an ethnically mixed milieu, this typically means playing the race card. The prospective monopolist must raise their racial, tribal or clannish consciousness among citizens of his own race, tribe, clan, etc., and promise, in return for their support, to be more than an impartial judge in matters relating to one's own race, tribe or clan. That is exactly what citizens of other ethnic backgrounds are afraid of, that is, of being treated with less than impartiality. At this stage in this sociological reconstruction, let us, without further explanation, briefly introduce a few additional steps required to arrive at a realistic, contemporary scenario regarding race, sex, society and state. Naturally, a monopolist will try to maintain his position and possibly even turn it into a hereditary title, that is, become a king. However, accomplishing this within an ethnically or tribally mixed city is a far more difficult task than within a homogenous rural community. Instead, in big cities, governments are far more likely to take on the form of a democratic republic, with open entry into the position of supreme ruler, competing political parties, and popular elections. This statement regarding the characteristically democratic republican rather than monarchical form of government in large commercial cities should not be misinterpreted as a simple empirical historical proposition. Indeed, historically, the formation of governments predates the development of large commercial centers. Most governments had been monarchical or princely governments, and when large commercial cities first arose, the power of kings and princes typically also extended initially to these newly developing urban areas. Instead, the above statement should be interpreted as a sociological proposition concerning the unlikeliness of the endogenous origin of royal or princely rule over large commercial centers with ethnically mixed populations, that is, as an answer to an essentially hypothetical and counterfactual question. See on this Max Weber, who, in Sociologie, Weltgeschichtliche Analysen, Politik, notes that kings and nobles, even if they resided in cities, were nonetheless decidedly not city kings and city nobles. The centers of their power rested outside of cities, in the countryside, and the grip that they held on the great commercial centers was only tenuous. Hence, the first experiments with democratic republican forms of government occurred characteristically in cities, which broke off and gained independence from their predominantly monarchical and rural surroundings. In the course of the political centralization process, the territorial expansion of one government at the expense of another, this big city model of government, then, will become essentially its only form, that of a democratic state exercising a judicial monopoly over a territory with racially and or ethnically widely diverse populations. 3. While the judicial monopoly of governments extends nowadays typically far beyond a single city, and in some cases over almost an entire continent, the consequences for the relations between the races and sexes and spatial approximation and segregation of government, monopoly, can still be best observed in the great cities and their decline from centers of civilization to centers of degeneration and decay. With a central government extending over cities and the countryside, countries, inlanders and foreigners are created. This has no immediate effect on the countryside, where there are no foreigners, members of different ethnicities, races, etc., but in the great trading centers where there are mixed populations, the legal distinction between inlander and foreigner, rather than ethnically or racially distinct private property owners, 
will almost invariably lead to some form of forced exclusion and a reduced level of inter-ethnic cooperation. Moreover, with a central state in place, the physical segregation and separation of city and countryside will be systematically reduced. In order to exercise its judicial monopoly, the central government must be able to access every inlander's private property, and to do so, it must take control of all existing roads and even expand the existing system of roadways. Different households and villages are thus brought into closer contact than they might have preferred, and the physical distance and separation of city and countryside will be significantly diminished. Thus, internally forced integration will be promoted. Naturally, this tendency toward forced integration due to the monopolization of roads and streets will be most pronounced in the cities. This tendency will be further stimulated if, as is typical, the government takes its seat in a city. A popularly elected government cannot help using its judicial monopoly to engage in redistributive policies in favor of its ethnic or racial constituency, which will invariably attract even more of its own tribe's members, and with changes in the government, more members of even more and different tribes will be drawn from the countryside to the capital city to receive either government jobs or handouts. As a result, not only will the capital become relatively oversized, as other cities shrink, at the same time, due to the monopolization of public streets, whereon everyone may proceed wherever he wants, all forms of ethnic, tribal or racial tensions and animosities will be stimulated. Moreover, while interracial, tribal and ethnic marriages were formerly rare and restricted to the upper strata of the merchant class, with the arrival of bureaucrats and bums from various racial, tribal and ethnic backgrounds in the capital city, the frequency of inter-ethnic marriage will increase, and the focus of inter-ethnic sex, even without marriage, will increasingly shift from the upper class of merchants to the lower classes, even to the lowest class of welfare recipients. Rather than genetic luxuration, the consequence is increased genetic pauperization, a tendency furthered by the fact that government welfare support will naturally lead to an increase in the birth rate of welfare recipients relative to the birth rate of other members, in particular of members of the upper class of their tribe or race. As a result of this overproportional growth of low and even underclass people and an increasing number of ethnically, tribally, racially mixed offspring, especially in the lower and lowest social strata, the character of democratic, popular government will gradually change as well. Rather than the race card being essentially the only instrument of politics, politics becomes increasingly class politics. The government rulers can and will no longer rely exclusively on their ethnic, tribal or racial appeal and support, but increasingly they must try to find support across tribal or racial lines by appealing to the universal, not tribal race-specific, feeling of envy and egalitarianism, that is, to social class, the untouchables or the slaves versus the masters, the workers versus the capitalists, the poor versus the rich, etc. For a sociological treatment of this second, democratic or plebeian stage in the development of city government, based on and riven by classes and class conflicts, rather than clans and family conflicts, as during the preceding development stage of partition government, see Max Weber, The City, Chapter 4. In contrast to partition city government, plebeian government, Weber observes importantly, is characterized by, quote, a changed concept of the nature of law. The beginning of legislation paralleled the abolition of patrician rule. Legislation initially took the form of charismatic statues by the Asimnites, governors possessing supreme power for a limited time. But soon the new creation of permanent laws was accepted. In fact, new legislation by the Ecclesia became so usual as to produce a state of continuous flux. 
Soon, a purely secular administration of justice applied to the laws or, in Rome, to the instructions of the magistrate. The creation of laws reached such a fluid state that eventually in Athens the question was directed yearly to the people whether existing laws should be maintained or amended. Thus it became an accepted premise that the law is artificially created and that it should be based upon the approval of those to whom it will apply. End quote. Likewise, in the medieval city-states of Europe, the establishment of rule by the populo had similar consequences. It, too, ground out enormous editions of city laws and codified the common law and court rules, trial law, producing a surplus of statues of all kinds and an excess of officials. Hand in hand with the changed concept of law goes a different political conduct. Quote, the political justice of the populo system, with its system of official espionage, its preference for anonymous accusations, accelerated inquisitorial procedures against magnets, and simplified proof by notoriety, was the democratic counterpart of the Venetian trials of the aristocratic patrician council of ten. Objectively, the popular system was identified by the exclusion of all members of families with a knightly style of life from office, obligating the notables by pledges of good conduct, placing the notable's family under bail for all members, the establishment of a special criminal law for the political offences of the magnates, especially insulting the honour of a member of the populace, the prohibition of a noble's acquiring property bordering on that of a member of the populace without the latter's agreement. Since noble families could be expressly accepted as part of the populace, however, even the offices of the populo were nearly always occupied by noblemen. The increasing admixture of egalitarian class politics to the pre-existing tribal policies leads to even more racial and social tension and hostility and to an even greater proliferation of the low and underclass population. In addition to certain ethnic or tribal groups being driven out of the cities as a result of tribal policies, increasingly also members of the upper classes of all ethnic or tribal groups will leave the city for the suburbs, only to be followed by means of public government transportation by those very people whose behaviours they had tried to escape. With the upper class and the merchants leaving in large numbers, however, one of the last remaining civilizing forces will be weakened, and what is left behind in the cities will represent an increasingly negative selection of the population, of government bureaucrats, who work but no longer live there, and of the low lives and the social outcasts of all tribes and races who live there, yet who increasingly do not work but survive on welfare. Just think of Washington, D.C. When one would think that matters could not possibly become worse, they do. After the race and the class card have been played and done their devastating work, the government turns to the sex and gender card, and racial justice and social justice are complemented by gender justice. The establishment of a government, a judicial monopoly, not only implies that formerly separated jurisdictions, as within ethnically or racially segregated districts, for instance, are forcibly integrated. It implies at the same time that formerly fully integrated jurisdictions, as within households and families, will be forcibly broken down or even dissolved. Rather than regarding intrafamily or household matters, including subjects such as abortion, for instance, as no one else's business to be judged and arbitrated within the family by the head of the household or family members, once a judicial monopoly has been established, its agents, the government, also become and will naturally strive to expand their role as judge and arbiter of last resort in all family matters. To gain popular support for its role, the government, besides playing one tribe, race or social class against another, will likewise promote divisiveness within the family, between the sexes, husbands and wives, and the generations, parents and children. Once again, this will be particularly noticeable in the big cities. Every form of government welfare, the compulsory wealth or income transfer from haves to have-nots, 
lowers the value of a person's membership in an extended family or household system as a social system of mutual cooperation and help and assistance. Marriage loses value. For parents, the value and importance of a good upbringing, education of their own children is reduced. Correspondingly, for children, less value will be attached and less respect paid to their own parents. Owing to the high concentration of welfare recipients in the big cities, family disintegration is already well advanced. In appealing to gender and generation, age as a source of political support, and promoting and enacting sex, gender, and family legislation, invariably, the authority of heads of families and households and the natural intergenerational hierarchy within families is weakened, and the value of a multi-generational family as the basic unit of human society diminished. Indeed, as should be clear, as soon as the government's law and legislation supersedes family law and legislation, including inter-family arrangements in conjunction with marriages, joint family offspring, inheritance, etc., the value and importance of the institution of a family can only be systematically eroded. For what is a family if it cannot even find and provide for its own internal law and order? At the same time, as should be clear as well, but has not been sufficiently noted, from the point of view of the government rulers, their ability to interfere in internal family matters must be regarded as the ultimate prize and the pinnacle of their own power. To exploit tribal or racial resentments or class envy to one's personal advantage is one thing. It's quite another accomplishment to use the quarrels arising within families to break up the entire, generally harmonious system of autonomous families, to uproot individuals from their families, to isolate and atomize them, thereby increasing the state's power over them. Accordingly, as the government's family policy is implemented, divorce, singledom, single parenting and illegitimacy, incidents of parent, spouse and child neglect or abuse, and a variety and frequency of non-traditional lifestyles, homosexuality, lesbianism, communism and occultism, increase as well. Parallel to this development will be a gradual but steady surge in crime and criminal behavior. Under monopolistic auspices, law will invariably be transformed into legislation. As a result of an unending process of income and wealth redistribution in the name of racial, social and or gender justice, the very idea of justice as universal and immutable principles of conduct and cooperation will be eroded and ultimately destroyed. Rather than being conceived of as something pre-existing and to be discovered, law is increasingly considered as government-made law, legislation. Accordingly, not only will legal uncertainty increase, but in reaction, the social rate of time preference will rise. That is, people in general will become more present-oriented and have an increasingly shorter planning horizon. Moral relativism will also be promoted, for if there's no such thing as an ultimate right, then there's also no such thing as an absolute wrong. Indeed, what is right today may be wrong tomorrow and vice versa. Rising time preferences combined with moral relativism then provides the perfect breeding ground for criminals and crimes, a tendency especially evident in the big cities. It is here that the dissolution of families is most advanced, that the greatest concentration of welfare recipients exists, that the process of genetic pauperization has progressed furthest, and that tribal and racial tensions as the outcome of forced integration are most virulent. Rather than centers of civilization, cities have become centers of social disintegration and cesspools of physical and moral decay, corruption, brutishness, and crime. 4. What follows from all of this? Clearly, Western civilization has been on a course of self-destruction for quite some time. Can this course be stopped, and if so, how? 
I wish I could be optimistic, but I'm not so sure that there is sufficient reason for optimism. To be sure, history is ultimately determined by ideas, and ideas can, at least in principle, change almost instantly. But in order for ideas to change, it is not sufficient for people to see that something is wrong. At least a significant number must also be intelligent enough to recognize what it is that is wrong. That is, they must understand the basic principles upon which society, human cooperation, rests, the very principles explained here, and they must have sufficient willpower to act accordingly to this insight. But it is precisely this which one must increasingly doubt. Civilization and culture do have a genetic, biological basis. However, as the result of statism, of forced integration, egalitarianism, welfare policies, and family destruction, the genetic quality of the population has most certainly declined. Indeed, how could it not, when success is systematically punished and failure rewarded? Whether intended or not, the welfare state promotes the proliferation of intellectually and morally inferior people, and the results would be even worse were it not for the fact that crime rates are particularly high among these people and that they tend to eliminate each other more frequently. However, even if all of this does not give much hope for the future, all is not lost. There still remain some pockets of civilization and culture, not in the cities and metropolitan areas, but in the heartland, countryside. In order to preserve these, several requirements must be fulfilled. The state, a judicial monopoly, must be recognized as a source of decivilization. States do not create law and order, they destroy it. Families and households must be recognized as the source of civilization. It is essential that the heads of families and households reassert their ultimate authority as judge in all internal family affairs. Households must be declared extraterritorial territory, like foreign embassies. Voluntary spatial segregation and discrimination must be recognized as not bad, but good things that facilitate peaceful cooperation between different ethnic and racial groups. Welfare must be recognized as a matter exclusively of families and voluntary charity and state welfare is nothing but the subsidization of irresponsibility. Chapter 10 On Conservatism and Libertarianism 1. Let me begin by discussing two possible meanings of the term conservative. The first meaning is to refer to someone as conservative who generally supports the status quo, that is, a person who wants to conserve whatever laws, rules, regulations, moral and behavioral codes happen to exist at any given point in time. Because different laws, rules and political institutions are in place at different times and or different locations, what the conservative supports depends on and changes with place and time. To be a conservative means nothing specific at all, except to like the existing order, whatever that may be. The first meaning can be discarded then. To state this is not to claim that no one has ever adopted this meaning of conservatism. In fact, a prominent example of a conservative who comes very close to accepting the definition rejected here as useless is Michael Oakeshott. For Oakeshott, conservatism is, quote, not a creed or a doctrine, but a disposition. It is a propensity to use and to enjoy what is available rather than to wish for or to look for something else. To delight in what is present rather than what was or what may be, it is to prefer the tried to the untried, fact to mystery, the actual to the possible, the limited to the unbounded, the near to the distant, the sufficient to the superabundant, the convenient to the perfect, present laughter to utopian bliss. End quote. The term conservative must have a different meaning. 
What it means, and possibly only can mean, is this. Conservative refers to someone who believes in the existence of a natural order, a natural state of affairs which corresponds to the nature of things, of nature and man. This natural order is and can be disturbed by accidents and anomalies, by earthquakes and hurricanes, diseases, pests, monsters and beasts, by two-headed horses or four-legged humans, cripples and idiots, and by war, conquest and tyranny. But it is not difficult to distinguish the normal from the anomaly, the essential from the accidental. A little bit of abstraction removes all the clutter and enables nearly everyone to see what is and what is not natural and in accordance with the nature of things. Moreover, the natural is at the same time the most enduring state of affairs. The natural order is ancient and forever the same. Only anomalies and accidents undergo change. Hence, it can be recognized by us everywhere and at all times. Conservative refers to someone who recognizes the old and natural through the noise of anomalies and accidents and who defends, supports, and helps to preserve it against the temporary and anomalous. Within the realm of the humanities, including the social sciences, a conservative recognizes families, fathers, mothers, children, grandchildren, and households based on private property and in cooperation with a community of other households as the most fundamental, natural, essential, ancient, and indispensable social units. Moreover, the family household also represents the model of the social order at large. Just as a hierarchical order exists in a family, so is there a hierarchical order within a community of families, of apprentices, servants and masters, vassals, knights, lords, overlords, and even kings tied together by an elaborate and intricate system of kinship relations, and of children, parents, priests, bishops, cardinals, patriarchs or popes, and finally the transcendent God. Of the two layers of authority, the earthly physical power of parents, lords and kings is naturally subordinate and subject to control by the ultimate spiritual intellectual authority of fathers, priests, bishops, and ultimately God. Conservatives, or more specifically Western Greco-Christian conservatives, if they stand for anything, stand for and want to preserve the family and the social hierarchies and layers of material as well as spiritual intellectual authority based on and growing out of family bonds and kinship relations. In Conservatism, Dream and Reality, Robert Nisbet writes, Naturally, the Conservatives, in their appeal to tradition, were not endorsing each and every idea or thing handed down from the past. The philosophy of traditionalism is, like all such philosophies, selective. A salutary tradition must come from the past, but it must also be desirable in itself. The two central concepts in conservative philosophy, Nisbet goes on to explain, are property and voluntarily acknowledged authority, which in turn imply both liberty and order. Property in conservative philosophy is more than external appendage to man, mere inanimate servant of human need. It is above anything else in civilization, the very condition of man's humanness, his superiority over the entire natural world. Much of the conservative veneration for the family lies in its historic affinity between family and property. It is usually the rule for any family to seek as much advantage for its children and other members as is possible. There is no issue over which conservative has fought liberal and socialist as strenuously as on threats through law to loosen property from family grasp by taxation or by any other form of redistribution. Almost everything about the medieval law of family and marriage including the stringent emphasis upon chastity of the female, 
The terrible penalty that could be exerted against adultery by the wife springs from a nearly absolute reverence for property, for legitimate heritability of property. End quote. Similarly, the conservative emphasis on authority and social rank orders and the affinity to medieval pre-Reformation Europe as a model of social organization is rooted in the primacy of family and property. There is, explains Nesbitt, quote, no principle more basic to the conservative philosophy than that of the inherent and absolute incompatibility between liberty and equality. Such incompatibility springs from the contrary objectives of the two values. The abiding purpose of liberty is its protection of individual and family property, a word used in its widest sense to include the immaterial as well as the material in life. The inherent objective of equality, on the other hand, is that of some kind of redistribution or leveling of the unequally shared material and immaterial values of a community. Moreover, individual strengths of mind and body being different from birth, all efforts to compensate through law and government for this diversity of strengths can only cripple the liberties of those involved, especially the liberties of the strongest and the most brilliant. End quote. For the conservative, then, the preservation of property and liberty requires the existence of a natural elite or aristocracy, and he is accordingly strictly opposed to democracy. Indeed, notes Nisbet, quote, for most conservatives, socialism appeared as an almost necessary emergent of democracy, and totalitarianism an almost equally necessary product of social democracy. End quote. 2. Let me now come to an evaluation of contemporary conservatism and then go on to explain why conservatives today must be anti-statist libertarians and, equally important, why libertarians must be conservatives. Modern conservatism in the United States and Europe is confused and distorted. This confusion is largely due to democracy. Under the influence of representative democracy and with the transformation of the United States and Europe into mass democracies from World War I, Conservatism was transformed from an anti-egalitarian, aristocratic, anti-statist ideological force into a movement of culturally conservative statists, the right wing of the socialists and social democrats. Most self-proclaimed contemporary conservatives are concerned, as they should be, about the decay of families, divorce, illegitimacy, loss of authority, multiculturalism, alternative lifestyles, social disintegration, sex and crime. All of these phenomena represent anomalies and scandalous deviations from the natural order. A conservative must indeed be opposed to all of these developments and try to restore normalcy. However, most contemporary conservatives, at least most of the spokesmen of the conservative establishment, either do not recognize that their goal of restoring normalcy requires the most drastic, even revolutionary anti-statist social changes, or, if they know about this, they are members of the fifth column engaged in destroying conservatism from inside, and hence must be regarded as evil. That this is largely true for the so-called neoconservatives does not require further explanation here. Indeed, as far as their leaders are concerned, one suspects that most of them are of the latter, evil kind. They are not truly concerned about cultural matters, but recognize that they must play the cultural conservatism card so as not to lose power and promote their entirely different goal of global social democracy. The fundamental statist character of American neoconservatism is best summarized by a statement of one of its leading intellectual champions, the former Trotskyite Irvin Kristol. Quote, the basic principle behind a conservative welfare state ought to be a simple one. Wherever possible, people should be allowed to keep their own money rather than having it transferred via taxes to the state on the condition that they put it to certain defined uses. End quote. 
This view is essentially identical to that held by modern post-Marxist European Social Democrats. Thus, Germany's Social Democratic Party, SPD, for instance, in its Godesberg program of 1959, adopted as its core motto the slogan, as much market as possible, as much state as necessary. A second, somewhat older, but nowadays almost indistinguishable branch of contemporary American conservatism is represented by the new, post-World War II conservatism launched and promoted with the assistance of the CIA by William Buckley and his National Review. Whereas the old, pre-World War II American conservatism had been characterized by decidedly anti-interventionist, isolationist foreign policy views, the trademark of Buckley's new conservatism has been its rabid militarism and interventionist foreign policy. In an article, A Young Republican's View, published three years before the launching of his National Review in Commonweal on January 25, 1952, Buckley thus summarized what would become the new conservative credo. In light of the threat posed by the Soviet Union, quote, we, new conservatives, have to accept big government for the duration, for neither an offensive nor a defensive war can be waged except through the instrument of a totalitarian bureaucracy within our shores, end quote. Conservatives, Buckley wrote, were duty-bound to promote, quote, the extensive and productive tax laws that are needed to support a vigorous anti-communist foreign policy, end quote, as well as the, quote, large armies and air forces, atomic energy, central intelligence, war production boards, and the attendant centralization of power in Washington, end quote. Not surprisingly, since the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, essentially nothing in this philosophy has changed. Today, the continuation and preservation of the American welfare-warfare state is simply excused and promoted by new and neoconservatives alike with reference to other foreign enemies and dangers, China, Islamic fundamentalism, Saddam Hussein, rogue states, and or the threat of global terrorism. End quote. Regarding this new Buckleyad conservatism, Robert Nesbitt has noted that of, quote, or the misascription of the word conservative, the most amusing, in an historical light is surely the application of conservative to the last named, that is, the budget-expanding enthusiast for great increases in military expenditures. For in America throughout the 20th century, and including four substantial wars abroad, conservatives have been steadfastly the voices of non-inflationary military budgets, and an emphasis on trade in the world instead of American nationalism. In the two world wars, in Korea and in Vietnam, the leaders of American entry into the war were such renowned liberal progressives as Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy. In all four episodes, conservatives, both in the national government and in the rank and file, were largely hostile to intervention, were isolationists indeed, end quote. And on Ronald Reagan in particular, during whose administration the new and new conservative movement were fused and amalgamated, Nisbet has noted that Reagan's, quote, Passion for crusade, moral and military, is scarcely American conservative, end quote. However, it is also true of many conservatives who are genuinely concerned about family disintegration or dysfunction and cultural rot. I'm thinking here in particular of the conservatism represented by Patrick Buchanan and his movement. Buchanan's conservatism is by no means as different from that of the conservative Republican Party establishment as he and his followers fancy themselves. In one decisive respect, their brand of conservatism is in full agreement with that of the conservative establishment. Both are statists. They differ over what exactly needs to be done to restore normalcy to the U.S., but they agree that it must be done by the state. There is not a trace of principled anti-statism in either. 
Let me illustrate by quoting Samuel Francis, one of the leading theoreticians and strategists of the Buchanite movement. After deploring, quote-unquote, anti-white and, quote-unquote, anti-Western propaganda, quote, militant secularism, acquisitive egoism, economic and political globalism, demographic inundation, and unchecked state centralism, unquote, he expounds on a new spirit of, quote-unquote, America first, which, quote, implies not only putting national interests over those of other nations and abstractions, like world leadership, global harmony, and the new world order, but also giving priority to the nation over the gratification of individual and subnational interests, end quote. So far, so good. But how does he propose to fix the problem of moral degeneration and cultural rot? Those parts of the federal leviathan responsible for the proliferation of moral and cultural pollution, such as the Department of Education, the National Endowment of the Arts, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the federal judiciary should be closed or cut down to size. But there is no opposition against the state's involvement in educational matters. There is no recognition that the natural order in education means that the state has nothing to do with it. Education is entirely a family matter. Buchanan and his intellectual allies want to abolish the federal government's control over educational matters and return such control to the level of states, or, better still, local government. However, new conservatives and most of the leaders of the so-called Christian right and the quote-unquote moral majority simply desire, far worse from a genuinely conservative point of view, the replacement of the current left liberal elite in charge of national education by another one, that is, themselves. Quote, from Burke on, unquote, Robert Nisbet has criticized this posture. Quote, it has been a conservative precept and a sociological principle since Auguste Comte that the surest way of weakening the family or any vital social group is for the government to assume and then monopolize the family's historic functions. Unquote. In contrast, much of the contemporary American right, quote, is less interested in Burkean immunities from government power than it is in putting a maximum of governmental power in the hands of those who can be trusted. It is control of power, not diminution of power, that ranks high. Unquote. From the traditional conservative point of view, it is fatuous to use the family, as evangelical crusaders regularly do, as the justification for the tireless crusades to ban abortion categorically, to bring the Department of Justice in on every baby doe, to mandate by constitution the imposition of quote-unquote voluntary prayers in the public schools, and so on. Moreover, there is no recognition that moral degeneracy and cultural rot have deeper causes and cannot simply be cured by state-imposed curriculum changes or exhortations and declamations. To the contrary, Francis proposes that the cultural turnaround, the restoration of normalcy, can be achieved without the fundamental change in the structure of the modern welfare state. Indeed, Buchanan and his ideologues explicitly defend the three core institutions of the welfare state, Social Security, Medicare, and unemployment subsidies. They even want to expand the quote-unquote social responsibilities of the state by assigning to it the task of quote-unquote protecting, by means of national import and export restrictions, American jobs, especially in industries of national concern, and quote, insulate the wages of U.S. workers from foreign laborers who must work for a dollar an hour or less. Unquote. In fact, Buchananites freely admit that they are statists. They detest and ridicule capitalism, let's say fair, free markets and trade, wealth, elites and nobility, and they advocate a new populist, indeed proletarian, conservatism, which amalgamate social and cultural conservatism and social or socialist economics. Thus continues Francis, quote, While the left could win middle Americans through its economic measures, 
It lost them through its social and cultural radicalism. And while the right could attract Middle Americans through appeals to law and order and defense of sexual normality, conventional morals and religion, traditional social institutions and invocations of nationalism and patriotism, it lost Middle Americans when it rehearsed its old bourgeois economic formulas, end quote. Hence, it is necessary to combine the economic policies of the left and the nationalism and cultural conservatism of the right to create, quote, a new identity synthesizing both the economic interests and cultural national loyalties of the proletarianized middle class in a separate and unified political movement, end quote. For obvious reasons, this doctrine is not so named, but there is a term for this type of conservatism. It is called social nationalism or national socialism. I will not concern myself here with the question whether or not Buchanan's conservatism has mass appeal and whether or not its diagnosis of American politics is sociologically correct. I doubt that this is the case, and certainly Buchanan's fate during the 1995 and 2000 Republican presidential primaries does not indicate otherwise. Rather, I want to address the more fundamental questions. Assuming that it does have such appeal, that is, Assuming that cultural conservatism and social socialist economics can be psychologically combined, that is, that people can hold both of these views simultaneously without cognitive dissonance, can they also be effectively and practically, economically and praxeologically combined? Is it possible to maintain the current level of economic socialism, social security, etc., and reach the goal of restoring cultural normalcy, natural families and normal rules of conduct? Buchanan and his theoreticians do not feel the need to raise this question because they believe politics to be solely a matter of will and power. They do not believe in such things as economic laws. If only people want something and they are given the power to implement their will, everything can be achieved. The quote-unquote dead Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, to whom Buchanan referred contemptuously during his campaign, characterized his belief as quote-unquote historicism, the intellectual posture of the German Katheder-Socialisten, the academic socialist of the chair, who justified any and all statist measures. But historicist content and ignorance of economics does not alter the fact that inexorable economic laws exist. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, for instance, or what you consume now cannot be consumed again in the future, or producing more of one good requires producing less of another. No wishful thinker can make such laws go away. To believe otherwise can only result in practical failure. In fact, noted Mises, quote, economic history is a long record of government policies that failed because they were designed with a bold disregard for the laws of economics, unquote. Princes and democratic majorities, writes Mises leading directly up to this verdict, quote, are drunk with power. They must reluctantly admit that they are subject to the laws of nature, but they reject the very notion of economic law. Are they not the supreme legislators? Don't they have the power to crush every opponent? No warlord is prone to acknowledge any limit other than those imposed on him by a superior armed force. Servile scribblers are always ready to foster such complacency by expounding the appropriate doctrines. They call their garbled presumptions historical economics. End quote. In light of elementary and immutable economic laws, the Buchanite program of social nationalism is just another bold but impossible dream. No wishful thinking can alter the fact that maintaining the core institutions of the present welfare state and wanting to return to traditional families, norms, conduct, and culture are incompatible goals. You can have one, socialism, welfare, or the other, traditional morals, but you cannot have both, 
for social nationalist economics, the pillar of the current welfare system Buchanan wants to leave untouched, is the very cause of cultural and social anomalies. In order to clarify this, it is only necessary to recall one of the most fundamental laws of economics, which says that all compulsory wealth or income redistribution, regardless of the criteria on which it is based, involves taking from some, the havers of something, and giving it to others, the non-havers of something. Accordingly, the incentive to be a haver is reduced, and the incentive to be a non-haver increased. What the haver has is characteristically something considered good, and what the non-haver does not have is something bad or a deficiency. Indeed, this is the very idea underlying any redistribution. Some have too much good stuff, and others not enough. The result of every redistribution is that one will thereby produce less good and increasingly more bad, less perfection and more deficiencies. By subsidizing with tax funds, with funds taken from others, people who are poor, bad, more poverty will be created. By subsidizing people because they are unemployed, bad, more unemployment will be created. By subsidizing unwed mothers, bad, there will be more unwed mothers and more illegitimate births, etc. Obviously, this basic insight applies to the entire system of so-called social security that has been implemented in Western Europe from the 1880s onward and the US since the 1930s of compulsory government insurance against old age, illness, occupational injury, unemployment, indigence, etc. In conjunction with the even older compulsory system of public education, these institutions and practices amount to a massive attack on the institution of the family and personal responsibility. By relieving individuals of the obligation to provide for their own income, health, safety, old age and children's education, the range and temporal horizon of private provision is reduced and the value of marriage, family, children and kinship relations is lowered. Irresponsibility, short-sightedness, negligence, illness and even destructionism, bads, are promoted and responsibility, far-sightedness, diligence, health and conservatism, goods, are punished. The compulsory old age insurance system in particular, by which retirees, the old, are subsidized from taxes imposed on current income earners, the young, has systematically weakened the natural intergenerational bond between parents, grandparents, and children. The old need no longer rely on the assistance of their children if they have made no provision for their own old age, and the young, with typically less accumulated wealth, must support the old with typically more accumulated wealth rather than the other way around, as is typical within families. Consequently, not only do people want to have fewer children, and indeed birth rates have fallen in half since the onset of modern social security welfare policies, but also the respect which the young traditionally accorded to their elders is diminished, and all indicators of family disintegration and malfunctioning, such as rates of divorce, illegitimacy, child abuse, parent abuse, spouse abuse, single parenting, singledom, alternative lifestyles and abortion, have increased. Moreover, with the socialization of the healthcare system through institutions such as Medicaid and Medicare and regulation of the insurance industry by restricting an insurance right of refusal to exclude any individual risk as uninsurable and discriminate freely according to actuarial methods between different group risks, a monstrous machinery of wealth and income redistribution at the expense of responsible individuals and low-risk groups in favor of irresponsible actors and high-risk groups has been put in motion. Subsidies for the ill unhealthy and disabled breed illness, disease and disability and weaken the desire to work for a living and to lead healthy lives. One can do no better than quote the quote-unquote dead Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises once more. Quote, 
Being ill is not a phenomenon independent of conscious will. A man's efficiency is not merely a result of his physical condition. It depends largely on his mind and will. The destructionist aspect of accident and health insurance lies above all in the fact that such institutions promote accident and illness, hinder recovery, and very often create or at any rate intensify and lengthen the functional disorders which follow illness or accident. To feel healthy is quite different from being healthy in the medical sense. By weakening or completely destroying the will to be well and able to work, social insurance creates illness and inability to work. It produces the habit of complaining, which is in itself a neurosis, a neurosis of other kinds. As a social institution, it makes a people sick bodily and mentally, or at least helps them multiply, lengthen, and intensify disease. Social insurance has thus made the neurosis of the insured a dangerous public disease. Should the institution be extended and developed, the disease will spread. No reform can be of any assistance. We cannot weaken or destroy the will to health without producing illness. End quote. I do not wish to explain here the economic nonsense of Buchanan's and his theoreticians' even further-reaching idea of protectionist policies of protecting American wages. If they were right, their argument in favor of economic protection would amount to an indictment of all trade and a defense of the thesis that everyone, each family, would be better off if he, it, never traded with anyone else. Certainly, in this case, no one could ever lose his job and unemployment due to unfair competition would be reduced to zero. Yet, such a full employment society would not be prosperous and strong. It would be composed of people, families, who, despite working from dawn to dusk, would be condemned to poverty and starvation. Buchanan's international protectionism, while less destructive than a policy of interpersonal or interregional protectionism, would result in precisely the same effect. This is not conservatism. Conservatives want families to be prosperous and strong. This is economic destructionism. In any case, what should be clear by now is that most, if not all, of the moral degeneration and cultural rot, the signs of decivilization all around us, are the inescapable and unavoidable results of the welfare state and its core institutions. Classical, old-style conservatives knew this, and they vigorously opposed public education and social security. They knew that states everywhere were intent upon breaking down and ultimately destroying families and the institutions at layers and hierarchies of authority that are the natural outgrowth of family-based communities in order to increase and strengthen their own power. From the conservative point of view, writes Robert Nisbet, quote, the abolition or sharp curtailment of intermediate associations in the social order spelled the creation of the atomized masses on the one hand and, on the other, increasingly centralized forms of political power, end quote. During the Middle Ages, Nisbet explains elsewhere, quoting Pollard's study of Woolsey, power, quote, was dilute, not because it was distributed in many hands, but because it was derived from many independent sources. There were the liberties of the church, based on law superior to that of the king. There was the law of nature, graven in the hearts of men and not to be erased by royal writs. And there was the prescription of immemorial local and feudal custom, stereotyping a variety of jurisdictions and impeding the operation of a single will, unquote. In distinct contrast, quote, the modern state is monistic. Its authority extends directly to all individuals within its boundaries. So-called diplomatic immunities are but the last manifestation of a larger complex of immunities which once involved a large number of internal, religious, economic, and kinship authorities. For administrative purposes, the state may deploy into provinces, departments, districts, or states, just as the army divides into regiments and battalions. 
but like the army, the modern state is based upon a residual unity of power. This extraordinary unity of relationship in the contemporary state, together with its massive accumulation of effective functions, makes the control of the state the greatest single goal or prize in modern struggles for power. Increasingly, the objectives of economic and other interest associations become not so much the preservation of favoured immunities from the state as the capturing or directing of the political power itself. End quote. They knew that in order to do so, states would have to take advantage of the natural rebellion of the adolescent, juvenile, against parental authority. And they knew that socialized education and socialized responsibility were the means of bringing about this goal. Social education and social security provide an opening for the rebellious youth to escape parental authority to get away with continuous misbehavior. Old conservatives knew that these policies would emancipate the individual from the discipline imposed by family and community life only to subject it instead to the direct and immediate control of the state. Furthermore, they knew, or at least had a hunch, that this would lead to a systematic infantilization of society, a regression, emotionally and mentally, from adulthood to adolescence or childhood. In contrast, Buchanan's populist proletarian conservatism, social nationalism, shows complete ignorance of all of this. Combining cultural conservatism and welfare statism is impossible, and hence economic nonsense. Welfare statism, social security in any way, shape or form, breeds moral and cultural rot and degeneration. Thus, if one is indeed concerned about America's moral decay and wants to restore normalcy to society and culture, one must oppose all aspects of the modern social welfare state. A return to normalcy requires no less than the complete elimination of the present social security system of unemployment insurance, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, public education, etc., and thus the near-complete dissolution and deconstruction of the current state apparatus and government power. If one is ever to restore normalcy, government funds and power must dwindle to or even fall below their 19th century levels. Hence, true conservatives must be hard-line libertarians, anti-statists. Buchanan's conservatism is false. It wants a return to traditional morality but at the same time advocates keeping the very institutions in place that are responsible for the perversion and destruction of traditional morals. 3. Most contemporary conservatives, then, especially among the media darlings, are not conservatives, but socialists, either of the international sort, the new and neoconservative warfare welfare statists and global social democrats, or of the nationalist variety, the Buchanite populists. Genuine conservatives must be opposed to both. In order to restore social and cultural normalcy, true conservatives can only be radical libertarians, and they must demand the demolition, as a moral and economic perversion, of the entire structure of social security. If conservatives must be libertarians, why must libertarians be conservatives? If conservatives must learn from libertarians, must libertarians also learn from conservatives? First, a few terminological clarifications are in order. The term libertarianism, as employed here, is a 20th century phenomenon, or more accurately, a post-World War II phenomenon, with intellectual roots in both classical, 18th and 19th century liberalism, and even older natural law philosophy. It is a product of modern, enlightenment, rationalism. Culminating in the work of Murray and Rothbard, the fountainhead of the modern libertarian movement, and in particular his Ethics of Liberty, libertarianism is a rational system of ethics, law. Working within a tradition of classical political philosophy of Hobbes, Grotius, Pufendorf, Locke, and Spencer, 
and employing the same ancient analytical, conceptual tools and logical apparatus as they do, libertarianism, Rothbardianism, is a systematic law code derived by means of logical deduction from a single principle, the validity of which, and this is what makes it an ultimate principle, that is an ethical axiom, and a libertarian law code and axiomatic deductive theory of justice cannot be disputed without falling prey to logical, practical, praxeological, or performative contradictions, that is, without implicitly affirming what one explicitly denies. This axiom is the ancient principle of original appropriation, ownership of scarce resources, the right of an exclusive control over scarce resources, private property, is acquired through an act of original appropriation, by which resources are taken out of a state of nature and put into a state of civilization. If this were not so, no one could ever begin to act, do or propose anything, hence any other principle is praxeologically impossible and argumentatively indefensible. From the principle of original appropriation, the first-use-first-own principle, rules concerning the transformation and the transfer exchange of originally appropriated resources are derived, and all of ethics, law, including the principles of punishment, is then reconstructed in terms of a theory of property rights. All human rights are property rights, and all human rights violations are property rights violations. The upshot of this libertarian theory of justice is well known in these circles. The state, according to the most influential strand of libertarian theory, the Rothbardian one, is an outlaw organization, and the only social order that is just is a system of private property anarchy. I do not want to further analyze or defend the libertarian theory of justice at this point. Let me only confess that I believe the theory to be true, indeed to be irrefutably true. Briefly, two central arguments have been advanced in defense of this claim. The first, initially outlined by Rothbard, proceeds by an argumentum a contrario. If, contrary to the principle of first or original appropriation, a person A were not considered the owner of his visibly, demonstrably, and intersubjectively, ascertainably appropriated body and the standing room and places originally, prior to everyone else, appropriated through him by means of his body, then only two alternative arrangements exist. Either another, later coming person B, must be recognized as the owner of A's body and the places originally appropriated by A, or both A and B must be considered equal co-owners of all bodies and places. The third conceivable alternative that no one should own any body and originally appropriated place can be ruled out as an impossibility. Acting requires a body and standing room, and we cannot not act. Hence, to adopt this alternative would imply the instant death of all mankind. In the first case, A would be reduced to the rank of B's slave and subject of exploitation. B is the owner of the body and places originally appropriated by A, but A, in turn, is not the owner of the body and places so appropriated by B. Under this ruling, two categorically distinct classes of persons are constituted, slaves or untermenschen, such as A, and masters or übermenschen, such as B, to whom different laws apply. Hence, while such a ruling is certainly possible, it must be discarded from the outset as a human ethic, equally and universally applicable for everyone qua human being, rational animal. For a rule to aspire to the rank of a law, a just rule, it is necessary that it apply equally and universally to everyone. The rule under consideration manifestly does not fulfill this universalization requirement. Alternatively, in the second case of universal and equal co-ownership, the universalization requirement is apparently fulfilled. However, this alternative suffers from another, even more severe deficiency, because if it were adopted, all of mankind would perish immediately, 
for every action of a person requires the use of scarce means, at least his body and its standing room. However, if all goods were co-owned by everyone, then no one at any time or place would be allowed to do anything unless he had previously secured everyone else's consent to do so. Yet how could anyone grant such consent if he were not the exclusive owner of his own body, including its vocal cords, by means of which this consent would be expressed? Indeed, he would first need others' consent in order to be allowed to express his own, but these others could not give their consent without first having his, etc. Thus only the first alternative, the principle of original appropriation, is left. It fulfills the universalization requirement, and it is praxeologically possible. The second argument, first advanced by this author, and yielding essentially the same conclusion, has the form of an impossibility theorem. The theorem proceeds from a logical reconstruction of the necessary conditions, Bedingungen der Möglichkeit, of ethical problems, and an exact definition and delineation of the purpose of ethics. First, for ethical problems to rise, conflict between separate and independent agents must exist, or must at least be possible, and a conflict can only emerge in turn with respect to scarce means or economic goods. A conflict is possible neither with respect to superabundant or free goods, such as, under normal circumstances, the air that we breathe, nor with respect to scarce but non-appropriable goods, such as the sun or the clouds, that is, the conditions rather than the means of human action. Conflict is possible only with respect to controllable, appropriable means, such as a specific piece of land, tree or cave, situated in a specific and unique spatial-temporal relation vis-à-vis -vis the sun and or the rain clouds. Hence, the task of ethics is to propose rules regarding the proper versus the improper use of scarce means. That is, ethics concerns the assignment of rights of exclusive control over scarce goods, that is, property rights, in order to rule out conflict. Conflict, however, is not a sufficient prerequisite for ethical problems, for one can come into conflict also with a gorilla or a mosquito, for instance, yet such conflicts do not give rise to ethical problems. Gorillas and mosquitoes pose merely a technical problem. We must learn how to successfully manage and control the movements of gorillas and mosquitoes, just as we must learn to manage and control the inanimate objects of our environment. Only if both parties to a conflict are capable of propositional exchange, that is, argumentation, can one speak of an ethical problem. That is, only if the gorilla and or the mosquito could, in principle, pause in their conflictuous activity and express yes or no, that is, present an argument, would one owe them an answer. The impossibility theorem proceeds from this proposition in clarifying first its axiomatic status. No one can deny, without falling into performative contradictions, that the common rationality as displayed by the ability to engage in propositional exchange constitutes a necessary condition for ethical problems because this denial would itself have to be presented in the form of a proposition. Even an ethical relativist who admits the existence of ethical questions but denies that there are any valid answers cannot deny the validity of this proposition, which, accordingly, has been referred to also as the a priori of argumentation. Second, it is pointed out that everything that must be presupposed by argumentation cannot in turn be argumentatively disputed without getting entangled in a performative contradiction, and that among such presuppositions there exist not only logical ones, such as the laws of propositional logic, for instance, the law of identity, but also praxeological ones. Argumentation is not just free-floating propositions, but always involves also at least two distinct arguers, a proponent and an opponent, that is, argumentation is a subcategory of human action. Third, it is then shown that the mutual recognition of the principle of original appropriation, 
by both proponent and opponent constitutes a praxeological presupposition of argumentation. No one can propose anything and expect his opponent to convince himself of the validity of this proposition or else deny it and propose something else unless his and his opponent's right to exclusive control over their own originally appropriated body, brain, vocal cords, etc., and its respective standing room were already presupposed and assumed as valid. Finally, if the recognition of the principle of original appropriation forms the praxeological presupposition of argumentation, then it is impossible to provide a propositional justification for any other ethical principle without running thereby into performative contradictions. Rather, I want to turn to the question of the relationship between libertarianism and conservatism, the belief in a natural social order based and centered on families. Some superficial commentators, mostly from the conservative side, such as Russell Kirk, have characterized libertarianism and conservatism as incompatible, hostile, or even antagonistic ideologies. In fact, this view is entirely mistaken. The relationship between libertarianism and conservatism is one of praxeological compatibility, sociological complementarity, and reciprocal reinforcement. In order to explain this, let me first point out that most, though not all, leading libertarian thinkers were, as a matter of empirical fact, social-cultural conservatives, defenders of traditional bourgeois morals and manners. Most notably, Murray Rothbard, the single most important and influential libertarian thinker, was an outspoken cultural conservative. So was Rothbard's most important teacher, Ludwig von Mises. Ayn Rand, another major influence on contemporary libertarianism, is a different matter, of course. While this does not prove much, it does prove only that libertarianism and conservatism can be psychologically reconciled. It is indicative of a substantive affinity between the two doctrines. It is not difficult to recognize that the conservative and the libertarian views of society are perfectly compatible, congruent. To be sure, their methods are distinctly different. One is, or appears to be, empiristic, sociological and descriptive, and the other rationalistic, philosophical, logical and constructivist. This difference notwithstanding, both agree in one fundamental respect, however. Conservatives are convinced that the natural and normal is old and widespread, and thus can be discerned always and everywhere. Similarly, libertarians are convinced that the principles of justice are eternally and universally valid, and hence must have been essentially known to mankind since its very beginnings. That is, the libertarian ethic is not new and revolutionary, but old and conservative. Even primitives and children are capable of grasping the validity of the principle of original appropriation, and most people usually recognize it as an unquestionable matter of fact. Moreover, as far as the object on which conservatives and libertarians focus is concerned, on the one hand families, kinship relations, communities, authority and social hierarchy, and on the other hand property and its appropriation, transformation and transfer, it should be clear that while they do not refer to identical entities, they still speak about different aspects of one and the same object, human actors and social cooperation. Extensively, that is, their realm of inquiry, frame of reference, is identical. Families, authority, communities, and social ranks are the empirical sociological concretization of the abstract philosophical praxeological categories and concepts of property, production, exchange, and contract. Property and property relations do not exist apart from families and kinship relations. The latter shape and determine the specific form and configuration of property and property relations, while they are at the same time constrained by the universal and eternal laws of scarcity and property. In fact, as we have already seen, families considered normal by conservative standards are household families, 
and the family disintegration and moral and cultural decay which contemporary conservatives deplore is largely the result of the erosion and destruction of households, estates, as the economic basis of families by the modern welfare state. Thus, the libertarian theory of justice can actually provide conservatism with a more precise definition and a more rigorous moral defense of its own end, the return to civilization in the form of moral and cultural normalcy, than conservatism itself could ever offer. In doing so, it can further sharpen and strengthen conservatism's traditional anti-statist outlook. 4. While the intellectual creators of modern libertarianism were cultural conservatives, and while the libertarian doctrine is fully compatible and congruent with the conservative worldview, and does not, as some conservative critics claim, entail an quote-unquote atomistic individualism and quote-unquote acquisitive egoism corrupted by modern welfare state, the libertarian movement has undergone a significant transformation. To a large extent, and completely so in the eyes of the media and the public, it has become a movement that combines radical anti-statism and market economics with cultural leftism, counter- and multiculturalism, and personal hedonism. That is, it is the exact opposite of the Buchanite program of culturally conservative socialism, countercultural capitalism. Earlier it was noted that the Buchanite program of socialist nationalism does not seem to have much mass appeal, at least not in the United States. This is true to an even larger extent for the libertarian attempt to synthesize market economics with counter- and multiculturalism. Yet, as was the case with conservatism before, in this case, too, my central concern is not about mass appeal and whether or not certain ideas can be psychologically combined and integrated, but whether or not these ideas can be combined practically and effectively. It is my plan to show that they cannot, and that much of contemporary libertarianism is false, counterproductive libertarianism, much like Buchanan's conservatism is false and counterproductive. That much of modern libertarianism is culturally leftist is not due to any such leanings among the major libertarian theoreticians. As noted, they were for the most part cultural conservatives. Rather, it was the result of a superficial understanding of the libertarian doctrine by many of its fans and followers, and this ignorance has its explanation in the historical coincidence and the mentioned tendency inherent in the social democratic welfare state of promoting a process of intellectual and emotional infantilization de-civilization of society. The beginnings of the modern libertarian movement in the United States go back to the mid-1960s. In 1971, the Libertarian Party was founded, and in 1972, the philosopher John Hospers was nominated as its first presidential candidate. It was the time of the Vietnam War, simultaneously promoted by the major advances in the growth of the welfare state from the early and mid-1960s onward in the United States, and similarly in Western Europe, the so-called civil rights legislation and the war on poverty, a new mass phenomenon emerged. A new lumpenproletariat of intellectuals and intellectualized youths, the products of an ever-expanding system of socialist public education, alienated from mainstream bourgeois morals and culture, while living far more comfortably than the lumpenproletariat of old, off the wealth created by this mainstream culture arose. Multiculturalism and cultural relativism, live and let live, and egalitarian anti-authoritarianism, respect no authority, were elevated from temporary and transitory phases in mental development, adolescence, to permanent attitudes among grown-up intellectuals and their students. The principal opposition of the libertarians to the Vietnam War coincided with the somewhat diffuse opposition to the war by the new left. In addition, the anarchistic upshot of the libertarian doctrine appealed to the countercultural left. While ultimately judged a failure by most of its former protagonists, 
the alliance between the fledgling libertarian movement and the New Left during the mid and late 1960s can be understood as motivated by two considerations. On the one hand, by the mid-1960s, American conservatism was almost completely dominated by William Buckley and his National Review. In contrast to the decidedly anti-interventionist, isolationist conservatism of the old right, the new conservatism, espoused by Buckley and the National Review, and represented most visibly by the 1964 Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, was an ardently pro-war, pro-militaristic and even imperialist movement. Based on this, any form of libertarian-conservative alliance had to be judged as simply out of the question. On the other hand, when the new left began to emerge around 1965, it appeared far more libertarian on crucial issues than the conservatives for two reasons later summarized by Rothbard. One, the new left's increasingly thoroughgoing opposition to the Vietnam War, U.S. imperialism and the draft, the major political issues of that period, in contrast to conservative support for these policies, and two, its forswearing of the old-fashioned statism and social democracy of the old left led the new left to semi-anarchistic positions to what seemed to be thoroughgoing opposition to the existing welfare-warfare post-New Deal corporate state and to the state-ridden bureaucratic university system. Writing nearly a decade later, Rothbard acknowledged a twofold strategic error in his erstwhile attempt to forge an alliance between libertarians and the new left. A gravely overestimating the emotional stability and the knowledge of economics of these fledgling libertarians and, as a corollary, b. gravely underestimating the significance of the fact that these libertarian cadre were weak and isolated, that there was no libertarian movement to speak of, and therefore that herding these youngsters into an alliance with a far more numerous and powerful group was bound to lead to a high incidence of defection into real leftism of the left-wing anarchist, Maoist, syndicalist variety. For did not the illegitimacy of the state and the non-aggression axiom that one shall not initiate or threaten to initiate physical force against others and their property imply that everyone was at liberty to choose his very own non-aggressive lifestyle? Did this not imply that vulgarity, obscenity, profanity, drug use, promiscuity, pornography, prostitution, homosexuality, polygamy, pedophilia, or any other conceivable perversity or abnormality insofar as they were victimless crimes were no offences at all, but perfectly normal and legitimate activities and lifestyles? Not surprisingly, then, from the outset, the libertarian movement attracted an unusually high number of abnormal and perverse followers. Subsequently, the countercultural ambience and multicultural relativistic tolerance of the libertarian movement attracted even greater numbers of misfits, personal or professional failures, or plain losers. Murray Rothbard, in disgust, called them the Nihilo Libertarians and identified them as the modal, typical, and representative libertarians. They fantasized of a society where everyone would be free to choose and cultivate whatever non-aggressive lifestyle, career, or character he wanted, and where, as a result of free market economics, everyone could do so on an elevated level of general prosperity. Ironically, the movement that had set out to dismantle the state and restore private property and market economics was largely appropriated, and its appearance shaped by the mental and emotional products of the welfare state, the new class of permanent adolescents. Murray and Rothbard has given the following portrait of the modal libertarian, M.L. M.L. is indeed a he. The M.L. was in his twenties, twenty years ago, and is now in his forties. That is neither as banal or as benign as it sounds, because it means that the movement has not really grown in twenty years. The M.L. is fairly bright and fairly well steeped in libertarian theory but he knows nothing and cares less about history, culture, 
the context of reality or world affairs. His only reading or cultural knowledge is science fiction. The ML does not unfortunately hate the state because he sees it as the unique social instrument of organized aggression against person and property. Instead, the ML is an adolescent rebel against everyone around him, first against his parents, second against his family, third against his neighbors, and finally against society itself. He is especially opposed to institutions of social and cultural authority, in particular against the bourgeoisie from which he stemmed, against bourgeois norms and conventions, and against such institutions of social authority as churches. To the ML, then, the state is not a unique problem. It is only the most visible and odious of many hated bourgeois institutions. Hence the zest with which the ML sports the button, question authority, and hence, too, the fanatical hostility of the ML toward Christianity. I used to think that this militant atheism was merely a function of the Randianism out of which most modern libertarians emerged two decades ago. But atheism is not the key, for let someone in a libertarian gathering announce that he or she is a witch or a worshipper of crystal power or some other New Age hokum, and that person will be treated with great tolerance and respect. It is only Christians that are subject to abuse, and clearly the reason for the difference in treatment has nothing to do with atheism, but it has everything to do with rejecting and spurning bourgeois American culture, and any kind of cookie cultural cause will be encouraged in order to tweak the noses of the hated bourgeoisie. In point of fact, the original attraction of the M.O. to Randianism was part and parcel of his adolescent rebellion. What better way to rationalize and systematize rejection of one's parents, family and neighbors than to join a cult which denounces religion and which trumpets the absolute superiority of yourself and your cult leaders as contrasted to the robotic second-handers who supposedly people the bourgeois world. A cult, furthermore, which calls upon you to spurn your parents, family and bourgeois associates and to cultivate the alleged greatness of your own individual ego, suitably guided, of course, by Ranian leadership, the ML, if he has a real-world occupation, such as an accountant or lawyer, is generally a lawyer without a practice and accountant without a job. The ML's modal occupation is computer programmer. Computers appeal indeed to the ML's scientific and theoretical bent, but they also appeal to his aggravated nomadism, to his need not to have a regular payroll or regular abode. The ML also has the thousand-mile stare of the fanatic. He is apt to buttonhole you at the first opportunity and go on at great length about his own particular great discovery, about his mighty manuscript, which is crying out for publication, if only it hadn't been suppressed by the powers that be. But above all, the ML is a moocher, a bunko artist, and often an outright crook. His basic attitude to what other libertarians is, your house is my house. In short, whether they articulate this philosophy or not, MLs are libertarian communists. Anyone with property is automatically expected to share it with other members of his extended libertarian family. 5. This intellectual combination could hardly end happily. Private property capitalism and egalitarian multiculturalism are as unlikely a combination as socialism and cultural conservatism. And in trying to combine what cannot be combined, much of the modern libertarian movement actually contributed to the further erosion of private property rights, just as much of contemporary conservatism contributed to the erosion of families and traditional morals. What the countercultural libertarians fail to recognize, and what true libertarians cannot emphasize enough, is that the restoration of private property rights and laissez-faire economics implies a sharp and drastic increase in social discrimination and will swiftly eliminate most, if not all, of the multicultural egalitarian lifestyle experiments so close to the heart of left libertarians. In other words, libertarians must be radical and uncompromising conservatives.
Contrary to the left libertarians assembled around such institutions as the Cato Institute and the Institute for Justice, for instance, who seek the assistance of the central government in the enforcement of various policies of non-discrimination and call for a non-discriminatory or free immigration policy, true libertarians must embrace discrimination, be it internal, domestic or external, foreign. More specifically, left libertarians, LLS, employ and promote the employment of the federal government and its courts to squash discriminatory and presumably anti-libertarian state and or local laws and regulations. They thus contribute, regardless of their intention, to the anti-libertarian end of strengthening the central state. Correspondingly, LLS typically look favorably upon Lincoln and the Union government because the Union victory over the secessionist confederacy resulted in the abolition of slavery, but they fail to recognize that this way of achieving the libertarian goal of abolishing slavery must lead to a drastic increase in the power of the central federal government and that the Union victory in the Southern War of Independence indeed marks one of the great leaps forward in the growth of the modern federal leviathan and hence represents a profoundly anti-libertarian episode in American history. Further, while LLS criticize the current practice of affirmative action as a quota system, they do not reject the so-called civil rights legislation from which the present practice developed as entirely and fundamentally incompatible with the cornerstone of libertarian political philosophy, that is, private property rights. To the contrary, LLS are very much concerned about quote-unquote civil rights, most prominently the quote-unquote right of gays and other alternative lifestyles not to be discriminated against in employment and housing. Accordingly, they look favorably on the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Brown v. Board of Education to outlaw segregation and the proto-socialist quote-unquote civil rights leader Martin Luther King. To be sure, LLS typically recognized the categorical difference between private and so-called public property, and at least in theory they admit that private property owners ought to have the right to discriminate regarding their own property as they please. But the LLS distinctly egalitarian concern for the lofty yet elusive idea of the, quote, progressive extension of dignity, unquote, instead of property rights, to, quote, women, to people of different religions and different races, unquote, misleads them to accept the very principle of, quote-unquote, non-discrimination, even if it is only applied and restricted to public property and the public sector of the economy. Hence the LLS advocacy of non-discriminatory or, quote-unquote, free immigration policy. Theoretically, LLS thereby commit the error of regarding public property as if it were either unowned, quote-unquote, land, open to unrestricted universal homesteading, while in fact all public property has been financed by domestic taxpayers, or as if it were, quote-unquote, communal property, open to every domestic citizen on an equal basis, while in fact some citizens have paid more taxes than others, and some, that is, those whose salaries or subsidies were paid out of taxes, have paid no taxes at all. Worse, in accepting the principle of non-discrimination for the realm of public property, LLS in fact contribute to the further aggrandizement of state power and the diminution of private property rights, for in today's state-ridden world, the dividing line between private and public has become increasingly fuzzy. All private property borders on and is surrounded by public streets. Virtually every business sells some of its products to some government agency or across state borders, and countless private firms and organizations, such as private universities, for instance, regularly receive government funding. Hence, as seen from the perspective of the agents of the state, there is practically nothing left that is genuinely quote-unquote private and thus does not fall under government purview. Based on this all-pervasive entanglement of the state and public property with private business and private property, and given the government's unique coercive bargaining power, it can be safely predicted that the policy of quote-unquote non-discrimination will not remain a principle merely of public policy for long, 
but will instead increasingly become a general and ultimately universal principle, extending to and encompassing everyone and everything, public and private. Characteristically, LLS are typically also proponents of Milton Friedman's school voucher proposal, and are thus, it would seem, totally unaware that the implementation of the voucher plan would invariably lead to the expansion of government control from public schools to one including private schools and the destruction of whatever autonomous decision-making rights the latter schools presently still possess. Indeed, private property means discrimination. I, not you, own such and such. I am entitled to exclude you from my property. I may attach conditions to your using my property, and I may expel you from my property. Moreover, you and I, private property owners, may enter and put our property into a restrictive or protective covenant. We and others may, if we both deem it beneficial, impose limitations on the future use that each of us is permitted to make with our property. The modern welfare state has largely stripped private property owners of the right to exclusion implied in the concept of private property. Discrimination is outlawed. Employers cannot hire whom they want. Landlords cannot rent to whom they want. Sellers cannot sell to whomever they wish. Buyers cannot buy from whoever they wish to buy. And groups of private property owners are not permitted to enter in whatever restrictive covenant they believe to be mutually beneficial. The state has thus robbed the people of much of their personal and physical protection. Not to be able to exclude others means not to be able to protect oneself. The result of this erosion of private property rights under the democratic welfare state is forced integration. Forced integration is ubiquitous. Americans must accept immigrants they do not want. Teachers cannot get rid of lousy or ill-behaved students. Employers are stuck with poor or destructive employees. Landlords are forced to live with bad renters. Banks and insurance companies are not allowed to avoid bad risks. Restaurants and bars must accommodate unwelcome customers. And private clubs and covenants are compelled to accept members and actions in violation of their very own rules and restrictions. Moreover, on public, that is government property in particular, forced integration has taken on a dangerous form of norm and lawlessness. Every property owner, Murray and Rothbard elaborated, should have the absolute right to sell, hire or lease his money or other property to anyone whom he chooses, which means he has the absolute right to, quote-unquote, discriminate all he damn pleases. If I have a plant and want to hire only six-foot albinos and I can find willing employees, I should have the right to do so, even though I might well lose my shirt doing so. If I own an apartment complex and want to rent only to Swedes without children, I should have the right to do so, etc. Out along such discrimination and restrictive covenants upholding it was the original sin from which all other problems followed. Once admit that principle, and everything else follows as the night to day. For if it is right and proper to outlaw my discriminating against blacks, then it is just as right and proper for the government to figure out if I am discriminating or not, and in that case it is perfectly legitimate for them to employ quotas to test the proposition. So, what is the remedy for all this? What has to be done is to repudiate quote-unquote civil rights and anti-discrimination laws totally, and in the meanwhile, on a separate but parallel track, try to privatize as much and as fully as we can. End quote. To exclude other people from one's own property is the very means by which an owner can avoid quote-unquote bads from happening, events that will lower the value of one's property. In not being permitted to freely exclude the incidence of bads, ill-behaved, lazy, unreliable, rotten students, employees, customers, will increase and property values will fall. In fact, forced integration, the result of all non-discrimination policies, breeds ill-behavior and bad character. In civilized society, 
The ultimate price for ill behavior is expulsion, and all round ill behaved or rotten characters, even if they commit no criminal offense, will find themselves quickly expelled from everywhere and by everyone and become outcasts, physically removed from civilization. This is a stiff price to pay, hence, the frequency of such behavior is reduced. By contrast, if one is prevented from expelling others from one's property whenever their presence is deemed undesirable, ill behavior, misconduct, and outright rotten characters are encouraged, rendered less costly. Rather than being isolated and ultimately entirely removed from society, the quote-unquote bums in every conceivable area of incompetency, bumhood, are permitted to perpetrate their unpleasantries everywhere, so bum-like behavior and bums will proliferate. The results of forced integration are only too visible. All social relations, whether in private or business life, have become increasingly egalitarian. Everyone is on a first-name basis with everyone else, and uncivilized. In distinct contrast, a society in which the right to exclusion is fully restored to owners of private property would be profoundly unegalitarian, intolerant, and discriminatory. There would be little or no quote-unquote tolerance and quote-unquote open-mindedness so dear to left libertarians. Instead, one would be on the right path toward restoring the freedom of association and exclusion implied in the institution of private property if only towns and villages could and would do what they did as a matter of course until well into the 19th century in Europe and the United States. There would be signs regarding entrance requirements to the town, and once in town, requirements for entering specific pieces of property, for example, no beggars, bums or homeless, but also no homosexuals, drug users, Jews, Muslims, Germans or Zulus, and those who did not meet these entrance requirements would be kicked out as trespassers. Almost instantly, cultural and moral normalcy would reassert itself. Left libertarians and multi- or countercultural lifestyle experimentalists, even if they were not engaged in any crime, would once again have to pay a price for their behavior. If they continued with their behavior or lifestyle, they would be barred from civilized society and live physically separate from it in ghettos or on the fringes of society, and many positions or professions would be unattainable to them. In contrast, if they wished to live and advance within society, they would have to adjust and assimilate to the moral and cultural norms of the society they wanted to enter. To thus assimilate would not necessarily imply that one would have to give up one's substandard or abnormal behavior or lifestyle altogether. It would imply, however, that one could no longer quote-unquote come out and exhibit one's alternative behavior or lifestyle in public. Such behavior would have to stay in the closet, hidden from the public eye and physically restricted to the total privacy of one's own four walls. Advertising or displaying it in public would lead to expulsion. To avoid any misunderstanding, it might be useful to point out that the predicted rise in discrimination in a purely libertarian world does not imply that the form and extent of discrimination will be the same or similar everywhere. To the contrary, the libertarian world could and likely would be one with a great variety of locally separated communities engaging in distinctly different and far-reaching discrimination, explains Murray N. Rothbard. In a country or a world of totally private property, including streets and of private contractual neighborhoods consisting of property owners, these owners can make any sort of neighborhood contracts they wish. In practice, then, the country would be a truly, quote-unquote, gorgeous mosaic, ranging from rowdy Greenwich Village-type contractual neighborhoods to socially conservative, homogenous WASP neighborhoods. Remember that all deeds and covenants would once again be totally legal and enforceable, with no meddling government restrictions upon them. So that considering the drug question, if a proprietary neighborhood contracted that no one would use drugs 
and Jones violated the contract and used them, his fellow community contractors could simply enforce the contract and kick him out. Or, since no advance contract can allow for all conceivable circumstances, suppose that Smith became so personally obnoxious that his fellow neighborhood owners wanted him ejected. They would then have to buy him out, probably on terms set contractually in advance in accordance with some quote-unquote obnoxious clause, end quote. Notwithstanding the variety of discriminatory policies pursued by different proprietary communities, however, and as will be further argued in the following above, for the sake of self-preservation, each of these communities will have to recognize and enforce some strict and rather inflexible limitations with respect to its internal tolerance. That is, no proprietary community can be as quote-unquote tolerant and quote-unquote non-discriminatory as left libertarians wish every place to be. Moreover, true conservative libertarians in contrast to left libertarians, must not only recognize and emphasize the fact that there will be a sharp increase in discrimination, exclusion, expulsion, in a libertarian society wherein private property rights are fully restored to the owners of private households and estates. More importantly, they will have to recognize, and conservatives and conservative insights can be helpful in achieving this, that this ought to be so. That is, that there should be strict discrimination if, one wants to reach the goal of a private property anarchy or a pure private law society. Without continued and relentless discrimination, a libertarian society would quickly erode and degenerate into welfare state socialism. Every social order, including a libertarian or conservative one, requires a self-enforcement mechanism. More precisely, social orders, unlike mechanical or biological systems, are not maintained automatically. They require conscious effort and purposeful action on the part of the members of society to prevent them from disintegrating. 6. The standard libertarian model of a community is one of individuals who, instead of living physically separated and isolated from one another, associate with each other as neighbors living on adjacent but separately owned pieces of land. However, this model is too simplistic. Presumably, the reason for choosing neighbors over isolation is the fact that for individuals participating in and partaking of the benefits of the division of labor, a neighborhood offers the added advantage of lower transaction costs. That is, a neighborhood facilitates exchange. As a consequence, the value of an individually owned piece of land will be enhanced by the existence of neighboring pieces of land owned by others. However, while this may indeed be true and constitute a valid reason for choosing a neighborhood over physical isolation, it is by no means always true. A neighborhood also involves risks and may lead to falling rather than increasing property values for even if one assumes, in accordance with the model under consideration, that the initial establishment of neighboring property was mutually beneficial and even if it's further assumed that all members of a community refrain from criminal activity, it might still happen that a formerly quote-unquote good neighbor turns obnoxious that he does not take care of his property or changes it so as to negatively affect the property values of other community members, or that he simply refuses to participate in any cooperative effort directed at improving the value of the community as a whole. Spencer H. McCollum, in The Art of Community, notes, quote, So long as individuals have ownership in parts less than the whole, their interests will collide with the interests of others and with the common interests in any proposal that would affect land values unevenly. Yet, to avoid such measures would be to throw out planning and coordination of land uses completely, and with it, ultimately, all land value. Aggravating the situation further is the absence of effective leadership to arbitrate the conflicts or to salvage the best of the bad situation. Lacking is someone who, while not identified with any special interest in the community, 
is at the same time strongly concerned for the success of the community as a whole. Property in land cannot be moved to an environment more favorable for its use. Its value as an economic good is a function of its surroundings. Its higher use, therefore, depends upon rearranging the environment to conform to it. Since the possible uses of a site depend on surrounding land uses, ultimately all human action is land use of one kind or another, it is essential for its most productive use that the uses of accessible surrounding land be coordinated. Seldom can this be done effectively under a multiplicity of separate authorities. If surrounding sites are owned in severalty, the several owners may or may not be able to accommodate their various uses to a comprehensive plan, depending on many, often fortuitous factors affecting the ability and wishes of each. They are neighbors of circumstance, not of convenience. End quote. Hence, in order to overcome the difficulties inherent in community development, when the land is held in divided ownership, the formation of neighborhoods and communities has in fact proceeded along different lines from those suggested in the above-mentioned model. Rather than being composed of adjacent pieces of land owned in severalty, then, neighborhoods have typically been proprietary or covenantal communities, founded and owned by a single proprietor who would, quote-unquote, lease separate parts of the land under specified conditions to selected individuals. To avoid any misunderstanding, the term lease is used here to include the sale of anything less than the full title to this thing. Thus, for example, the proprietor may sell all the rights to a house and a piece of land except for the right to build a house over a certain height or of other than a certain design or to use the land for any other than residential purposes, etc., which rights are retained by the proprietary seller. Originally, such covenants were based on kinship relations with the role of the proprietor performed by the head of a family or clan. In other words, just as the actions of the immediate family members are coordinated by the head and owner of the household within a single family household, so is the function of directing and coordinating the land uses of groups of neighboring households traditionally fulfilled by the head of an extended kinship group. McCollum explains, quote, The proprietary community is not unique to our time and culture. Its roots are deep in human history. Within households in the primitive world, land is commonly administered by an elder male in the line of property succession. For groups of households, it may be administered by a clan, a lineage, or other group head, who is commonly an elder male of the king group of widest span. And similarly, at the village level. This is, quote-unquote, the familiar pattern. In anthropologist Melville Herskovich's words, quote, of village land ownership held in trust and administered by the village head in behalf of its members, native or adopted, and family ownership for which the head of the family is trustee, unquote. The system is sometimes called seniorialism, since the distributive authority is exercised by a senior member of the kin group at the span or level of organization in question. End quote. In modern times, characterized by massive population growth and a significant loss in the importance of kinship relations, this original libertarian model of a proprietary community has been replaced by new and familiar developments such as shopping malls and, quote-unquote, gated communities. Both shopping centers and gated residential communities are owned by a single entity, either an individual or a private corporation, and the relationship between the community proprietor and his renters and residents is purely contractual. The proprietor is an entrepreneur seeking profits from developing and managing residential and or business communities, which attracts people as places where they want to reside and or carry on their business. Spencer McCollum elaborates, quote, The proprietor builds value in the inventory of community land, chiefly by satisfying three functional requirements of a community, which he alone, as an owner, can adequately fulfill. Selection of members, land planning, 
and leadership. The first two functions, membership selection and land planning, are accomplished by him automatically in the course of determining to whom and for what purpose to let the use of land. The third function, leadership, is his natural responsibility and also a special opportunity, since his interest alone is the success of the whole community rather than that of any special interest within it. Assigning land automatically establishes the kinds of tenants and their spatial juxtaposition to one another, and, hence, the economic structure of the community. Leadership also includes arbitration of differences among tenants, as well as guidance and participation in joint efforts. Indeed, in a fundamental sense, the security of the community is a part of the owner's real estate function. Under land planning, he supervises the design of all construction from the standpoint of safety. He also chooses tenants with a view to their compatibility and complementarity with other members of the community and learns to anticipate in the leases and to provide in other ways against disputes developing among tenants. By his informal peacemaking and arbitrating, he resolves differences that might otherwise become serious. In these many ways, he ensures, quote-unquote, quiet possession as it was so admirably phrased in the language of the common law for his tenants. Moreover, once the ownerships are organized as participation in a single property, it becomes the common interest of the owners to redevelop and manage the whole as a unit in the most productive way, even to replanning the formerly fixed pattern of streets and common areas. It becomes the single interest to provide not only optimum physical environment, but optimum social environment as well through an effective manager who can serve inconspicuously as expediter, peacemaker, and active catalyst to promote the freest possible conditions for the occupants to pursue their respective interests. End quote. Clearly, then, the task of maintaining the covenant entailed in the libertarian propriety community is first and foremost that of the proprietor. Yet he is but one man, and it is impossible for him to succeed in this task unless he is supported in his endeavor by a majority of the members of the community in question. In particular, the proprietor needs the support of the community elite, that is, the heads of households and firms most heavily invested in the community. In order to protect and possibly enhance the value of their property and investments, both proprietor and the community elite must be willing and prepared to take two forms of protective measures. First, they must be willing to defend themselves by means of physical force and punishment against external invaders and domestic criminals. But second, and equally important, they must also be willing to defend themselves by means of ostracism, exclusion and ultimately expulsion against those community members who advocate, advertise or propagandize actions incompatible with the very purpose of the covenant, to protect property and family. McCollum notes on the importance of exclusion for the maintenance of social order, quote, on all levels of society, both primitive and modern, exile is the natural and automatic remedy for default and fraud. By dispossession, he, the village head, exiles individuals who have made themselves intolerable, exactly as a shopping centre manager fails to renew the lease of an incompatible tenant. However infrequent in the village, as compared with modern proprietary communities, membership control is still a functional requisite of community life for which there must be regular provision. End quote. And in a footnote to this, he adds, quote, Anthropologist Raymond Firth records an expression of exile from the Pacific Island society of Tikopia that evokes in its simplicity the pathos of the Anglo-Saxon poem The Wanderer. Inasmuch as all land was owned by the chiefs, an exiled person had no recourse but to canoe out to sea, to suicide, or to life as a stranger on other islands. The expression for a person who is exiled translates that such a person, quote, has no place on which to stand, unquote. In this regard, a community always faces the double and related threat of egalitarianism 
and cultural relativism. Egalitarianism in every form and shape is incompatible with the idea of private property. Private property implies exclusivity, inequality, and difference. And cultural relativism is incompatible with the fundamental, indeed foundational fact of families and intergenerational kinship relations. Families and kinship relations imply cultural absolutism. As a matter of social psychological fact, both egalitarian and relativistic sentiments find steady support among ever new generations of adolescents. Owing to their still incomplete mental development, juveniles, especially of the male variety, are always susceptible to both ideas. Adolescence is marked by regular, and for this stage, normal outbreaks of rebellion by the young against the discipline imposed on them by family life and parental authority. Cultural relativism and multiculturalism provide the ideological instrument of emancipating oneself from these constraints. And egalitarianism, based on the infantile view that property is quote-unquote given and thus distributed arbitrarily, rather than individually appropriated and produced, and hence distributed justly, that is, in accordance with personal productivity, provides the intellectual means by which the rebellious youth can lay claim to the economic resources necessary for a life free of and outside the disciplinary framework of families. The enforcement of a covenant is largely a matter of prudence, of course. How and when to react, and what protective measures to take, requires judgment on the part of the members of the community, and especially the proprietor and the community elite. Thus, for instance, so long as the threat of moral relativism and egalitarianism is restricted to a small proportion of juveniles and young adults for only a brief period in life, until they settle back into family-constrained adulthood, it may well be sufficient to do nothing at all. The proponents of cultural relativism and egalitarianism would represent little more than temporary embarrassments or irritations, and punishment in the form of ostracism can be quite mild and lenient. A small dose of ridicule and contempt may be all that is needed to contain the relativistic and egalitarian threat. The situation is very different, however, and rather more drastic measures might be required, once the spirit of moral relativism and egalitarianism has taken hold among adult members of society, among mothers, fathers, and heads of households and firms. As soon as mature members of society habitually express acceptance or even advocate egalitarian sentiments, whether in the form of democracy, majority rule, or of communism, it becomes essential that other members, and in particular the natural social elites, be prepared to act decisively and, in the case of continued non-conformity, exclude and ultimately expel these members from society. In a covenant concluded among proprietor and community tenants for the purpose of protecting their private property, no such thing as a right to free, unlimited speech exists, not even to unlimited speech on one's own tenant property. One may say innumerable things and promote almost any idea under the sun, but naturally no one is permitted to advocate ideas contrary to the very purpose of the covenant of preserving and protecting private property, such as democracy and communism. There can be no tolerance to a democrats and communists in a libertarian social order. They will have to be physically separated and expelled from society. Likewise, in a covenant founded for the purpose of protecting family and kin, there can be no tolerance toward those habitually promoting lifestyles incompatible with this goal. They, the advocates of alternative, non-family and kin-centered lifestyles, such as, for instance, individual hedonism, parasitism, nature-environment worship, homosexuality or communism, will have to be physically removed from society too, if one is to maintain a libertarian order. 7. It should be obvious, then, that and why libertarians must be moral and cultural conservatives of the most uncompromising kind. The current state of moral degeneration, 
social disintegration and cultural rot is precisely the result of too much and above all erroneous and misconceived tolerance. Rather than having all habitual Democrats, communists and alternative lifestylists quickly isolated, excluded and expelled from civilization in accordance with the principles of the covenant, they were tolerated by society. Yet this toleration only encouraged and promoted even more egalitarian and relativistic sentiments and attitudes until at last the point was reached where the authority of excluding anyone for anything had effectively evaporated, while the power of the state, as manifested in state-sponsored forced integration policies, had correspondingly grown. Libertarians, in their attempt to establish a free natural social order, must strive to regain from the state the right to exclusion inherent in private property. Yet even before they accomplished this, and in order to render such an achievement even possible, libertarians could not soon enough begin to reassert and exercise, to the extent that the situation still permits them to do so, their right to exclusion in everyday life. Chapter 11 On the Errors of Classical Liberalism and the Future of Liberty 1. Classical liberalism has been in decline for more than a century. Since the second half of the 19th century, in the United States as well as in Western Europe, public affairs have increasingly been shaped instead by socialist ideas. In fact, the 20th century may well be described as the century par excellence of socialism, of communism, fascism, national socialism, and most enduringly of social democracy, modern American liberalism, and neoconservatism. The term liberalism here and in the following is used in its original or classical meaning as defined, for instance, by its foremost 20th century proponent Ludwig von Mises in his 1927 treatise Liberalism in a Classical Tradition. Mises writes, quote, The program of liberalism, if condensed into a single word, would have to read property, that is, private ownership of the means of production. For in regard to commodities ready for consumption, private ownership is a matter of course and is not disputed even by the socialists and communists. All the other demands of liberalism result from this fundamental demand. End quote. By contrast, modern American quote-unquote liberalism has almost the opposite meaning which can be traced back to John Stuart Mill and his 1859 book On Liberty as the fountainhead of modern moderate social democratic socialism. Mill, notes Mises, quote, is the originator of the thoughtless confounding of liberal and socialist ideas that led to the decline of English liberalism and to the undermining of the living standards of the English people. Without a thorough study of Mill, it is impossible to understand the events of the last two generations, 1927. For Mill is the great advocate of socialism. All the arguments that could be advanced in favor of socialism are elaborated by him with loving care. In comparison with Mill, all other socialist writers, even Marx, Engels and LaSalle are scarcely of any importance. End quote. To be sure, this decline has not been a continuous one. Matters did not always become worse from a liberal viewpoint. There were also some reprieves. As a result of World War II, for instance, West Germany and Italy experienced significant liberalization in comparison to the status quo ante under national socialism and fascism. Similarly, the collapse of the communist Soviet Empire in the late 1980s has led to a remarkable liberalization across Eastern Europe. However, as much as liberals welcomed these events, they were not indicative of a renaissance of liberalism. Rather, the liberalization of Germany and Italy in the aftermath of World War II and the current post-communist liberalization of Eastern Europe were the outcome of external and accidental events, of military defeat and or outright economic bankruptcy. 
It was in each case liberalization by default of the old system, and the default option adopted subsequently was simply a variant of socialism. Social democracy, as exemplified by the United States, as the only surviving, not yet militarily defeated or economically bankrupt, superpower. Thus, even if liberals have enjoyed a few periods of reprieve, ultimately the displacement of liberalism by socialism has been complete. Indeed, so complete has been the socialist victory that today, at the beginning of the 21st century, some neoconservatives have waxed triumphantly about the quote-unquote end of history and the arrival of the quote-unquote last man, that is, of the last millennium of global U.S.-supervised social democracy and the new homo social democraticus. See Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Man. Summing up his own thesis, Fukuyama there writes that, quote, I argued that a remarkable consensus concerning the legitimacy of liberal, that is, social democratic democracy, as a system of government had emerged throughout the world over the past few years as it conquered rival ideologies like hereditary monarchy, fascism, and most recently communism. More than that, however, I argued that liberal democracy may constitute the quote-unquote end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the quote-unquote final form of human government and as such constituted quote-unquote the end of history. That is, while earlier forms of government were characterized by grave defects and irrationalities that led to their eventual collapse, liberal democracy was arguably free from such fundamental internal contradictions. This did not mean that the natural cycle of birth, life and death would end, that important events would no longer happen, or that newspapers reporting them would cease to be published. It meant, rather, that there would be no further progress in the development of underlying principles and institutions because all of the really big questions had been settled. End quote. The new conservative movement to which Fukuyama belongs emerged in the late 1960s and early 1970s when the American left became increasingly involved with black power politics, affirmative action, pro-Arabism, and the quote-unquote counterculture. In opposition to these tendencies, many traditional left-wing, frequently former Trotskyite intellectuals and Cold War quote-unquote liberals, led by Irving Kristol and Norman Podretz, broke ranks with their old allies, frequently crossing over from the long-time haven of left-wing politics, the Democratic Party, to the Republicans. Since then, the new conservatives, while insignificant in sheer numbers, have gained unrivaled influence in American politics, promoting typically a moderate welfare state, democratic capitalism, cultural conservatism and family values, and an interventionist, activist, and a particular Zionist pro-Israel foreign policy. Represented by figures such as Irvin Crystal and his wife Gertrude Himmelfarb and son William Crystal, Norman Poderetz and his wife Midge Dechter, son John Poderetz and sons-in-law Stephen Munson and Elliot Abrams, by Daniel Bell, Peter Berger, Nathan Glazer, Seema Martin Lipset, Marco Novak, Anne Wildavsky, James Q. Wilson, and journalist commentators such as David Froome, Paul Gigget, Morton Kondrake, Charles Krauthammer, Michael Lindt, Joshua Moravchik, Emmett Tyrell, and Ben Mortenberg, the new conservatives now exercise controlling interest in such publications as National Interest, Public Interest, Commentary, The New Republic, The American Spectator, The Weekly Standard, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, and they have close ties to several major foundations such as Bradley, Odin, Pugh, Scaife, and Smith-Richardson. 2. Even if one regards the Hegelian aspirations of this interpretation as preposterous, according to which liberalism marks only a transitory stage in the evolution of the fully developed social democratic man, liberals still must be pained at the mere appearance of truth of neoconservative philosophizing. 
Thus, writes Fukuyama, quote, For a very large part of the world, there is now no ideology with pretensions to universality that is in a position to challenge liberal democracy and no universal principle of legitimacy other than the sovereignty of the people. We have trouble imagining a world that is radically better than our own, or a future that is not essentially democratic and capitalist. We cannot picture to ourselves a world that is essentially different from the present one, and at the same time better. It is precisely if we look not just at the past 15 years, but at the whole scope of history, that liberal democracy begins to occupy a special kind of place. There is a fundamental process at work that dictates a common evolutionary pattern for all human societies. In short, something like a universal history of mankind in the direction of liberal democracy. If we are now at the point where we cannot imagine a world substantially different from our own, in which there is no apparent or obvious way in which the future will represent a fundamental improvement over our current order, then we must also take into consideration the possibility that history itself might be at an end. End Liberals still must be pained at the mere appearance of truth of neoconservative philosophizing. Nor can they console themselves with the knowledge that social democracy is also bound to collapse economically. They knew that communism had to collapse, yet when it did, this did not inaugurate a liberal renaissance. There is no a priori reason to assume that the future breakdown of social democracy will bear any more favorable results. Assuming that the course of human history is determined by ideas, rather than quote-unquote blind forces, and historical changes are the result of ideological shifts in public opinion, it follows that the socialist transformation of the last hundred years must be understood as the result of liberalism's intellectual, philosophical, and theoretical defeat, that is, the increasing rejection in public opinion of the liberal doctrine as faulty. In this situation, liberals can react in two ways. On the one hand, they may still want to maintain that liberalism is a sound doctrine and that the public rejects it in spite of its truth. In this case, one must explain why people cling to false beliefs, even if they are aware of correct liberal ideas. Does the truth not always hold its own attraction and rewards? Furthermore, one must explain why the liberal truth is increasingly rejected in favor of socialist falsehoods. Did the population become more indolent or degenerate? If so, how can this be explained? On the other hand, one may consider the rejection as indicative of an error in one's doctrine. In this case, one must reconsider its theoretical foundations and identify the error which can account not only for the doctrine's rejection as false, but more importantly, for the actual course of events. In other words, the socialist transformation must be explained as an intelligible and systematically predictable progressive deconstruction and degeneration of liberal political theory originating in and logically arising from this error as the ultimate source of all subsequent socialist confusion. 3. Liberalism's central and momentous error lies in its theory of government. Classical liberal political philosophy, as personified by Locke and most prominently displayed in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, was first and foremost a moral doctrine. Drawing on the philosophy of the Stoics and the late Scholastics, it centered around the notions of self-ownership, original appropriation of nature given, unowned resources, property, and contract as universal human rights implied in the nature of man qua rational animal. In the environment of princely and royal rulers, this emphasis on the universality of human rights placed liberal philosophy naturally in radical opposition to every established government. Thus, Ludwig von Mises, in Nation, State and Economy, characterizes liberalism as, quote-unquote, hostile to princes. In order to avoid any misunderstanding, it should be noted, however, 
that this sweeping verdict applies and is indeed applied by Mises only to the absolute rulers of 17th and 18th century Europe. It does not apply also to earlier medieval kings and princes who were typically just primus inter pares, that is, voluntary acknowledged authorities held to be subject to the same universal natural law as everyone else. For a liberal, every man, whether king or peasant, was subject to the same universal and eternal principles of justice, and a government either could derive its justification from a contract between private property owners, or it could not be justified at all. Thus, Cassirer writes, the doctrine of the state contract becomes in the 17th century a self-evident axiom of political thought. This fact marks a great and decisive step, for if we adopt this view, if we reduce the legal and social order to free individual acts, to a voluntary contractual submission of the governed, all mystery is gone. There's nothing less mysterious than a contract. A contract must be made in full awareness of its meaning and consequences. It presupposes the free consent of all parties concerned. If we can trace the state to such an origin, it becomes a perfectly clear and understandable fact. End quote. But could any government be so justified? The affirmative liberal answer is well known. It is set out from the undeniable true proposition that mankind being what it is, murderers, robbers, thieves, thugs and con artists will always exist and life in society will be impossible if they are not threatened with physical punishment. In order to maintain a liberal social order, liberals insisted, it is necessary that its members be in the position to pressure, by threatening or applying violence, anyone who does not respect the life and property of others to acquiesce to the rules of society. From this correct premise, liberals concluded that this indispensable task of maintaining law and order is the unique function of government. Whether this conclusion is correct or not hinges on the definition of government. It is correct if government simply means any individual or firm that provides protection and security services to a voluntary paying clientele of private property owners. However, this was not the definition of government adopted by liberals. For a liberal, government is not simply a specialized firm. Rather, government possesses two unique characteristics. Unlike a normal firm, it possesses a compulsory territorial monopoly of jurisdiction, ultimate decision-making, and a right to tax. However, if one assumes this definition of government, then the liberal conclusion is false. It does not follow from the right and need for the protection of person and property that protection rightfully should or effectively can be provided by a monopolist of jurisdiction and taxation. To the contrary, it can be demonstrated that any such institution is incompatible with the rightful and effective protection of property. According to liberal doctrine, private property rights logically and temporally precede any government. They are the result of acts of original appropriation, production, and or exchange from prior to later owner and concern the owner's right to exclusive jurisdiction over definite physical resources. In fact, it is the very purpose of private property to establish physically separated domains of exclusive jurisdiction in order to avoid possible conflicts concerning the use of scarce resources. The liberal position was summed up nicely by the 18th century French physiocrat Mercier de la Riviere, at one time intendant of Martinique, and for a brief period advisor to Catherine the Great of Russia in his L'Ordre Naturel. By virtue of his reason, he explained, man was capable of recognizing the laws leading to his greatest happiness, and all social ills follow from the disregard of these laws of human nature. In human nature, the right of self-preservation implies the right to property, and any individual property in man's products from the soil requires property in the land itself. But the right to property would be meaningless without the freedom of using it, so liberty is derived from the right to property. People flourish as social animals, 
and through trade and exchange of property they maximize the happiness of all. No private property owner can possibly surrender his right to ultimate jurisdiction over and physical protection of his property to someone else, unless he sells or otherwise transfers his property, in which case someone else gains exclusive jurisdiction over it. Every property owner may partake of the advantages of the division of labor, however, and seek more or better protection of his property through cooperation with other owners and their property. Every property owner may buy from, sell to, or otherwise contract with anyone else concerning more or better property protection, and every property owner may at any time unilaterally discontinue any such cooperation with others or change his respective affiliations. Thus, in order to meet the demand for protection, it would be rightfully possible and is economically likely that specialized individuals or agencies would arise which would provide protection, insurance, and arbitration services to voluntary clients for a fee. While it is easy to conceive of the contractual origin of a system of competitive security suppliers, it is inconceivable how private property owners could possibly enter a contract which entitled another agent to compel anyone within a given territory to come to it exclusively for protection and judicial decision-making, barring any other agent from offering protection services. Such a monopoly contract would imply that every private property owner had surrendered his rights to ultimate decision-making and the protection of his person and property permanently to someone else. In effect, in transferring this right onto someone else, a person would submit himself into permanent slavery. According to liberal doctrine, any such submission contract is from the outset impermissible, hence null and void, because it contradicts the praxeological foundation of all contracts, that is, private property and individual self-ownership. The contract theory of the state here criticized originated with Thomas Hobbes and his work De Sive and Leviathan, Hobbes there claimed that the legal bond between the ruler and the subject, once it has been tied, is indissoluble. However, notes Cassira, quote, most influential writers on politics in the 17th century rejected the conclusions drawn by Hobbes. They charged the great logician with a contradiction in terms. If a man could give up his personality, that is, his right to self-ownership, he would cease being a moral being. He would become a lifeless thing. And how could such a thing obligate itself? How could it make a promise or enter into a social contract? This fundamental right, the right to personality, includes in a sense all the others. To maintain and to develop his personality is a universal right. It is not subject to the freaks and fancies of single individuals and cannot therefore be transferred from one individual to another. The contract of rulership, which is a legal basis of all civil powers, has therefore its inherent limits. There is no pactum subjectionis, no act of submission by which man can give up the state of a free agent and enslave himself. For by such an act of renunciation he would give up that very character which constitutes his nature and essence. He would lose his humanity. End quote. No one rightfully can or likely will agree to render his person and property permanently defenseless against the actions of someone else. Similarly inconceivable is the notion that anyone would endow his monopolistic protector with a permanent right to tax. No one can or will enter a contract that allowed the protector to determine unilaterally, without consent of the protected, the sum that the protected must pay for his protection. Since Locke, liberals have tried to solve this internal contradiction through the makeshift of tacit, implicit, or conceptual agreements, contracts, or constitutions. Yet all of these characteristically torturous and confused attempts have only contributed to one and the same unavoidable conclusion, that it is impossible to derive a justification for government from explicit contracts between private property owners. On John Locke's views on consent, see his two treatises on government, book two. 
Recognizing that government is not based on express consent, he writes there, quote, The difficulty is what ought to be looked upon as a tacit consent and how far it binds, that is, how far anyone shall be looked on to have consented and thereby submitted to any government where he has made no expression of it at all. And to this I say that every man that hath any possession or enjoyment of any part of the dominions of any government doth hereby give his tacit consent, and is as far forth obliged to obedience to the laws of that government during such enjoyment as any one under it, whether this his possession be of land to him and his heirs forever, or a lodging only for a week, or whether it be barely travelling freely on the highway, and in effect it reaches as far as the very being of any one within the territories of that government. End quote. In effect, according to Locke, once a government has come into existence, regardless of whether one has expressly agreed to its rule in the first place or not, and no matter what this government does in the following, one has tacitly consented to it, and whatever it does as long as one continues to live in its territory. That is, every government always has the unanimous consent of everyone residing under its jurisdiction, and only emigration, exit, counts as a no vote and a withdrawal of consent, according to Locke. For a modern, even less convincing, or rather more absurd attempt along the same lines, see James M. Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, The Calculus of Consent. As Locke before them, Buchanan and Tullock recognize that no government anywhere is based on express consent or explicit contracts. But not to worry, they assure us, for this does not mean that governments do not nonetheless rest on unanimous consent. Even if actual disagreements and real naysayers exist, this fact might merely obscure some underlying and more profound agreement and unanimously shared consensus on the level of constitutional choice and decision-making. However, this underlying deeper agreement on the quote-unquote rules of the game, we are then told by Buchanan and Tullock, is also not an actual agreement. In fact, no constitution has ever been expressly agreed upon by everyone concerned. Rather, it is what they refer to as conceptual agreement and conceptual unanimity. In so twisting a real no into a conceptual yes, Buchanan and Tullock then first come to diagnose the state as a voluntary institution on par with private business firms. Quote, the market and the state are both devices through which cooperation is organized and made possible. Men cooperate through exchange of goods and services in organized markets, and such cooperation implies mutual gain. The individual enters into an exchange relation in which he furthers his own interest by providing some product or service that is of direct benefit of the individual on the other side of the transaction. At base, Political and collective action under the individualistic view of the state is much the same. Two or more individuals find it mutually advantageous to join forces to accomplish certain common purposes. In real sense, they exchange inputs in the securing of the commonly shared output. End quote. Moreover, by the same token, Buchanan claims to have discovered a justification for the status quo, whatever it happens to be. Quote, the institutions of the status quo, unquote, always embody and describe an, quote, existing and ongoing implicit social contract, unquote, even, quote, when an original contract may never have been made, when current members of the community sense no moral or ethical obligation to adhere to the terms that are defined in the status quo, and when such contract may have been violated many times over. The status quo defines that which exists. Hence, regardless of its history, it must be evaluated as if it were legitimate contractually, end quote. 4. Liberalism's erroneous acceptance of the institution of government as consistent with the basic liberal principles of self-ownership, original appropriation, property and contract, consequently led to its own destruction. 
First and foremost, it follows from the initial error concerning the moral status of government that the liberal solution to the eternal human problem of security, a constitutionally limited government, is a contradictory, praxeologically impossible ideal. Contrary to the original liberal intent of safeguarding liberty and property, every minimal government has the inherent tendency to become a maximal government. Once the principle of government, judicial monopoly and the power to tax is incorrectly accepted as just, any notion of restraining government power and safeguarding individual liberty and property is illusory. Predictably, under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection will continually rise and the quality of justice and protection fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms, for it is an expropriating property protector that will inevitably lead to more taxes and less protection. Even if, as liberals have proposed, a government limited its activities exclusively to the protection of pre-existing private property rights, the further question of how much security to produce would arise. Motivated, as everyone is, by self-interest and the disutility of labor, but equipped with the unique power to tax, a government agent's goal will invariably be to maximize expenditures on protection, and almost all of a nation's wealth can conceivably be consumed by the cost of protection, and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. The more money one can spend and the less one must work to produce, the better off one will be, explains Murray and Rothbard. Quote, there is a common fallacy held even by most advocates of laissez-faire that the government must supply, quote-unquote, police protection, as if police protection were a single, absolute entity, a fixed quantity of something which the government supplies to all. In actual fact, there are almost infinite degrees of all sorts of protection. For any given person or business, the police can provide everything from a policeman on the beat who patrols once a night, to two policemen patrolling constantly on each block, to cruising patrol cars, to one or even several round-the-clock personal bodyguards. Furthermore, there are many other decisions the police must make, the complexity of which becomes evident as soon as we look beneath the veil of the myth of absolute, quote-unquote, protection. How shall the police allocate their funds, which are, of course, always limited, as are the funds of all other individual organizations and agencies? How much shall the police invest in electronic equipment, fingerprinting equipment, detectives as against uniformed police, patrol cars as against foot police, etc.? The point is that the government has no rational way to make these allocations. The government only knows that it has a limited budget. End quote. Moreover, a judicial monopoly will inevitably lead to a steady deterioration in the quality of protection. If no one can appeal for justice except to government, justice will be perverted in favor of the government, constitutions and supreme courts notwithstanding. Constitutions and supreme courts are government constitutions and agencies, and whatever limitations on government action they might contain or find is invariably decided by agents of the very institution under consideration. Predictably, the definition of property and protection will continually be altered and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the government's advantage. Explains Murray and Rothbard, quote, No constitution can interpret or enforce itself. It must be interpreted by men. And if the ultimate power to interpret a constitution is given to the government's own Supreme Court, then the inevitable tendency is for the court to continue to place its imprimatur on ever broader powers for its own government. Furthermore, the highly touted checks and balances and separations of powers in the American government are flimsy indeed, since in the final analysis, all of these divisions are part of the same government and are governed by the same set of rulers. End quote. 
Second, it follows likewise from the error regarding the moral status of government that a traditional liberal preference for and attachment to local, decentralized and territorial small government is inconsistent and contradictory. Contrary to the original liberal intent, every government, including local government, has an inherent tendency towards centralization and ultimately becoming a world government. Once it is incorrectly accepted that in order to protect and enforce peaceful cooperation between two individuals, A and B, it is justified and necessary to have a judicial monopolist X, a twofold conclusion follows. If more than one territorial monopolist exists, X, Y and Z, then, just as there can be presumably no peace among A and B without X, so can there be no peace between the monopolists X, Y and Z, as long as they remain in a quote-unquote state of anarchy with each other. Hence, in order to fulfill the liberal desideratum of universal and eternal peace, all political centralization and unification, and ultimately the establishment of a single world government, is justified and necessary. Interestingly, while socialists of all stripes, traditional Marxists, social democrats, American quote-unquote liberals and neoconservatives have typically shown little difficulty in accepting the idea of world government and have thus at least been consistent, classical liberals have rarely if ever acknowledged the fact that by the logic of their own doctrine they too are forced to be advocates of a single, unified world government and clung instead inconsistently to the idea of decentralized government. Now theoretical consistency is not necessarily a good thing, and if a theory is consistent but false, one might well admit that it may be preferable to be inconsistent. However, an inconsistent theory can never be true, and in not facing up to the inconsistency of their theoretical position, liberals have typically neglected to pay attention to and account for two important, and from their own viewpoint, anomalous phenomena. On the one hand, if law and order requires a single, monopolistic judge and enforcer, government, as they claim, why does the relationship between, say, German and American businessmen appear to be just as peaceful as that between, say, New York and a California businessman? despite the fact that the former live in a quote-unquote state of anarchy vis-à-vis -vis each other. Isn't this positive proof that it is not necessary to have government in order to have peace? On the other hand, while the relationship between the citizens and firms of different countries is neither more nor less peaceful than that between citizens and firms of one and the same country, it appears to be equally obvious that the relationship of any one government say the U.S. vis-à-vis -vis both its own citizens as well as other foreign governments and their citizens, is anything but peaceful. Indeed, in his well-known book Death by Government, Rudolf Rummel has estimated that in the course of the 20th century alone, governments have been responsible for the death of approximately 170 million people. Isn't this positive proof, then, that the liberal view concerning the quote-unquote state of anarchy as conflict-ridden and of quote-unquote statism as the sine qua non of security and peace is just about the reverse of the truth? Last, it follows from the error of accepting government as just that the ancient idea of the universality of human rights and the unity of law is confused and, under the heading, quote-unquote, equality before the law, transformed into a vehicle of egalitarianism. As opposed to the anti-egalitarian, or even aristocratic, sentiment of old liberals, once the idea of universal human rights is combined with government, the result will be egalitarianism and the destruction of human rights. Once a government has been incorrectly assumed as just and hereditary princes and kings ruled out as incompatible with the idea of universal human rights, the question of how to square government with the idea of the universality and equality of human rights arises. The liberal answer is to open participation and entry into government on equal terms to everyone via democracy. Everyone, not just a hereditary class of nobles, is permitted to become a government official and exercise every government function. However, 
This democratic equality before the law is something entirely different from and incompatible with the idea of one universal law equally applicable to everyone, everywhere, and at all times. In fact, the form of objectionable schism and inequality of the higher law of kings versus the subordinate law of ordinary subject is fully preserved under democracy in the separation of public versus private law and the supremacy of the former over the latter. Under democracy, everyone is equal insofar as entry into government is open to all on equal terms. In a democracy, no personal privileges or privileged persons exist. However, functional privileges and privileged functions exist. As long as they act in official capacity, public officials are governed and protected by public law and occupy thereby a privileged position vis-à-vis persons acting under the mere authority of private law, most fundamentally in being permitted to support their own activities by taxes imposed on private law subjects. The incompatibility of private and public law has been succinctly summarized by Randy E. Barnett, Fuller Law and Anarchism, quote, For example, the state says that citizens may not take from another by force and against his will that which belongs to another, and yet the state, through its power to tax, quote-unquote, legitimately, does just that. More essentially, the state says that a person may use force upon another only in self-defense, that is, only as a defense against another who initiated the use of force. To go beyond one's right of self-defense would be to aggress on the rights of others a violation of one's legal duty. And yet the state, by its claimed monopoly, forcibly imposes its jurisdiction on persons who may have done nothing wrong. By doing so, it aggresses against the rights of its citizens, something which its rules say citizens may not do. End quote. To this one might want to add only two more pertinent observations. The state says to its citizens, do not kidnap or enslave another man. And yet the state itself does precisely this in conscripting its citizens into its army. And the state says to its citizens, do not kill or murder your fellow men. And yet the state does precisely this once it has declared a state of war to exist. Privilege and legal discrimination will not disappear. To the contrary, rather than being restricted to princes and nobles, privilege, protectionism and legal discrimination will be available to all and can be exercised by everyone. Predictably, under democratic conditions, the tendency of every monopoly to increase prices and decrease quality will only be stronger and more pronounced. As hereditary monopolist, a king or prince regarded the territory and people under his jurisdiction as his personal property and engaged in a monopolistic exploitation of his quote-unquote property. Under democracy, monopoly and monopolistic exploitation do not disappear. Even if everyone is permitted to enter government, this does eliminate the distinction between the rulers and the ruled. Government and the governed are not one and the same person. Instead of a prince who regards the country as his private property, a temporary and interchangeable caretaker is put in monopolistic charge of the country. The caretaker does not own the country, but as long as he is in office, he is permitted to use it to his and his protégé's advantage. He owns its current use, usufruct, but not its capital stock. This will not eliminate exploitation. To the contrary, it will make exploitation less calculating and more likely to be carried out with little or no regard to the capital stock. In other words, exploitation will be short-sighted. As Rothbard notes in this connection, it, quote, is curious that almost all writers parrot the notion that private owners possessing time preference must take the short view, while only government officials can take the long view and allocate property to advance the general welfare. The truth is exactly the reverse. The private individual, secure in his property and in his capital resource, can take the long view, for he wants to maintain the capital value of his resource. It is a government official who must take and run, who must plunder the property while he is still in command. Unquote. Moreover, 
With free entry into public participation in government, the perversion of justice will proceed even faster. Instead of protecting pre-existing private property rights, democratic government will become a machine for the continual redistribution of pre-existing property rights in the name of illusory social security, until the ideal of universal and immutable human rights disappears and is replaced by that of law as positive government-made legislation. 5. In light of this, an answer to the question of the future of liberalism can be sought. Because of its own fundamental error regarding the moral status of government, liberalism actually contributed to the destruction of everything it had originally set out to preserve and protect, liberty and property. Once the principle of government had been incorrectly accepted, it was only a matter of time until the ultimate triumph of socialism over liberalism. The present new conservative quote-unquote end of history of global U.S. enforced social democracy is a result of two centuries of liberal confusion. Thus, liberalism in its present form has no future. Rather, its future is social democracy, and the future has already arrived, and we know that it does not work. Once the premise of government is accepted, liberals are left without argument when socialists pursue this premise to its logical end. If monopoly is just, then centralization is just. If taxation is just, then more taxation is also just. And if democratic equality is just, then the expropriation of private property owners is just too, while private property is not. Indeed, what can a liberal say in favor of less taxation and redistribution? If it is admitted that taxation and monopoly are just, then the liberal has no principal moral case to make. Thus, writes Murray and Rothbard, quote, If it is legitimate for a government to tax, why not tax its subjects to provide other goods and services that may be useful to consumers? Why shouldn't the government, for example, build steel plants, provide shoes, dams, postal service, etc.? For each of these goods and services is useful to consumers. If the laissez-fairists object that the government should not build steel plants or shoe factories and provide them to consumers, either free or for sale, because tax coercion has been employed in constructing these plants, well, then the same objection can of course be made to governmental police or judicial service. The government should be acting no more immorally from a laissez-faire point of view when providing housing or steel than when providing police protection. Government limited to protection then cannot be sustained even within the laissez-faire ideal itself much less from any other consideration. It is true that the laissez-faire ideal could still be employed to prevent such quote-unquote second-degree coercive activities of government, that is, coercion beyond the initial coercion of taxation, as price control or outlawry of pornography, but the quote-unquote limits have now become flimsy indeed and may be stretched to virtually complete collectivism in which the government only supplies goods and services, yet supplies all of them. End quote. To lower taxes is not a moral imperative. Rather, the liberal case is exclusively an economic one. For instance, lower taxes will produce certain long-run economic benefits. However, at least in the short run and for some people, the current tax recipients, lower taxes also imply economic costs. Without moral argument at his disposal, a liberal is left only with the tool of cost-benefit analysis, but any such analysis must involve an interpersonal comparison of utility, and such a comparison is impossible, scientifically impermissible. Hence, the outcome of cost-benefit analyses is arbitrary, and every proposal justified with reference to them is mere opinion. In this situation, democratic socialists only appear more upfront, consistent, and consequent, while liberals come across as starry-eyed, confused, and unprincipled or even opportunistic. They accept the basic premise of the current order of democratic government, but then constantly lament its anti-liberal outcome. 
if liberalism is to have any future, it must repair its fundamental error. Liberals will have to recognize that no government can be contractually justified, that every government is destructive of what they want to preserve, and that protection and the production of security can only be rightfully and effectively undertaken by a system of competitive security suppliers. That is, liberalism will have to be transformed into the theory of private property anarchism, or a private law society, as first outlined nearly 150 years ago by Gustave de Molinari and in our own time fully elaborated by Murray Rothbard. Such a theoretical transformation would have an immediate twofold effect. On the one hand, it would lead to a purification of the contemporary liberal movement. Social Democrats and liberal clothes and many high-ranking liberal government functionaries would swiftly dissociate themselves from this new liberal movement. On the other hand, the transformation would lead to the systematic radicalization of the liberal movement. For those members of the movement who still hold on to the classic notion of universal human rights and the idea that self-ownership and private property rights precede all government and legislation, the transition from liberalism to private property anarchism is only a small intellectual step, especially in light of the obvious failure of democratic government to provide the only service that it was ever intended to provide, that of protection. Private property anarchism is simply consistent liberalism. Liberalism thought through to its ultimate conclusion, or liberalism restored to its original intent. An instructive example for the logical-theoretical affinity of classical liberalism and private property anarchism, that is radical libertarianism, is provided by Ludwig von Mises and his influence. Mises' best-known students today are Friedrich A. Hayek and Murray and Rothbard. The former became Mises' student in the 1920s before Mises had fully worked out his own intellectual system and would essentially become a moderate, right-wing social democrat. Rothbard, on the other hand, became Mises' student in the 1950s after Mises had worked out his entire system in his magnum opus, Human Action, a treatise on economics, and would become the theoretician of anarcho-capitalism. Unshaken, Mises would maintain his original theoretical position as a minimum state liberal. Yet, while distancing himself equally from Hayek's left-wing and Rothbard's right-wing deviationism, it is clear from Mises' review of Rothbard's first magnum opus, Man, Economy and State, that it was Rothbard to whom he felt a greater theoretical affinity. More importantly, of the following generations of intellectuals, up to the present, few of those who fully absorbed the work of Mises and Hayek and Rothbard have remained true to the quote-unquote original Mises, and fewer still have become Hayekians, while the overwhelming majority has come to adopt Rothbard's revisions of the Miesian system as the logically consequent fulfillment of Mises' own original theoretical intent. However, this small theoretical step has momentous practical implications. In taking this step, liberals would renounce their allegiance to the present system, denounce democratic government as illegitimate, and reclaim their rights to self-protection. Politically, with this step, they would return to the very beginnings of liberalism as a revolutionary creed. In denying the validity of all hereditary privileges, classical liberals would be placed in fundamental opposition to all established governments. Characteristically, liberalism's greatest political triumph, the American Revolution, was the outcome of a secessionist war. And in the Declaration of Independence, in justifying the actions of the American colonists, Jefferson affirmed that, quote, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, unquote, to secure the right to, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote, and, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, unquote. 
private property anarchists would only reaffirm the classic liberal right, quote, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, unquote. Of course, by itself, the renewed radicalism of the liberal movement would be of little consequence, although, as the American Revolution teaches, radicalism may well be popular. Instead, it is the inspiring vision of a fundamental alternative to the present system which flows from this new radicalism that will finally break the social democratic machine. Rather than supranational political integration, world government, constitutions, courts, banks and money, global social democracy, and universal and ubiquitous multiculturalism, anarchist liberals propose the decomposition of the nation-state into its constituent heterogeneous parts. As the classic forebearers, new liberals do not seek to take over any government. They ignore government. They only want to be left alone by government and secede from its jurisdiction to organize their own protection. Unlike their predecessors who merely sought to replace a larger government with a smaller one, however, new liberals pursued a logic of secession to its end. They propose unlimited secession, that is, the unrestricted proliferation of independent free territories until the state's range of jurisdiction finally withers away. Interestingly, just as Jefferson and the American Declaration of Independence consider secession from a government's jurisdiction a basic human right, so Ludwig von Mises, the 20th century foremost champion of liberalism, has been an outspoken proponent of the right to secede as implied in the most fundamental human right to self-determination. Thus, he writes, quote, The right of self-determination in regard to the question of membership in a state thus means, whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known, by a freely conducted plebiscite, that they no longer wish to remain united to a state, their wishes are to be respected and complied with. This is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and civil and international wars. If it were in any way possible to grant this right of self-determination to every individual, it would have to be done. End quote. Essentially with this statement, Mises has already crossed the line separating classical liberalism and Rothbard's private property anarchism for a government allowing unlimited secession is of course no longer a compulsory monopolist of law and order, but a voluntary association. Thus, note Rothbard with regard to Mises' pronouncement, Quote, once admit any right of secession whatever, and there is no logical stopping point short of the right of individual secession, which logically entails anarchism, since then individuals may secede and patronize their own defense agencies, and the state has crumbled. Unquote. To this end, and in complete contrast to the statist projects of quote-unquote European integration and a quote-unquote new world order, they promote a vision of a world of tens of thousands of free countries regions and cantons of hundreds of thousands of independent free cities, such as the present-day oddities of Monaco, Andorra, San Marino, Liechtenstein, formerly Hong Kong and Singapore, and even more numerous free districts and neighborhoods economically integrated through free trade. The smaller the territory, the greater the economic pressure of opting for free trade, and an international gold commodity money standard. If and when this alternative liberal vision gains prominence in public opinion, the end of the social democratic quote-unquote end of history will give rise to a liberal renaissance. Chapter 12 On Government and the Private Production of Defense It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Declaration of Independence 1. Among the most popular and consequential beliefs of our age is the belief in collective security. 
Nothing less significant than the legitimacy of the modern state rests on this belief. I will demonstrate that the idea of collective security is a myth that provides no justification for the modern state and that all security is and must be private. First off, I will present a two-step reconstruction of the myth of collective security and at each step raise a few theoretical concerns. The myth of collective security can also be called the Hobbesian myth. Thomas Hobbes and countless political philosophers and economists after him argued that in this state of nature men would constantly be at each other's throats. Homo homini lupus est, put in modern jargon, in the state of nature a permanent underproduction of security would prevail. Each individual, left to his own devices and provisions, would spend too little on his own defense, resulting in permanent interpersonal warfare. The solution to this presumably intolerable situation, according to Hobbes and his followers, is the establishment of a state. In order to institute peaceful cooperation among themselves, two individuals, A and B, require a third independent party, S, as ultimate judge and peacemaker. However, this third party, S, is not just another individual, and the good provided by S, that of security, is not just another quote-unquote private good. Rather, S is a sovereign and has as such two unique powers. On the one hand, S can insist that his subjects, A and B, not seek protection from anyone but him, that is, S is a compulsory territorial monopolist of protection. On the other hand, S can determine unilaterally how much A and B must spend on their own security, that is, S has the power to impose taxes in order to provide security, quote-unquote, collectively. There's little use in quarreling over whether man is as bad and wolf-like as Hobbes supposes or not, except to note that Hobbes's thesis obviously cannot mean that man is driven only and exclusively driven by aggressive instinct. If this were the case, mankind would have died out long ago. The fact that he did not demonstrates that man also possesses reason and is capable of constraining his natural impulses. The quarrel is only with the Hobbesian solution. Given man's nature as a rational animal, is the proposed solution to the problem of insecurity an improvement? Can the institution of a state reduce aggressive behavior and promote peaceful cooperation and thus provide for better private security and protection? The difficulties with Hobbes' argument are obvious. For one, regardless of how bad men are, S, whether king, dictator, or elected president, is still one of them. Man's nature is not transformed upon becoming S. Yet how can there be better protection for A and B if S must tax them in order to provide it? Is there not a contradiction within the very construction of S as an expropriating property protector? In fact, is this not exactly what is also, and more appropriately, referred to as a protection racket? To be sure, S will make peace between A and B, but only so that he himself can rob both of them more profitably. Surely S is better protected, but the more he is protected, the less A and B are protected from attacks by S. Collective security, it would seem, is not better private security. Rather, it is the private security of the state, S, achieved through the expropriation, that is, the economic disarmament of its subjects. Further, statists from Thomas Hobbes to James Buchanan have argued that a protective state S would come about as the result of some sort of quote-unquote constitutional contract. Yet who in his right mind would agree to a contract that allowed one's protector to determine unilaterally and irrevocably the sum that the protected must pay for his protection? The fact is, no one ever has. Let me interrupt my discussion and return to the reconstruction of the Hobbesian myth. 
Once it is assumed that in order to institute peaceful cooperation between A and B, it is necessary to have a state S, a twofold conclusion follows. If more than one state exists, S1, S2, S3, then, just as there can be presumably no peace among A and B without S, so can there be no peace between the states S1, S2, and S3, as long as they remain in a state of nature, that is, a state of anarchy, with regard to each other. Consequently, in order to achieve universal peace, political centralization, unification, and ultimately the establishment of a single world government are necessary. It is useful to indicate what can be taken as non-controversial. To begin with, the argument is correct as far as it goes. If the premise is correct, then the consequence spelled out does follow. As well, the empirical assumptions involved in the Habesian account appear at first glance to be borne out by the facts. It is true that states are constantly at war with each other, and a historical tendency toward political centralization and global rule does indeed appear to be occurring. Quarrels arise only with the explanation of this fact and tendency, and the classification of a single unified world state as an improvement in the provision of private security and protection. There appears to be an empirical anomaly for which the Habesian argument cannot account. The reason for the warring among different states, S1, S2, and S3, according to Hobbes, is that they are in a state of anarchy vis-à-vis each other. However, before the arrival of a single world state, not only are S1, S2, and S3 in a state of anarchy relative to each other, but in fact every subject of one state is in a state of anarchy vis-à-vis every subject of any other state. Accordingly, just as much war and aggression should exist between the private citizens of various states as between different states. Empirically, however, this is not so. The private dealings between foreigners appear to be significantly less warlike than the dealings between different governments. Nor does this seem to be surprising. After all, a state agent S, in contrast to every one of its subjects, can rely on domestic taxation in the conduct of his quote-unquote foreign affairs. Given his natural human aggressiveness, it is not obvious that S will be more brazen and aggressive in his conduct toward foreigners if he can externalize the cost of such behavior onto others? Surely I would be willing to take greater risks and engage in more provocation and aggression if I could make others pay for it. And surely there would be a tendency of one state, one protection racket, to want to expand its territorial protection monopoly at the expense of other states and thus bring about world government as the ultimate result of interstate competition. But how is this an improvement in the provision of private security and protection? The opposite seems to be the case. The world state is the winner of all wars and the last surviving protection racket. Doesn't this make it particularly dangerous? Will not the physical power of any single world government be overwhelming as compared to that of any one of its individual subjects? 2. Let me pause in my abstract theoretical considerations to take a brief look at the empirical evidence bearing on the issue at hand. As noted at the outset, the myth of collective security is as widespread as it is consequential. I am not aware of any survey on this matter, but I would venture to predict that the Hibesian myth is accepted more or less unquestionably by well over 90% of the adult population that the state is indispensable for protection and defense. However, to believe something does not make it true. Rather, if what one believes is false, one's actions will lead to failure. What about the evidence? Does it support Hobbes and his followers, or does it confirm the opposite anarchist fears and contentions? The United States was explicitly founded as a quote-unquote protective state a la Hobbes. Let me quote to this effect from Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. End quote. Here we have it. The United States government was instituted to fulfill one and only one task, the protection of life and property. Thus, it should provide the perfect example for judging the validity of the Hobbesian claim as to the status of states as protectors. After more than two centuries of protective statism, what is the status of our protection and peaceful human cooperation? Was the American experiment in protective statism a success? According to the pronouncements of our state rulers and their intellectual bodyguards, of whom there are more than ever before, we are better protected and more secure than ever. We are supposedly protected from global warming and cooling, from the extinction of animals and plants, from the abuses of husbands and wives, parents and employers, from poverty, disease, disaster, ignorance, prejudice, racism, sexism, homophobia, and countless other public enemies and dangers. In fact, however, matters are strikingly different. In order to provide us with all this quote-unquote protection, the state managers expropriate more than 40% of the incomes of private producers year in and year out. Government debt and liabilities have increased uninterruptedly, thus increasing the need for future expropriations. Owing to the substitution of government paper money for gold, financial insecurity has increased sharply, and we are continually robbed through currency depreciation. Every detail of private life, property, trade and contract is regulated by even higher mountains of laws, legislation, thereby creating permanent legal uncertainty and moral hazard. In particular, we have gradually stripped off the right to exclusion implied in the very concept of private property. As sellers, we cannot sell to, and as buyers, we cannot buy from whomever we wish. And as members of associations, we are not permitted to enter into whatever restrictive covenant we believe to be mutually beneficial. As Americans, we must accept immigrants we do not want as our neighbors. As teachers, we cannot get rid of ill-behaved students. As employers, we are stuck with incompetent or destructive employees. As landlords, we are forced to cope with bad tenants. As bankers and insurers, we are not allowed to avoid bad risks. As restaurant or bar owners, we must accommodate unwelcome customers. And as members of private associations, we are compelled to accept individuals and actions in violation of our own rules and restrictions. In short, the more the state has increased its expenditures on quote-unquote social security and quote-unquote public safety, the more our private property rights have been eroded, the more our property has been expropriated, confiscated, destroyed or depreciated, and the more we have been deprived of the very foundation of all protection, economic independence, financial strength and personal wealth. The path of every president and practically every member of Congress is littered with hundreds of thousands of nameless victims of personal economic ruin, financial bankruptcy, emergency, impoverishment, despair, hardship and frustration. The picture appears even bleaker when we consider foreign affairs. Seldom during its entire history has the continental U.S. been territorially attacked by any foreign army. Pearl Harbor was the result of a preceding U.S. provocation. Yet the United States has the distinction of having had a government that declared war against a large part of its own population and engaged in a wanton murder of hundreds of thousands of its own citizens. Moreover, while the relations between American citizens and foreigners do not appear to be unusually contentious, Almost from its very beginnings, the U.S. government relentlessly pursued aggressive expansionism, beginning with the Spanish-American War reaching a peak in World War I and World War II, and continuing to the present, the U.S. government has become entangled in hundreds of foreign conflicts and risen to the rank of the world's dominant imperialist power. 
that nearly every president since the turn of this century has also been responsible for the murder, killing or starvation of countless innocent foreigners all over the world. In short, while we have become more helpless, impoverished, threatened and insecure, the US government has become even more brazen and aggressive. In the name of national security, it defends us, equipped with enormous stockpiles of weapons of aggression and mass destruction, by bullying every new Hitler's, big or small, and all suspected Hitlerite sympathizers anywhere and everywhere outside of the territory of the United States. Since the end of World War II, for instance, the United States government has intervened militarily in China, 1945-46, Korea, 1950-53, China, 1950-53, Iran, 1953, Guatemala, 1954, Indonesia, 1958, Cuba, 1959-1960, Guatemala, 1960, Congo, 1965, Laos, 1964-73, Vietnam, 1961-73, Cambodia, 1969-70, Guatemala, 1967-69, Grenada, 1983, Lebanon, 1983, Libya, 1986, El Salvador, 1980s, Nicaragua, 1980s, Panama, 1989, Iraq, 1991-1999, Bosnia, and the American experiment in protective statism and complete failure. The United States government does not protect us. To the contrary, there exists no greater danger to our life, property, and prosperity than the U.S. government, and the U.S. president in particular is the world's single most threatening and armed danger, capable of ruining everyone who opposes him and destroying the entire globe. 3. Statist react much like socialists when faced with the dismal economic performance of the Soviet Union and its satellites. They do not necessarily deny the disappointing facts, but they try to argue them away by claiming that these facts are the result of a systematic discrepancy, deviancy, between real and ideal or true statism, respectively socialism. To this day, socialists claim that true socialism has not been refuted by the empirical evidence and that everything would have turned out well and unparalleled prosperity would have resulted if only Trotsky's or Bukharin's, or better still, their very own brand of socialism, rather than Stalin's, had been implemented. Similarly, statists interpret all seemingly contradictory evidence as only accidental. If only some other president had come to power at this or that turn in history, or if only this or that constitutional change or amendment had been adopted, everything would have turned out beautifully and unparalleled security and peace would have resulted. Indeed, this may still happen in the future if their own policies are employed. We have learned from Ludwig von Mises how to respond to the socialist evasion immunization strategy. As long as the defining characteristic, the essence of socialism, that is the absence of the private ownership of factors of production, remains in place, no reforms will be of any help. The idea of a socialist economy is a contradiction in terms, and the claim that socialism represents a higher, more efficient mode of social production is absurd. In order to reach one's own ends efficiently and without waste within the framework of an exchange economy based on the vision of labor, it is necessary that one engage in monetary calculation, cost accounting. Everywhere outside the system of a primitive self-sufficient single household economy, monetary calculation is the sole tool of rational and efficient action. Only by comparing inputs and outputs arithmetically in terms of a common medium of exchange, money, 
Can a person determine whether his actions are successful or not? In distinct contrast, socialism means to have no economy, no economizing at all, because under these conditions, monetary calculation and cost accounting is impossible by definition. If no private property and factors for production exists, then no prices for any production factor exists. Hence, it is impossible to determine whether or not they are employed economically. Accordingly, socialism is not a higher mode of production, but rather economic chaos and regression to primitivism. How to respond to the statist evasion strategy has been explained by Maria and Rothbard. But Rothbard's lesson, while equally simple and clear and of even more momentous implications, has remained to this day far less known and appreciated. So long as the defining characteristic, the essence of a state, remains in place, he explained, no reform, whether of personnel or constitutional, will be to any avail. Given the principle of government, judicial monopoly and the power to tax, any notion of limiting its power and safeguarding individual life and property is illusory. Under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection must rise and its quality must fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms and will lead to ever more taxes and less protection. Even if a government limited its activities exclusively to the protection of pre-existing property rights, as every quote-unquote protective state is supposed to do, the further question of how much security to provide would arise. Motivated, like everyone else, by self-interest and the disutility of labor, but for the unique power to tax, a government's answer will invariably be the same to maximize expenditures on protection, and almost all of a nation's wealth can conceivably be consumed by the cost of protection, and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. Furthermore, a judicial monopoly must lead to a deterioration in the quality of justice and protection. If one can only appeal to government for justice and protection, justice and protection will be perverted in favor of government, constitutions, and supreme courts notwithstanding. After all, Constitutions and Supreme Courts are state constitutions and courts, and whatever limitations to government action they might contain is determined by agents of the very institution under consideration. Accordingly, the definition of property and protection will continually be altered, and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the government's advantage. Hence, Rothbard pointed out, it follows that just as socialism cannot be reformed but must be abolished in order to achieve prosperity, so can the institution of the state not be reformed, but must be abolished in order to achieve justice and protection. Quote, defense in the free society, including such defense services to person and property as police protection and judicial findings, unquote, Rothbard concluded, quote, would therefore have to be supplied by people or firms who a. gained their revenue voluntarily, rather than by coercion, and b. did not, as the state does, arrogate to themselves a compulsory monopoly of police or judicial protection. Defense firms would have to be as freely competitive and as non-coercive against non-invaders as are all other suppliers of goods and services on the free market. Defense services, like all other services, would be marketable and marketable only. End quote. That is, every private property owner would be able to partake of the advantages of the division of labor and seek better protection of his property than that afforded through self-defense by cooperation with other owners and their property. Anyone could buy from sell to or otherwise contract with anyone else concerning protective and judicial services, and one could at any time unilaterally discontinue any such cooperation with others and fall back on self-reliance, defense, or change one's protective affiliations. 4. Having reconstructed the myth of collective security, the myth of the state, and criticized it on theoretical and empirical grounds, I now must take on the task of constructing the positive case for private security and protection. 
In order to dispel the myth of collective security, it is not just sufficient to grasp the error involved in the idea of a protective state. It is just as important, if not more so, to gain a clear understanding of how the non-status security alternative would effectively work. Rothbard, building on the path-breaking analysis of the French-Belgian economist Gustave de Molinari, has given us a sketch of the workings of a free market system of protection and defense. As well, we're in debt to Morris and Linda Tanhill for their brilliant insights and analysis in this regard. Following their lead, I will proceed with my analysis and provide a more comprehensive view of the alternative, non-statist system of security production and its ability to handle attacks, not just by individuals or gangs, but in particular also by states. Widespread agreement exists among liberal libertarians, such as Molinari, Rothbard and Nathan Hills, as well as most other commentators on the matter, that defense is a form of insurance and defense expenditures represent a sort of insurance premium, price. Accordingly, as Rothbard and Nathan Hills in particular would emphasize, within the framework of a complex modern economy based on worldwide division of labor, the most likely candidates to offer protection and defense services are insurance agencies. The better the protection of insured property, the lower are the damage claims and hence an insurer's costs. Thus, to provide efficient protection appears to be in every insurer's own financial interest. Indeed, although restricted and hampered by the state, even now insurance agencies provide wide-ranging services of protection and indemnification, compensation, to injured private parties. Insurance companies fulfill a second essential requirement. Obviously, anyone offering protection services must appear able to deliver on his promises in order to find clients. That is, he must possess the economic means, the manpower as well as the physical resources necessary to accomplish the task of dealing with the dangers, actual or imagined, of the real world. On this count, insurance agencies appear to be perfect candidates too. They operate at a nationwide and even international scale and they own large property holdings dispersed over wide territories and beyond single state boundaries. Accordingly, they have a manifest self-interest in effective protection and are the big and economically powerful. Furthermore, all insurance companies are connected through a network of contractual agreements of mutual assistance and arbitration, as well as a system of international reinsurance agencies representing a combined economic power which dwarfs that of most existing governments. Let me further analyze and systematically clarify this suggestion, that protection and defense are insurance and can be provided by insurance agencies. To reach this goal, two issues must be addressed. First off, it is not possible to insure oneself against every risk of life. I cannot insure myself against committing suicide, for instance, or against burning down my own house, becoming unemployed, not feeling like getting out of bed in the morning, or not suffering entrepreneurial losses, because in each case I have full or partial control over the likelihood of the respective outcome. Risks such as these must be assumed individually. No one but I can possibly deal with them. Hence, the first question must be, what makes protection and defense an insurable rather than an uninsurable risk? After all, as we have just seen, this is not self-evident. In fact, does not everyone have considerable control over the likelihood of an attack on and invasion of his person and property? Do I not deliberately bring about an attack by assaulting or provoking someone else, for instance, and is not protection then an uninsurable risk, like suicide or unemployment, for which each person must assume sole responsibility? The answer is a qualified yes and no. Yes, insofar as no one can possibly offer unconditional protection, that is, insurance against any invasion whatsoever. That is, unconditional protection can only be provided, if at all, by each individual on his own and for himself. But the answer is no, insofar as conditional protection is concerned. 
Only attacks and invasions that are provoked by the victim cannot be insured. Unprovoked and thus accidental attacks can be insured against, however. That is, protection becomes an insurable good only if and insofar as an insurance agent contractually restricts the actions of the insured so as to exclude every possible provocation on their part. Various insurance companies may differ with respect to the specific definition of provocation, but there can be no difference between insurers with regard to the principle that everyone must systematically exclude, prohibit, all provocative and aggressive action among its own clients. As elementary as this first insight into the essentially defensive, non-aggressive and non-provocative nature of protection insurance may seem, it is of fundamental importance. For one, it implies that any known aggressor and provocateur would be unable to find an insurer and hence would be economically isolated, weak and vulnerable. On the other hand, it implies that anyone wanting more protection than that afforded by self-reliant self-defense could do so only if and insofar as he submitted himself to specified norms of non-aggressive civilized conduct. Further, the greater the number of insured people, and in a modern exchange economy most people want more than just self-defense for their protection, the greater would be the economic pressure on the remaining uninsured to adopt the same or similar standard of non-aggressive social conduct. Moreover, as the result of competition between insurers for voluntary paying clients, a tendency toward falling prices per insured property values would come about. At the same time, the system of competing insurers would have a twofold impact on the development of law and thus contribute further to reduce conflict. On the one hand, the system would allow for systematically increased variability and flexibility of law. Rather than imposing a uniform set of standards onto everyone, as under statist conditions, insurance agencies could and would compete against each other not just via price, but in particular also through product differentiation and development. Insurers could and would differ and distinguish themselves with respect to the behavioral code imposed on and expected of their clients, with respect to rules of evidence and procedure, and or with respect to the sort and assignment of awards and punishments. There could and would exist side by side, for instance, Catholic insurers applying canon law, Jewish insurers applying Mosaic law, Muslims applying Islamic law, and non-believers applying secular law of one variant or another, all of them sustained by and vying for a voluntarily paying clientele. Consumers could and would choose and sometimes change the law applied to them and their property. That is, no one would be forced to live under quote-unquote foreign law, and hence a prominent source of conflict would be eliminated. On the other hand, a system of insurers offering competing law codes would promote a tendency toward unification of law. The quote-unquote domestic, Catholic, Jewish, Roman, Germanic, etc. law would apply and be binding only on the persons and properties of the insured, the insurer, and all others insured by the same insurer under the same law. Canon law, for instance, would apply only to professed Catholics and deal solely with inter-Catholic conflict and conflict resolution. Yet it would also be possible for a Catholic to interact, come into conflict with, and wish to be protected from the subscribers of other law codes, for instance a Muslim. From this, no difficulty would arise so long as Catholic and Islamic law reached the same or a similar conclusion regarding the case and contenders at hand. But if competing law codes arrive at distinctly different conclusions, as they would in at least some cases by virtue of the fact that they represent different law codes, a problem would arise. The insured would want to be protected against the contingency of intergroup conflict too, but quote-unquote domestic intergroup law would be of no avail in this regard. In fact, at a minimum, two distinct quote-unquote domestic law codes would be involved and they would come to different conclusions. 
In such a situation, it could not be expected that one insurer and the subscribers of his law code, say the Catholics, would simply subordinate their judgment to that of another insurer and his law, say that of the Muslims, or vice versa. Rather, each insurer, Catholic and Muslim alike, would have to contribute to the development of intergroup law that is law applicable in cases of disagreement among competing insurers and law codes. And because the intergroup law provisions that an insurer offered to its clients could appear credible to them, and hence a good, only if and insofar as the same provisions were also accepted by other insurers, and the more of them the better, competition would promote the development and refinement of a body of law that incorporated the widest intergroup, cross-cultural, etc. legal model consensus and agreement, and thus represented the greatest common denominator among various competing law codes. More specifically, because competing insurers and law codes could and would disagree regarding the merit of at least some of the cases brought jointly before them, every insurer would be compelled to submit itself and its clients in these cases from the outset to arbitration by an independent third party. This third party would not just be independent of the two disagreeing parties, however. It would at the same time be the unanimous choice of both parties. And as objects of unanimous choice, arbitrators then would represent or even personify quote-unquote consensus and quote-unquote agreeability. They would be agreed upon because of the commonly perceived ability of finding and formulating mutually agreeable, that is, fair solutions in cases of intergroup disagreement. Moreover, if an arbitrator failed in this task and arrived at conclusions that were perceived as unfair or biased by either one of the insurers and or their clients, this person would not likely be chosen again as an arbitrator in the future. Consequently, protection and security contracts would come into existence as the first fundamental result of competition between insurers for a voluntarily paying clientele. Insurers, unlike states, would offer their clients contracts with well-specified property and product descriptions and clearly defined and delineated duties and obligations. Likewise, the relationship between insurers and arbitrators would be defined and governed by contract. Each party to a contract for the duration or until fulfillment of the contract, would be bound by its terms and conditions, and every change in the terms or conditions of a contract would require the unanimous consent of all parties concerned. That is, under competition, unlike under status conditions, no quote-unquote legislation would or could exist. No insurer could get away, as a state can, with promising its clients protection without letting them know how or at what price, and insisting that it could, if it so desired, unilaterally change the terms and conditions of the protected client relationship. Insurance clients would demand something significantly better, and insurers would comply and supply contracts and constant law instead of promises and shifting and changing legislation. Furthermore, as a result of the continued cooperation of various insurers and arbitrators, a tendency toward the unification of property and contract law and the harmonization of the rules of procedure, evidence and conflict resolution, including such questions as liability, tort, compensation and punishment, would be set in motion. On account of buying protection insurance, everyone would become tied into a global competitive enterprise of striving to reduce conflict and enhance security. Moreover, every single conflict and damage claim, regardless where and by or against whom, would fall into the jurisdiction of one or more specific insurance agencies and would be handled either by an individual insurer's domestic law or by the international law provisions and procedures agreed upon in advance by a group of insurers thus assuring ex-ante complete and perfect legal stability and certainty. 5. Now a second question must be addressed. Even if the status of defensive protection as an insurable good is granted, distinctly different forms of insurance exist. 
let us consider just two characteristic examples. Insurance against natural disasters such as earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, and insurance against industrial accidents or disasters such as malfunctions, explosions, and defective products. The former can serve as an example of group or mutual insurance. Some territories are more prone to natural disasters than others. Accordingly, the demand for and price of insurance will be higher in some areas than others. However, every location within certain territorial borders is regarded by the insurer as homogenous with respect to the risk concerned. The insurer presumably knows the frequency and extent of the event in question for the region as a whole, but he knows nothing about the particular risk of any specific location within the territory. In this case, every insured person will pay the same premium per insured value, and the premiums collected in one time period will presumably be sufficient to cover all damage claims during the same time period, otherwise the insurance industry will incur losses. Thus, the particular individual risks are pooled and insured mutually. In contrast, industrial insurance can serve as an example of individual insurance. Unlike natural disasters, the insured risk is the outcome of human action, that is, of production efforts. Every production process is under the control of an individual producer. No producer intends to fail or experience a disaster, and as we have seen, only accidental, non-intended disasters are insurable. Yet even if production is largely controlled and generally successful, every producer and production technology is subject to occasional mishaps and accidents beyond his control, a margin of error. However, since it is the outcome, intended or not, of individual production efforts and production techniques, this risk of industrial accident is essentially different from one producer and production process to another. Accordingly, the risk of different producers and production technologies cannot be pooled, and every producer must be insured individually. In this case, the insurer will have to know the frequency of the questionable event over time, but he cannot know the likelihood of the event at any specific point in time, except that all times the same producer and production technology are in operation. There's no presumption that the premiums collected during any given period will be sufficient to cover all damage claims arising during that period. Rather, the profit-making presumption is that all premiums collected over many time periods will be sufficient to cover all claims during the same multi-period time span. Consequently, in this case, an insurer must hold capital reserves in order to fulfill its contractual obligation, and in calculating his premiums, he must take the present value of these reserves into account. The second question is, what kind of insurance can protect against aggression and invasion by other actors? Can it be provided as group insurance, as for natural disasters, or must it be offered in the form of individual insurance, as in the case of industrial accidents? Note that both forms of insurance represent only the two possible extremes of a continuum and that the position of any particular risk on this continuum is not definitely fixed. Owing to scientific and technological advances in meteorology, geology or engineering, for instance, risks that were formerly regarded as homogenous, allowing for mutual insurance, can become more and more dehomogenized. Noteworthy is this tendency in the field of medical and health insurance. With the advances of genetics and genetic engineering, genetic fingerprinting, Medical and health risks, previously regarded as homogenous, unspecific, with respect to large numbers of people, have become increasingly more specific and heterogeneous. With this in mind, can anything specific be said about protection insurance in particular? I would think so. After all, while all insurance requires that the risk be accidental from the standpoint of the insurer and the insured, the accident of an aggressive invasion is distinctly different from that of natural or industrial disasters. Whereas natural disasters and industrial accidents are the outcome of natural forces and the operation of laws of nature, aggression is the outcome of human actions. And whereas nature is blind and does not discriminate between individuals, whether at the same point in time or over time, an aggressor can discriminate 
and deliberately target specific victims and choose the timing of his attack. 6. Let me first contrast defense protection insurance with that against natural disasters. Frequently an analogy between the two is drawn, and it is instructive to examine if or to what extent it holds. The analogy is that just as every individual with certain geographical regions is threatened by the same risk of earthquakes, floods or hurricanes, so does every inhabitant within the territory of the US or Germany, for instance, face the same risk of being victimized by a foreign attack. Some superficial similarity, to which I shall come shortly, notwithstanding, it is easy to recognize two fundamental shortcomings in the analogy. For one, the borders of earthquake, flood or hurricane regions are established according to objective physical criteria and hence can be referred to as natural. In distinct contrast, political boundaries are artificial boundaries. The borders of the U.S. changed throughout the entire 19th century and Germany did not exist as such until 1871 and was composed of 38 separate countries. Surely no one would want to claim that this redrawing of the U.S. or German borders was the outcome of the discovery that the security risk of every American or German within the greater U.S. or Germany was, contrary to the previous held opposite belief, homogenous, identical. There is a second obvious shortcoming. Nature, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, is blind in its destruction. It does not discriminate between more and less valuable locations and objects, but attacks indiscriminately. In distinct contrast, an aggressor invader can and does discriminate. It does not attack or invade worthless locations and things, like the Sahara Desert, but targets locations and things that are valuable. Other things being equal, the more valuable a location and an object, the more likely it will be the target of an invasion. This raises the next crucial question. If political borders are arbitrary and attacks are never indiscriminate, but directed specifically toward valuable places and things, are there any non-arbitrary borders separating different security risk attack zones? The answer is yes. Such non-arbitrary borders are those of private property. Private property is the result of the appropriation and or production of particular physical objects or effects by specific individuals at specific locations. Every appropriator, producer, owner demonstrates with his actions that he regards the appropriated and produced things as valuable goods, otherwise he would not have appropriated or produced them. The borders of everyone's property are objective and intersubjectively ascertainable. They are simply determined by the extension and dimension of the things appropriated and or produced by any one particular individual, and the borders of all valuable places and things are coextensive with the borders of all property. At any given point in time, every valuable place and thing is owned by someone. Only worthless places and things are owned by no one. Surrounded by other men, every appropriator and producer can also become the object of an attack or invasion. Every property in contrast to things, matter, is necessarily valuable. Hence, every property owner becomes a possible target of other men's aggressive desires. Consequently, every owner's choice of the location and form of his property will, among countless other considerations, also be influenced by security concerns. Other things equal, everyone will prefer safer locations and forms of property to locations and forms which are less safe. Yet, regardless of where an owner and his property are located, and whatever the property's physical form, Every owner, by virtue of not abandoning his property even in view of potential aggression, demonstrates his personal willingness to protect and defend these possessions. However, if the borders of private property are the only non-arbitrary borders standing in systematic relation to the risk of aggression, then it follows that as many different security zones as there are separately owned property holdings exist, and that these zones are no larger than the extension of these holdings. That is, 
Even more so than in the case of industrial accident, the insurance of property against aggression would seem to be an example of individual rather than group mutual protection. Whereas the accident risk of an individual production process is typically independent of its location, such that if the process were replicated by the same producer at different locations, his margin of error would remain the same, the risk of aggression against private property, the production plant, is different from one location to another. By its very nature, as privately appropriated and produced goods, property is always separate and distinct. Every property is located at a different place and under the control of a different individual, and each location faces a unique security risk. It can make a difference for my security, for instance, if I reside in the countryside of the city, on a hill, or in a valley, or near or far from a river, ocean, harbour, railroad, or street. In fact, even contiguous locations do not face the same risk. It can make a difference, for instance, if I reside higher or lower on the mountain than my neighbour, upstream or downstream, closer or more distant from the ocean, or simply north, south, west, or east of him. Moreover, every property, wherever it is located, can be shaped and transformed by its owner so as to increase its safety and reduce the likelihood of aggression. I may acquire a gun or safe deposit box, for instance, or I may be able to shoot down an attacking plane from my backyard or own a laser gun that can kill an aggressor thousands of miles away. Thus, no location and no property are like any other. Every owner will have to be insured individually, and to do so, every aggression insurer must hold sufficient capital reserves. 7. The analogy typically drawn between insurance against natural disasters and external aggression is fundamentally flawed, as aggression is never indiscriminate but selective and targeted, so is defense. Everyone has different locations and things to defend, and no one's security risk is the same as anyone else's, yet the analogy contains a kernel of truth. However, any similarity between natural disasters and external aggression is due not to the nature of aggression and defense, but to the rather specific nature of state aggression and defense, interstate warfare. As explained above, a state is an agency that exercises a compulsory territorial monopoly of protection and the power to tax, and any such agency will be comparatively more aggressive because it can externalize the costs of such behavior onto its subjects. However, the existence of a state does not just increase the frequency of aggression, it changes its entire character. The existence of states, and especially of democratic states, implies that aggression and defense, war, will tend to be transformed into total, undiscriminating war. Consider for a moment a completely stateless world. While most property owners would be individually insured by large, often multinational insurance companies endowed with huge capital reserves, as bad risks, most if not all aggressors would be without any insurance whatever. In this situation, every aggressor or group of aggressors would want to limit their targets, preferably to uninsured property, and avoid all quote-unquote collateral damage as they would otherwise find themselves confronted with one or many economically powerful professional defense agencies. Likewise, all defensive violence would be highly selective and targeted. All aggressors would be specific individuals or groups located at specific places and equipped with specific resources. In response to attacks on their clients, insurance agencies would specifically target these locations and resources for retaliation, and they would avoid any collateral damage as they would otherwise become entangled with and liable to other insurers. All of this changes fundamentally in a statist world with interstate warfare. If one state, the U.S., attacks another, for instance Iraq, this is not just an attack by a limited number of people equipped with limited resources and located at a clearly identifiable place. Rather, it is an attack by all Americans and with all of their resources. Every American supposedly pays taxes to the U.S. government and is thus de facto, whether he wishes to be or not, 
implicated in every government aggression. Hence, while it is obviously false to claim that every American faces an equal risk of being attacked by Iraq, low or non-existent as such a risk is, it is certainly higher in New York City than in Wichita, Kansas, for instance, every American is rendered equal with respect to his own active, if not always voluntary, participation in each of his government's aggressions. Second, just as the attacker is a state, so is the attacked, Iraq. As its U.S. counterpart, the Iraqi government has the power to tax its population or draft it into its armed forces. As taxpayer or draftee, every Iraqi is implicated in his government's defense, just as every American is drawn into the U.S. government's attack. Thus, the war becomes a war of all Americans against all Iraqis, that is, total war. The strategy of both the attacker and the defender state will be changed accordingly. While the attacker still must be selective regarding the targets of his attack, if for no other reason than that even taxing agencies, states, are ultimately constrained by scarcity, the aggressor has little or no incentive to avoid or minimize collateral damage. To the contrary, since the entire population and national wealth is involved in the defensive effort, collateral damage, whether of lives or property, is even desirable. No clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants exists. Everyone is an enemy, and all property provides support for the attacked government. Hence, everyone and everything becomes fair game. Likewise, the defender state will be a little concerned about collateral damage resulting from its own retaliation against the attacker. Every citizen of the attacker state and all of their property is a foe and enemy property and thus becomes a possible target of retaliation. Moreover, every state, in accordance with this character of interstate war, will develop and employ more weapons of mass destruction, such as atomic bombs, rather than long-range precision weapons, such as one might imagine, laser gun. Thus, the similarity between war and natural catastrophes, their seemingly indiscriminate destruction and devastation, is exclusively a feature of a statist world. 8. This brings on the last problem. We have seen that just as all property is private, so is and must all defense be insured individually by capitalized insurance agencies, very much like industrial accident insurance. We have also seen that both forms of insurance differ in one fundamental respect. In the case of defense insurance, the location of the insured property matters. The premium per insured value will be different at different locations. Furthermore, aggressors can move around, the arsenal of weapons may change, and the entire character of aggression can alter with the presence of states. Thus, even given an initial property location, the price per insured value can alter with changes in the social environment or surroundings of this location. How would a system of competitive insurance agencies respond to this challenge? In particular, how would it deal with the existence of states and state aggression? In answering these questions, it is essential to recall some elementary economic insights. Other things being equal, private property owners generally, and business owners in particular, prefer locations with low protection costs, insurance premiums, and rising property values to those with high protection costs and falling property values. Consequently, there is a tendency to the migration of people and goods from high-risk and falling property value areas into low-risk and increasing property value areas. Furthermore, protection costs and property values are directly related. Other things being equal, higher protection costs, Greater attack risks imply lower or falling property values and lower protection costs imply higher or increasing property values. These laws and tendencies shape the operation of a competitive system of insurance protection agencies. Whereas a tax-funded monopolist will manifest a tendency to raise the cost and price of protection, private profit-loss insurance agencies strive to reduce the cost of protection and thus bring about falling prices. At the same time, insurance agencies are more interested than anyone else in rising property values 
because this implies not only that their own property holdings appreciate, but that there will also be more of other people's property for them to insure. In contrast, if the risk of aggression increases and property values fall, there is less value to be insured while the cost of protection and price of insurance rises, implying poor business conditions for an insurer. Consequently, insurance companies would be under permanent economic pressure to promote the former favorable and avert the latter unfavorable condition. This incentive structure has a fundamental impact on the operation of insurers. First, as for the seemingly easier case of the protection against common crime and criminals, the system of competitive insurers would lead to a dramatic change in current crime policy. To recognize the extent of this change, it is instructive to look first at the present and familiar status crime policy. While it is in the interest of state agents to combat common private crime, if only so that there is more property left for them to tax, as tax-funded agents, they have little or no interest in being particularly effective at the task of preventing it, or, if it has occurred, at compensating its victims and apprehending and punishing the offenders. Moreover, under democratic conditions, insult will be added to injury, for if everyone, aggressors as well as non-aggressors, and residents of high-crime locations as well as those of low-crime locations, can vote, and be elected to government office, a systematic redistribution of property rights from non-aggressors to aggressors and the residents of low-crime areas to those of high-crime areas comes into effect and crime will actually be promoted. Accordingly, crime and the demand for private security services of all kinds are currently at an all-time high. Even more scandalously, instead of compensating the victims of crimes it did not prevent, as it should have, the government forces victims to pay again as taxpayers for the cost of the apprehension, imprisonment, rehabilitation and or entertainment of their aggressors. And rather than requiring higher protection prices in high crime locations and lower ones in low crime locations, as insurers would, the government does the exact opposite. It taxes more in low crime and high property value areas than in high crime and low property value ones, or it even subsidizes the residents of the latter locations, the slums, at the expense of those of the former, eroding the social conditions unfavorable to crime while promoting those favorable to it. The operation of competitive insurers would present a striking contrast. For one, if an insurer could not prevent a crime, it would have to indemnify the victim. Thus, above all, insurers would want to be effective in crime prevention. If they still could not prevent it, they would want to be efficient in the detection, apprehension and punishment of criminal offenders because in finding and arresting an offender, the insurer could force the criminal, rather than the victim and its insurer, to pay for the damages and cost of indemnification. More specifically, Just as insurance companies currently maintain and continually update a detailed local inventory of property values, so would they maintain and continually update a detailed local inventory of crimes and criminals. Other things being equal, the risk of aggression against any private property location increases with the proximity and the number of resources of potential aggressors. Thus insurers would be interested in gathering information on actual crimes and known criminals and their locations, and it would be in their mutual interest of minimizing property damage to share this information with each other just as banks now share information on bad credit risks with each other. Furthermore, insurers would also be particularly interested in gathering information on potential, not yet committed and known crimes and aggressors, and this would lead to a fundamental overhaul of and improvement in current statist crime statistics. In order to predict the future incidence of crime and thus calculate its current price, premium, insurers would correlate the frequency, description and character of crimes and criminals with the social surroundings in which they occur and operate and always under competitive pressure, they would develop and continually refine an elaborate system of demographic and sociological crime indicators. That is, every neighborhood would be described and its risk assessed, 
in terms of a multitude of crime indicators, such as the composition of its inhabitant sexes, age groups, races, nationalities, ethnicities, religions, languages, professions, and incomes. Consequently, and in distinct contrast to the present situation, all interlocal, regional, racial, national, ethnic, religious, and linguistic income and wealth redistribution would disappear and a constant source of social conflict would be removed permanently. Instead, the emerging price premium structure would tend to accurately reflect the risk of each location and its particular social surrounding such that one would only be asked to pay for the insurance risk of himself and of that associated with his particular neighborhood. More importantly, based on its continually updated and refined system of statistics on crime and property values, and further motivated by the noted migration tendency from high-risk, low-value, henceforth bad, to low-risk, high-value, henceforth good locations, a system of competitive aggression insurers would promote a tendency towards civilizational progress rather than decivilization. Governments, and democratic governments in particular, erode good and promote bad neighborhoods through their tax and transfer policy. They do so also, and with possibly an even more damaging effect, through their policy of forced integration. This policy has two aspects. On the one hand, for the owners and residents in good locations and neighborhoods who are faced with an immigration problem, forced integration means that they must accept without discrimination every domestic immigrant as transient or tourist on public roads, as customer, client, resident or neighbor. They are prohibited by the government from excluding anyone, including anyone they consider an undesirable potential risk from immigration. On the other hand, for the owners and residents in bad locations and neighborhoods who experience emigration rather than immigration, forced integration means that they are prevented from effective self-protection. Rather than being allowed to rid themselves of crime through the expulsion of known criminals from their neighborhood, they are forced by their government to live in permanent association with their aggressors. The result of a system of private protection insurers would be in striking contrast to these only all-too-familiar decivilizing effects and tendencies of status crime protection. To be sure, insurers would be unable to eliminate the differences between good and bad neighborhoods. In fact, these differences might even become more pronounced. However, driven by their interest in rising property values and falling protection costs, insurers would promote a tendency to improve by uplifting and cultivating both good and bad neighborhoods. Thus, in good neighborhoods, insurers would adopt a policy of selective immigration. Unlike states, they could and would not want to disregard the discriminating inclinations among the insured to its immigrants. To the contrary, even more so than any one of their clients, insurers would be interested in discrimination, that is, in admitting only those immigrants whose presence add to a lower crime risk and increased property values, and in excluding those whose presence leads to a higher risk and lower property values. That is, rather than eliminating discrimination, insurers would rationalize and perfect its practice. Based on the statistics on crime and property values, and in order to reduce the cost of protection and raise property values, Insurers would formulate and continually refine various restrictive, exclusionary rules and procedures relating to immigration and immigrants, and thus give quantitative precision in the form of prices and price differences to the value of discrimination and the cost of non-discrimination between potential immigrants as high or low risk and value productive. Similarly, in bad neighborhoods, the interests of the insurers and the insured would coincide. Insurers would not want to suppress the expulsionist inclinations among the insured toward known criminals. They would rationalize such tendencies by offering selective price cuts contingent on specific cleanup operations. Indeed, in cooperation with one another, insurers would want to expel known criminals not just from their immediate neighborhood, but from civilization altogether into the wilderness or open frontier of the Amazon jungle, 
the Sahara or the polar regions. 9. What about defense against a state? How would insurers protect us from state aggression? First off, it is essential to remember that governments as compulsory tax funders monopolies are inherently wasteful and inefficient in whatever they do. This is also true for weapons technology and production and military intelligence and strategy, especially in our age of high technology. Accordingly, states would not be able to compete within the same territory against voluntary finance insurance agencies. Moreover, most important and general among the restrictive rules relating to immigration and designed by insurers to lower protection costs and increase property values would be a rule concerning government agents. States are inherently aggressive and pose a permanent danger to every insurer and insured. Thus, insurers in particular would want to exclude or severely restrict, as a potential security risk, the immigration, territorial entry of all known government agents, and they would induce the insured, either as a condition of insurance or of a lower premium, to exclude or strictly limit any direct contact with any known government agent, be it as a visitor, customer, client, resident or neighbor. That is, wherever insurance companies operated in all free territories, state agents would be treated as undesirable outcasts, potentially more dangerous than any common criminal. Accordingly, states and their personnel would be able to operate and reside only in territorial separation from and on the fringes of free territories. Furthermore, owing to the comparatively lower economic productivity of status territories, governments would be continually weakened by the emigration of their most valued productive residents. Now, what if such a government should decide to attack or invade a free territory? This would be easier said than done. Who and what would it attack? There would be no state opponent. Only private property owners and their private insurance agencies would exist. No one, least of all the insurers, would have presumably engaged in aggression or even provocation. If there were any aggression or provocation against the state at all, this would be the action of a particular person, and in this case the interests of the state and insurance agencies would fully coincide. Both would want to see the attacker punished and held accountable for all damages, but without any aggressor enemy, how could the state justify an attack, not to mention an indiscriminate attack? And surely it would have to justify it, for the power of every government, even the most despotic one, ultimately rests on opinion and consent, as Laboitier, Hume, Mises and Rothbard have explained. Kings and presidents can issue an order to attack, of course, but there must be scores of men willing to execute their order to put it into effect. There must be generals receiving and following the order, soldiers willing to march, kill and be killed, and domestic producers willing to continue producing to fund the war. If this consensual willingness were absent because the orders of the state rulers were considered illegitimate, even the seemingly most powerful government would be rendered ineffectual and collapse, as the recent examples of the Shah of Iran and the Soviet Union have illustrated. Hence, from the viewpoint of the leaders of the state, an attack on free territories would be considered extremely risky. No propaganda effort, however elaborate, would make the public believe that its attack was anything but an aggression against innocent victims. In this situation, the rulers of the state would be happy to maintain monopolistic control over their present territory rather than run the risk of losing legitimacy and all of their power in an attempt at territorial expansion. As unlikely as this may be, what if a state still attacked and or invaded a neighboring free territory? In this case, the aggressor would not encounter an unarmed population. Only in statist territories is the civilian population characteristically unarmed. States everywhere aim to disarm their own citizenry so as to be better able to tax and expropriate it. In contrast, insurers in free territories would not want to disarm the insured, nor could they. 
for who would want to be protected by someone who required him as a first step to give up his ultimate means of self-defense? To the contrary, insurance agencies would encourage the ownership of weapons among their insured by means of selective price cuts. In addition to the opposition of an armed private citizenry, the aggressor state would run into the resistance of not only one, but in all likelihood several insurance and reinsurance agencies. In the case of a successful attack and invasion, these insurers would be faced with massive indemnification payments. Unlike the aggressing state, however, these insurers would be efficient and competitive firms. Other things being equal, the risk of an attack, and hence the price of defense insurance, would be higher in locations in close proximity to state territories than in places far away from any state. To justify this higher price, insurers would have to demonstrate defensive readiness vis-à-vis any possible state aggression to their clients in the form of intelligence services, the ownership of suitable weapons and materials, and military personnel and training. In other words, the insurers would be effectively equipped and trained for the contingency of a state attack and ready to respond with a twofold defense strategy. On the one hand, insofar as their operations in free territories are concerned, insurers would be ready to expel capture or kill every invader or trying to avoid or minimize all collateral damage. On the other hand, insofar as their operations on state territory are concerned, insurers would be prepared to target the aggressor, the state, for retaliation. That is, insurers would be ready to counterattack and kill, whether with long-range precision weapons or assassination commandos, state agents from the top of the government hierarchy of king, president or prime minister on downward, while seeking to avoid or minimize all collateral damage to the property of innocent civilians, non-state agents. They would thereby encourage internal resistance against the aggressor government, promote its delegitimization, and possibly incite the liberation and transformation of the state territory into a free country. 10. I have come full circle with my argument. First, I've shown that the idea of a protective state and state protection of private property is based on a fundamental theoretical error, and that this error has had disastrous consequences, the destruction and insecurity of all private property and perpetual war. Second, I have shown that the correct answer to the question of who is to defend private property owners from aggression is the same as for the production of every other good or service, private property owners, cooperation based on the division of labor, and market competition. Third, I have explained how a system of private profit loss insurers would effectively minimize aggression, whether by private criminals or states, and promote a tendency towards civilization and perpetual peace. The only task outstanding is to implement these insights, to withdraw one's consent and willing cooperation from the state, and to promote its delegitimization in public opinion so as to persuade others to do the same. Without the erroneous public perception and judgment of the state as just and necessary, and without the public's voluntary cooperation, even the seemingly most powerful government would implode and its powers evaporate. Thus liberated, we would regain our right to self-defense and be able to turn to freed and unregulated insurance agencies for efficient professional assistance in all matters of protection and conflict resolution. Chapter 13 on the impossibility of limited government and the prospect for revolution. In a recent survey, people of different nationalities were asked how proud they were to be American, German, French, etc., and whether or not they believed that the world would be a better place if other countries were just like their own. The countries ranking highest in terms of national pride were the United States and Austria. As interesting as it would be to consider the case of Austria, here I shall concentrate on the U.S. and the question whether and to what extent the American claim can be justified. 
In the following, I will identify three main sources of American national pride. I will argue that the first two are justified sources of pride, for the third actually represents a fateful error. Finally, I will go on to explain how this error might be repaired. 1. The first source of national pride is the memory of America's not-so-distant colonial past as a country of pioneers. In fact, the English settlers coming to North America were the last example of the glorious achievement of what Adam Smith referred to as, quote, a system of natural liberty, unquote, the ability of men to create a free and prosperous commonwealth from scratch. Contrary to the Hobbesian account of human nature, homo homini lupus est, the English settlers demonstrated not just the viability, but also the vibrancy and attractiveness of a stateless anarcho-capitalist social order. They demonstrated how, in accordance with the views of John Locke, private property originated naturally through a person's original appropriation, his purposeful use and transformation of previously unused land, wilderness. Furthermore, they demonstrated that, based on the recognition of private property, division of labor, and contractual exchange, men were capable of protecting themselves effectively against antisocial aggressors, first and foremost by means of self-defense, less crime existed then than exists now, and as society grew increasingly prosperous and complex, by means of specialization, that is by institutions and agencies such as property registries, notaries, lawyers, judges, courts, juries, sheriffs, mutual defense associations, and popular militias. On the influence of Locke and Lockean political philosophy on America, see Edmund S. Morgan, The Birth of the Republic. He writes, When Locke described his state of nature, he could explain it most vividly by saying that, quote, In the beginning, all the world was America, end quote. And indeed, many Americans had had the actual experience of applying labor to wild land and turning it into their own. Some had even participated in social compacts, setting up new governments in wilderness areas where none had previously existed, end quote. Moreover, the American colonists demonstrated the fundamental sociological importance of the institution of covenants, of associations of linguistically, ethnically, religiously, and culturally homogeneous settlers led by and subject to the internal jurisdiction of a popular leader-founder to ensure peaceful human cooperation and maintain law and order. Contrary to currently popular multicultural myths, America was decidedly not a cultural, quote-unquote, melting pot. Rather, the settlement of the North American continent confirmed the elementary sociological insight that all human societies are the outgrowth of families and kinship systems and hence are characterized by a high degree of internal homogeneity, that is, that likes typically associate with likes at distance and separate themselves from unlikes. Thus, for instance, in accordance with this general tendency, Puritans, preferably settled in New England, Dutch Calvinists in New York, Quakers in Pennsylvania and the southern parts of New Jersey, Catholics in Maryland and Anglicans as well as French Huguenots in the southern colonies. 2. The second source of national pride is the American Revolution. In Europe there had been no open frontiers for centuries and the intra-European colonization experience lay in the distant past. With the growth of the population, societies had assumed an increasingly hierarchical structure of free men, freeholders and servants, lords and vassals, overlords and kings. While distinctly more stratified and aristocratic than colonial America, the so-called feudal societies of medieval Europe were also typically stateless social orders. A state, in accordance with generally accepted terminology, is defined as a compulsory territorial monopolist of law and order, an ultimate decision-maker. Feudal lords and kings did not typically fulfill the requirements of a state. They could only tax with the consent of the taxed, and on his own land every free man was as much a sovereign, ultimate decision-maker, as the feudal king was on his. Feudalism, 
Robert Nisbet sums up, quote, has been a word of invective, of vehement abuse and vituperation for the past two centuries, especially by intellectuals in spiritual service to the modern absolute state, whether monarchical, republican or democratic. In fact, feudalism is an extension and adaptation of the kinship tie with a protective affiliation with the war band or knighthood. Contrary to the modern political state with its principle of territorial sovereignty, for most of a thousand-year period in the West, protection, rights, welfare, authority and devotion adhered in a personal, not a territorial tie. To be the man of another man, in turn the man of still another man, and so on up to the very top of the feudal pyramid, each owing the other either service or protection, is to be in a feudal relationship. The feudal bond has much in it of the relation between warrior and commander, but it is even more of the relation between son and father, kinsman and patriarch. That is, feudal ties are essentially private, personal and contractual relationships. The subordination of king to law was one of the most important principles under feudalism. End quote. However, in the course of many centuries, these originally stateless societies had gradually transformed into absolute statist monarchies. While they had initially been acknowledged voluntarily as protectors and judges, European kings had at long last succeeded in establishing themselves as hereditary heads of state. Resisted by the aristocracy but helped along by the quote-unquote common people, they had become absolute monarchs with the power to tax without consent and to make ultimate decisions regarding the property of free men. These European developments had a twofold effect on America. On the one hand, England was also ruled by an absolute king, at least until 1688, and when the English settlers arrived on the new continent, the king's rule was extended to America. Unlike the settlers' founding of private property and their private, voluntary and cooperative production of security and administration of justice, however, the establishment of the royal colonies and administrations was not the result of original appropriation, homesteading, and contract. In fact, no English king had ever set foot on the American continent but of usurpation, declaration, and imposition. On the other hand, the settlers brought something else with them from Europe. There, the development from feudalism to royal absolutism had not only been resisted by the aristocracy, but it was also opposed theoretically with recourse to the theory of natural rights as it originated within scholastic philosophy. According to this doctrine, government was supposed to be contractual, and every government agent, including the king, was subject to the same universal rights and laws as everyone else. While this may have been the case in earlier times, it was certainly no longer true for modern absolute kings. Absolute kings were usurpers of human rights and thus illegitimate. Hence, insurrection was not only permitted, but became a duty sanctioned by natural law. The American colonists were familiar with the doctrine of natural rights. In fact, in light of their own personal experience with the achievements and effects of natural liberty and as religious dissenters who had left their mother country in disagreement with the king and the Church of England, they were particularly receptive to this doctrine. Steeped in the doctrine of natural rights, encouraged by the distance of the English king and stimulated further by the puritanical censure of royal islanders' luxury and pomp, the American colonists rose up to free themselves of British rule. As Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, Government was instituted to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It drew its legitimacy from the consent of the governed. In contrast, a royal British government claimed that it could tax the colonists without their consent. If a government failed to do what it was designed to do, Jefferson declared, quote, It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. End quote. 3. 
But what was the next step once independence from Britain had been won? This question leads to the third source of national pride, the American Constitution, and the explanation as to why this Constitution, rather than being a legitimate source of pride, represents a fateful error. Thanks to the great advances in economic and political theory since the late 1700s, in particular at the hands of Ludwig von Mises and Murray and Rothbard, we are now able to give a precise answer to this question. According to Mises and Rothbard, once there is no longer free entry into the business of the production of protection and adjudication, the price of protection and justice will rise and equality will fall. Rather than being a protector and judge, a compulsory monopolist will become a protection racketeer, the destroyer and invader of the people and property that he is supposed to protect, a warmonger and an imperialist. This fundamental insight was first clearly stated by the French-Belgian economist Gustave de Molinari in an article published in 1849. De Molinari reasoned, quote, that in all cases for all commodities that serve to provide for the tangible or intangible needs of the consumer, it is in the consumer's best interest that labor and trade remain free because freedom of labor and trade have as their necessary and permanent result the maximum reduction of price. Whence it follows that no government should have the right to prevent another government from going into competition with it or to require consumers of security to come exclusively to it for this commodity. If, on the contrary, the consumer is not free to buy security wherever he pleases, you forthwith see open up a large profession dedicated to arbitrariness and bad management. Justice becomes slow and costly, the police vexatious, individual liberty is no longer respected, the price of security is abusively inflated and inequitably apportioned according to the power and influence of this or that class of consumers. End quote. Indeed, the inflated price of protection and the perversion of the ancient law by the English king, both of which had led the American colonists to revolt, were the inevitable result of compulsory monopoly. Having successfully seceded and thrown out the British occupiers, it would only have been necessary for the American colonists to let the existing homegrown institutions of self-defense and private, voluntary and cooperative protection and adjudication by specialized agents and agencies take care of law and order. This did not happen, however. The Americans not only did not let the inherited royal institutions of colonies and colonial governments wither away into oblivion, they reconstituted them within the old political borders in the form of independent states, each equipped with its own coercive, unilateral taxing and legislative powers. Furthermore, in accordance with their original royal charter, the newly independent states of Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, Connecticut and Massachusetts, for instance, claimed the Pacific Ocean as their western boundary, and based on such obviously unfounded usurped ownership claims, they, and subsequently as their legal heir to the Continental Congress and the United States, proceeded to sell western territories to private homesteaders and developers in order to pay off their debt and or fund current government operations. While this would have been bad enough... The new Americans made matters worse by adopting the American Constitution and replacing a loose confederation of independent states with the central federal government of the United States. This constitution provided for the substitution of a popularly elected parliament and president for an unelected king, but it changed nothing regarding their power to tax and legislate. To the contrary, while the English king's power to tax without consent had only been assumed rather than explicitly granted and was thus in dispute, the Constitution explicitly granted this very power to Congress. In Freedom and the Law, Bruno Leone pointed out that, quote, an early medieval version of the principle, no taxation without representation, was intended as no taxation without the consent of the individual taxed. And we are told that in 1221, the Bishop of Winchester, quote, summoned to consent to a scutage tax, 
refused to pay after the council had made the grant on the ground that he dissented and the exchequer upheld his plea, unquote. Furthermore, while kings, in theory even absolute kings, had not been considered the makers but only the interpreters and executors of pre-existing and immutable law, that is, as judges rather than legislators, the Constitution explicitly vested Congress with the power of legislating and the President and the Supreme Court with the power of executing and interpreting such legislated law. In Kingship and Law in the Middle Ages, Kern writes that, quote, There is in the Middle Ages no such thing as the, quote-unquote, first application of a legal rule. Law is old, new laws are contradiction in terms, for either new laws derived explicitly or implicitly from the old, or it conflicts with the old, in which case it is not lawful. The fundamental idea remains the same. The old law is the true law, and the true law is the old law. According to medieval ideas, therefore, the enactment of new law is not possible at all, and all legislation and legal reform is conceived of as the restoration of the good old law, which has been violated. End quote. Similar views concerning the permanency of law and the impermissibility of legislation were still held by the 18th-century French physiocrats, such as, for instance, Mercier de la Rivière, author of a book on l'ordre naturel and one-time governor of Martinique. Called upon for advice on how to govern by the Russian Tsarina Catherine the Great, de la Rivière is reported to have replied that law must be based, quote, on one thing alone, madam, the nature of things and man. To give or make laws, madame, is a task which God has left to no one. Ah, what is man to think of himself capable of dictating laws to beings whom he knows not? The science of government is to study and recognize the laws which God has so evidently engraven in the very organization of man when he gave him existence. To seek to go beyond this would be a great misfortune and a destructive undertaking. End quote. The much-cherished modern view, according to which the adoption of quote-unquote constitutional government represents a major civilizational advance from arbitrary government to the rule of law, and which attributes to the United States a prominent or even preeminent role in this historical breakthrough, then must be considered seriously flawed. This view is obviously contradicted by documents such as the Magna Carta, 1215, or the Golden Bull, 1356. More importantly, it misrepresents the nature of pre-modern governments. Such governments either entirely lacked the most arbitrary and tyrannical of all powers, that is, the power to tax and legislate without consent, or even if they did possess these powers, governments were severely restricted in exercising them because such powers were widely regarded as illegitimate, that is, as usurped rather than justly acquired. In distinct contrast, modern governments are defined by the fact that the powers to tax and legislate are recognized explicitly as legitimate, that is, all quote-unquote constitutional governments whether in the U.S. or anywhere else, constitute state governments. Robert Nisbet is thus correct in noting that a pre-modern, quote, king may have ruled at times with a degree of irresponsibility that few modern governmental officials can enjoy, but it is doubtful whether, in terms of effective powers and services, any king of even the 17th century, quote-unquote, absolute monarchies wielded the kind of authority that now inheres in the office of many high-ranking officials in the democracies. There were then too many social barriers between the claimed power of the monarch and the effective execution of his power over individuals. The very prestige and functional importance of church, family, guild and local community as allegiances limited to the absoluteness of the state's power. Unquote. In effect, what the American Constitution did was only this. Instead of a king who regarded colonial America as his private property and the colonists as his tenants, the Constitution put temporary and interchangeable caretakers in charge of the country's monopoly of justice and protection. These caretakers did not own the country, 
but as long as they were in office they could make use of it and its residents to their own and their protégé's advantage. However, as elementary economic theory predicts, this institutional setup will not eliminate the self-interest-driven tendency of a monopolist of law and order to its increased exploitation. To the contrary, it only tends to make his exploitation less calculating, more short-sighted, and wasteful. As Rothbard explained, quote, while a private owner, securing his property and owning its capital value, plans the use of his resource over a long period of time, the government official must milk the property as quickly as he can, since he has no security of ownership. Government officials own the use of resources, but not their capital value, except in the case of the quote-unquote private property of a hereditary monarch. When only the current use can be owned, but not the resource itself, they will quickly ensure uneconomic exhaustion of the resources, since it will be to no one's benefit to conserve it over a period of time, and to every owner's advantage to use it up as quickly as possible. The private individual, secure in his property and in his capital resource, can take the long view, for he wants to maintain the capital value of his resource. It is the government official who must take and run, who must plunder the property while he still is in command. End quote. In light of these considerations, and in contrast to common wisdom on the matter, one reaches the same conclusion regarding the ultimate quote-unquote success of the American Revolution as H. L. Mencken. Quote, Political revolutions do not often accomplish anything of genuine value. Their one undoubted effect is simply to throw out one gang of thieves and put in another. Even the American colonies gained little by their revolt in 1776. For 25 years after the revolution, they were in far worse condition as free states than they would have been as colonies. Their government was more expensive, more inefficient, more dishonest and more tyrannical. It was only the gradual material progress of the country that saved them from starvation and collapse, and that material progress was due not to the virtues of the new government, but to the lavishness of nature. Under the British hoof, they would have gone on as well, and probably a great deal better. End quote. Moreover, because the Constitution provided explicitly for quote-unquote open entry into state government, anyone could become a member of Congress, President, or a Supreme Court judge. Resistance against state property invasions declined, and as a result of quote-unquote open political competition, the entire character structure of society became distorted, and more and more bad characters rose to the top. For free entry and competition is not always good. Competition in the production of goods is good, but competition in the production of bads is not. Free competition in killing, stealing, counterfeiting or swindling, for instance, is not good. It is worse than bad. Yet this is precisely what is instituted by open political competition, that is, democracy. In every society, people who covet another man's property exist. But in most cases, people learn not to act on this desire or even feel ashamed for entertaining it. In an anarcho-capitalist society in particular, anyone acting on such a desire is considered a criminal and is suppressed by physical violence. Under monarchical rule, by contrast, only one person, the king, can act on his desire for another man's property, and it is this that makes him a potential threat. However, because only he can expropriate while everyone else is forbidden to do likewise, a king's every action will be regarded with utmost suspicion. Moreover, the selection of a king is by accident of his noble birth. His only characteristic qualification is his upbringing as a future king and preserver of the dynasty and its possessions. This does not assure that he will not be evil, of course. However, at the same time, it does not preclude that a king might actually be a harmless dilettante or even a decent person. In distinct contrast, by freeing up entry into government, the Constitution permitted anyone to openly express his desire for other men's property. Indeed, owning to the constitutional guarantee of quote-unquote freedom of speech, everyone is protected in so doing. Moreover, everyone is permitted to act on this desire, provided that he gains entry into government. 
Hence, under the Constitution, everyone becomes a potential threat. To be sure, there are people who are unaffected by the desire to enrich themselves at the expense of others and to lord it over them. That is, there are people who wish only to work, produce and enjoy the fruits of their labour. However, if politics, the acquisition of goods by political means, taxation and legislation, is permitted, even these harmless people will be profoundly affected. In order to defend themselves against attacks on their liberty and property by those who have fewer moral scruples, even these honest, hard-working people must become quote-unquote political animals and spend more and more time and energy developing their political skills. Given that the characteristics and talents required for political success, of good looks, sociability, oratorical power, charisma, etc., are distributed unequally among men, then those with these particular characteristics and skills will have a sound advantage in the competition for scarce resources, economic success, as compared to those without them. Worse still, given that in every society more have-nots of everything worth having exist than haves, the politically talented who have little or no inhibition against taking property and lording it over others will have a clear advantage over those with scruples. That is, open political competition favors aggressive, hence dangerous, rather than defensive, hence harmless political talent, and will thus lead to the cultivation and perfection of the peculiar skills of demagoguery, deception, lying, opportunism, corruption and bribery. Therefore, entrance into and success within government will become increasingly impossible for anyone hampered by moral scruples against lying and stealing. Unlike kings, then, congressmen, presidents and Supreme Court judges do not and cannot acquire their positions accidentally. Rather, they reach their position because of their proficiency as morally uninhibited demagogues. Moreover, even outside the orbit of government, within civil society, individuals will increasingly rise to the top of economic and financial success not on account of their productive or entrepreneurial talents, or even their superior defensive political talents, but rather because of their superior skills as unscrupulous political entrepreneurs and lobbyists. Thus the Constitution virtually assures that exclusively dangerous men will rise to the pinnacle of government power and that moral behavior and ethical standards will tend to decline and deteriorate all around. Moreover, the constitutionally provided separation of powers makes no difference in this regard. Two or even three wrongs do not make a right. To the contrary, they lead to the proliferation, accumulation, reinforcement and aggravation of error. Legislators cannot impose their will on their hapless subjects without the cooperation of the President as the head of the executive branch of government and the President in turn will use his position and the resources at his disposal to influence legislators and legislation. And although the Supreme Court may disagree with particular acts of Congress or the President, Supreme Court judges are nominated by the President and confirmed by the Senate and remain dependent on them for funding. As an integral part of the institution of government, they have no interest in limiting, but every interest in expanding the governments and hence their own power. See on this the brilliant and indeed prophetic analysis by John C. Calhoun, Disquisition of Government. There Calhoun notes that a, quote, written constitution certainly has many advantages. But it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit the powers of the government without investing those for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance will be sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. Being the party in possession of the government, they will be in favor of the powers granted by the constitution and opposed to the restrictions intended to limit them. As the major and dominant parties, they will have no need of these restrictions for their protection. The minor or weaker party, on the contrary, would take the opposite direction and regard them as essential to their protection against the dominant party. 
but where there are no means by which they could compel the major party to observe these restrictions, the only resort left to them would be a strict construction of the Constitution, to which the major party would oppose a liberal construction, one which would give the words of the grant the broadest meaning of which they were susceptible. It would then be construction against construction, the one to contract and the other to enlarge the powers of the government to the utmost. But of what possible avail could the strict construction of the minor party be against the liberal interpretation of the major when the one would have all the powers of the government to carry its construction into effect and the other be deprived of all means of enforcing its construction? In a contest so unequal, the result would not be doubtful. The party in favor of restrictions would be overpowered. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the constitution. The restrictions would ultimately be annulled and the government be converted into one of unlimited powers. Nor would the division of government into separate and, as it regards each other, independent departments prevent this result, as each and all the departments, and of course the entire government, would be under the control of the numerical majority. It is too clear to require explanation that a mere distribution of its powers among its agents or representatives could do little or nothing to counteract its tendency to oppression and abuse of power. End quote. In sum, then, Rothbard has commented on this analysis, quote, The Constitution has proved to be an instrument for ratifying the expansion of state power rather than the opposite. As Calhoun saw, any written limits that leave it to government to interpret its own powers are bound to be interpreted as sanctions for expanding and not binding those powers. In a profound sense, the idea of binding down power with the change of a written Constitution has proved to be a noble experiment that failed. The idea of a strictly limited government has proved to be utopian, some other, more radical means must be found to prevent the growth of the aggressive state. End quote. 4. After more than two centuries of quote-unquote constitutionally limited government, the results are clear and incontrovertible. At the outset of the American experiment, the tax burden imposed on Americans was light, indeed almost negligible. Money consisted of fixed quantities of gold and silver. The definition of private property was clear and seemingly immutable, and the right to self-defense was regarded as sacrosanct. No standing army existed, and, as expressed in Washington's farewell address, a firm commitment to free trade and a non-interventionist foreign policy appeared to be in place. Two hundred years later, matters have changed dramatically. Robert Higgs, in Crisis and Leviathan, Critical Episodes in the Growth of American Government, contrasts the early American experience to the present. Quote, there was a time long ago when the average American could go about his daily business hardly aware of the government, especially the federal government. As a farmer, merchant, or manufacturer, he could decide what, how, when, and where to produce and sell his goods, constrained by little more than market forces. Just think, no farm subsidies, price support, or acreage controls, no federal trade commission, no antitrust laws, no interstate commerce commission. As an employer, employee, consumer, investor, lender, borrower, student, or teacher, he could proceed largely according to his own lights. Just think, no National Labor Relations Board, no Federal Consumers Protection Laws, no Security and Exchange Commission, no Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, no Department of Health and Human Services. Lacking a central bank to issue national paper currency, people commonly used gold coins to make purchases. There were no general sales taxes, no Social Security taxes, no income taxes. Though governmental officials were as corrupt then as now, maybe more so, that vastly less to be corrupt with. Private citizens spent about 15 times more than all governments combined. Those days, alas, are long gone. End quote. Now, year in, year out, the American government expropriates more than 40% of the incomes of private producers, 
making even the economic burden imposed on slaves and serfs seem moderate in comparison. Gold and silver have been replaced by government-manufactured paper money, and Americans are being robbed continually through money inflation. The meaning of private property, once seemingly clear and fixed, has become obscure, flexible, and fluid. In fact, every detail of private life, property, trade, and contract is regulated and re-regulated by even higher mountains of paper laws, legislation, and with increasing legislation, ever more legal uncertainty and moral hazards have been created, and lawlessness has replaced law and order. Last but not least, the commitment to free trade and non-interventionism has given way to a policy of protectionism, militarism, and imperialism. In fact, almost since its beginnings, the U.S. government has engaged in relentless aggressive expansionism and, starting with the Spanish-American War and continuing past World War I and World War II to the present, the U.S. has become entangled in hundreds of foreign conflicts and risen to the rank of the world's foremost warmonger and imperialist power. In addition, while American citizens have become increasingly more defenseless, insecure and impoverished, and foreigners all over the globe have become ever more threatened and bullied by U.S. military power, American presidents, members of Congress and Supreme Court judges have become ever more arrogant, morally corrupt and dangerous. What can possibly be done about this state of affairs? First, the American Constitution must be recognized for what it is, an error. As the Declaration of Independence noted, government is supposed to protect life, property and the pursuit of happiness. Yet in granting government the power to tax and legislate without consent, the Constitution cannot possibly assure this goal but is instead a very instrument for invading and destroying the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is absurd to believe that an agency which may tax without consent can be a property protector. Likewise, it is absurd to believe that an agency with legislative powers can preserve law and order. Rather, it must be recognized that the Constitution is itself unconstitutional, that is, incompatible with the very doctrine of natural human rights that inspired the American Revolution. Indeed, no one in his right mind would agree to a contract that allowed one's alleged protector to determine, unilaterally, without one's consent, and irrevocably, without the possibility of exit, how much to charge for protection, and no one in his right mind would agree to an irrevocable contract which granted one's alleged protector the right to ultimate decision-making regarding one's own person and property, that is, of unilateral law-making. In fact, any such protection contract is not only empirically unlikely, but logically, praxeologically impossible. By agreeing to be taxed and legislated in order to be protected, a person would in effect surrender, alienate all of his property to the taxing authority, and submit himself into permanent slavery to the legislative agency. Yet any such contract is from the outset impermissible, and hence null and void, because it contradicts the very nature of protection contracts, namely the self-ownership of someone to be protected and the existence of something owned by the protected, rather than his protector, that is, private, separate property. Interestingly, despite the fact that no known state constitution has ever been agreed upon by everyone falling under its jurisdiction, and despite the apparent impossibility that this fact could ever be different, political philosophy from Hobbes over Locke on down to the present abounds with attempts to provide a contractual justification for the state. The reason for these seemingly endless endeavors is obvious, Either a state can be justified as the outcome of contract, or it cannot be justified at all. Unsurprisingly, however, this search, much like that for a squared circle or a perpetual mobile, has come up empty and merely generated a long list of disingenuous, if not fraudulent, pseudo-justifications by means of semantic fiat. No contract is really an implicit or tacit or conceptual contract. In short, no really means yes. 
Second, it is necessary to offer a positive and inspiring alternative to the present system. While it is important that the memory of America's past as a land of pioneers and an effective anarcho-capitalist system based on self-defense and popular militias be kept alive, we cannot return to the feudal past or the time of the American Revolution. Yet the situation is not hopeless. Despite the relentless growth of statism over the course of the past two centuries, economic development has continued and our living standards have reached spectacular new heights. Under these circumstances, a completely new option has become viable, the provision of law and order by freely competing private profit and loss insurance agencies. While hampered by the state, even now insurance agencies protect private property owners upon payment of a premium against a multitude of natural and social disasters, from floods and hurricanes to theft and fraud. Thus it would seem that the production of security and protection is the very purpose of insurance. Moreover, people would not turn to just anyone for a service as essential as that of protection. Rather, as the Molinari noted, quote, before striking a bargain with a producer of security, they will check if he is really strong enough to protect them and whether his character is such that they will not have to worry about his instigating the very aggression he is supposed to suppress, end quote. In this regard, insurance agencies also seem to fit the bill. They are big and in command of the resources, physical and human, necessary to accomplish the task of dealing with the dangers, actual or imagined, of the real world. Indeed, insurers operate on a national or even international scale, and they own substantial property holdings dispersed over wide territories and beyond the borders of single states, and thus have a manifest self-interest in effective protection. Furthermore, all insurance companies are connected through a complex network of contractual agreements on mutual assistance and arbitration, as well as a system of international reinsurance agencies representing a combined economic power which dwarfs most, if not all, contemporary governments, and they have acquired this position because of their reputation as effective, reliable, and honest businesses. While this may suffice to establish insurance agencies as a possible alternative to the role currently performed by states as providers of law and order, a more detailed examination is needed to demonstrate the principal superiority of such an alternative to the status quo. In order to do this, it is only necessary to recognize that insurance agencies can neither tax nor legislate, that is, the relationship between the insurer and the insured is consensual. Both are free to cooperate or not to cooperate, and this fact has momentous implications. In this regard, insurance agencies are categorically different from states. The advantages of having insurance agencies provide security and protection are as follows. First off, competition among insurers for paying clients will bring about a tendency toward a continuous fall in the price of protection per insured value, thus rendering protection more affordable. In contrast, a monopolistic protector who may tax the protected will charge ever higher prices for his services. As Rothbard has explained even, quote, if government is to be limited to protection of person and property and taxation is to be limited to providing that service only, then how is the government to decide how much protection to provide and how much taxes to levy? For, contrary to the limited government theory, protection is no more a collective one-lump thing than any other good or service in society. Indeed, Protection could conceivably imply anything from one policeman for an entire country to supplying an armed bodyguard and a tank for every citizen, a proposition which would bankrupt the society post-haste. But who is to decide on how much protection, since it is undeniable that every person would be better protected from theft and assault if provided with an armed bodyguard than if he is not? On the free market, decisions on how much and what quality of any good or service should be supplied to each person are made by means of voluntary purchases by each individual. But what criterion can be applied when the decision is made by government? The answer is none at all, and such governmental decisions 
can only be purely arbitrary. End quote. Second, insurers will have to indemnify their clients in the case of actual damage. Hence, they must operate efficiently. Regarding social disasters, crime in particular, this means that the insurer must be concerned above all with effective prevention, for unless he can prevent a crime, he will have to pay up. Further, if a criminal act cannot be prevented, an insurer will still want to recover the loot, apprehend the offender and bring him to justice, because in so doing, the insurer can reduce his cost and force the criminal, rather than the victim and his insurer, to pay for the damages and cost of indemnification. In distinct contrast, because compulsory monopolist states do not indemnify victims, and because they can resort to taxation as a source of funding, they have little or no incentive to prevent crime or to recover loot and capture criminals. If they do manage to apprehend a criminal, they typically force the victim to pay for the criminal's incarceration, thus adding insult to injury. Commons Rothbard, quote, The idea of primacy for restitution to the victim has great precedent in law. Indeed, it is an ancient principle of law which has been allowed to wither away as the state has aggrandized and monopolized the institutions of justice. In fact, in the Middle Ages generally, restitution to the victim was the dominant concept of punishment. Only as the state grew more powerful, the emphasis shifted from restitution to the victim to punishment for alleged crimes committed against the state. What happens nowadays is the following absurdity. A steals $15,000 from B. The government tracks down, tries and convicts A, all at the expense of B, as one of the numerous taxpayers victimized in this process. Then the government, instead of forcing A to repay B or work at forced labor until that debt is paid, forces B, the victim, to pay taxes to support the criminal in prison for 10 or 20 years' time. Where in the world is the justice here? End quote. Third and most importantly, because the relationship between insurers and their clients is voluntary, insurers must accept private property as an ultimate given and private property rights as immutable law. That is, in order to attract or retain paying clients, insurers will have to offer contracts with specified property and property damage descriptions, rules of procedure, evidence, compensation, restitution and punishment, as well as intra- and interagency conflict resolution and arbitration procedures. Moreover, out of this steady cooperation between different insurers in mutual interagency arbitration proceedings, a tendency towards the unification of law, of a truly universal or international law will emerge. Everyone, by virtue of being insured, would thus become tied into a global competitive effort to minimize conflict and aggression, and every single conflict and damaged claim, regardless of where and by or against whom, would fall into the jurisdiction of exactly one or more specific and innumerable insurance agencies and their contractually agreed to arbitration procedures, thereby creating perfect legal certainty. In striking contrast, as tax-funded monopoly-protected states do not offer the consumers for protection anything even faintly resembling a service contract. Instead, they operate in a contractual void that allows them to make up and change the rules of the game as they go along. Most remarkably, whereas insurers must submit themselves to independent third-party arbitrators and arbitration proceedings in order to attract voluntary paying clients, states, insofar as they allow for arbitration at all, assign this task to another state-funded and state-dependent judge. Insurance agencies, insofar as they enter into a bilateral contract with each of their clients, fully satisfy the ancient and original desideratum of, quote-unquote, representative government, of which Bruno Leone has noted that, quote, Political representation was closely connected in its origin with the idea that the representatives act as agents of other people and according to the latter's will, unquote. In distinct contrast, modern democratic government involves the complete perversion, indeed the nullification, of the original idea of representative government. 
Today, a person is deemed to be politically, quote-unquote, represented, no matter what, that is, regardless of his own will and actions, or that of his representative. A person is considered represented if he votes, but also if he does not vote. He is considered represented if the candidate he has voted for is elected, but also if another candidate is elected. He is represented whether the candidate he voted or did not vote for does or does not do what he wished him to do. And he is considered politically represented whether, quote-unquote, his representative will find majority support among all elected representatives or not. In truth, as Lysander Spooner has pointed out, quote, voting is not to be taken as proof of consent. On the contrary, it is to be considered that, without his consent having even been asked, a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist, a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forgo the exercise of many of his natural rights, under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too, that other men practice this tyranny over him by use of the ballot. He sees further that, if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from this tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself, without his consent, so situated that, if he uses the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave, and he has no other alternative than these two. In self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle, but he must either kill others or be killed himself, because, to save his own life in battle, a man attempts to take the lives of his opponents, it is not to be inferred that the battle is one of his own choosing. Consequently, the elected government officials are neither our servants, agents, attorneys, nor representatives, for we do not make ourselves responsible for their acts. If a man is my servant, agent, or attorney, I necessarily make myself responsible for all his acts done within the limits of the power that I have entrusted to him. If I have entrusted him as my agent, with either absolute power or any power at all, over the persons or properties of other men than myself, I thereby necessarily make myself responsible to those other persons for any injuries he may do them, so long as he acts within the limits of the power I have granted him. But no individual who may be injured in his person or property by acts of Congress can come to the individual electors and hold them responsible for these acts of their so-called agents or representatives. This fact proves that these pretended agents of the people, of everybody, are really the agents of nobody. End quote. Further implications of this fundamental contrast between insurers as contractual versus states as non-contractual providers of security deserves special attention. Because they are not subject to and bound by contract, States typically outlaw the ownership of weapons by their quote-unquote clients, thus increasing their own security at the expense of rendering their alleged clients defenseless. In contrast, no voluntary buyer of protection insurance would agree to a contract that required him to surrender his right to self-defense and be unarmed or otherwise defenseless. To the contrary, insurance agencies would encourage the ownership of guns and other protective devices among their clients by means of selective price cuts because the better the private protection of their clients, the lower the insurer's protection and indemnification costs will be. Moreover, because they operate in a contractual void and are independent of voluntary payment, states arbitrarily define and redefine what is and what is not punishable, quote-unquote, aggression, and what does and does not require compensation. By imposing a proportional or progressive income tax, and redistributing income from the rich to the poor, for instance, states in effect define the rich as aggressors and the poor as their victims. Otherwise, if the rich were not aggressors and the poor not their victims, how could taking something from the former and giving it to the latter be justified? Or by passing affirmative action laws, 
States effectively define whites and males as aggressors and blacks and women as their victims. For insurance agencies, any such business conduct would be impossible for two fundamental reasons. First, every insurance involves the pooling of particular risks into risk classes. It implies that to some of the insured, more will be paid out than what they paid in, and to others, less. However, and this is decisive, no one knows in advance who the winners and who the losers will be. Winners and losers, and any income redistribution among them, will be randomly distributed. Otherwise, if winners and losers could be systematically predicted, losers would not want to pool their risk with winners, but only with other losers, because this would lower their insurance premium. Second, it is not possible to insure oneself against any conceivable risk. Rather, it is only possible to insure oneself against accidents, that is, risks over whose outcome the insured has no control whatsoever, and to which he contributes nothing. Thus, it is possible to insure oneself against the risk of death or fire, for instance, but it is not possible to insure oneself against the risk of committing suicide or setting one's own house on fire. Similarly, it is impossible to insure oneself against the risk of business failure, of unemployment, of not becoming rich, of not feeling like getting up and out of bed in the morning, or of disliking one's neighbors, fellows or superiors, because in each of these cases one has either full or partial control over the event in question. That is, an individual can affect the likelihood of the risk. By their very nature, the avoidance of risks such as these fall into the realm of individual responsibility, and any agency that undertook their insurance would be slated for immediate bankruptcy. Most significantly, for the subject under discussion, the uninsurability of individual actions and sentiments, in contradistinction to accidents, implies that it is also impossible to insure oneself against the risk of damages which are the result of one's prior aggression or provocation. Rather, every insurer must restrict the actions of its clients so as to exclude all aggression and provocation on their part. That is, any insurance against social disasters, such as crime, must be contingent on the insured submitting themselves to specified norms of non-aggressive, civilized conduct. Accordingly, while states as monopolistic protectors can engage in redistributive policies benefiting one group of people at the expense of another, and while as tax-supported agencies they can even, quote-unquote, insure uninsurable risks and protect provocateurs and aggressors, voluntarily funded insurers would be systematically prevented from doing any such thing. Competition among insurers would preclude any form of income and wealth redistribution among various groups of insured, for a company engaging in such practices would lose clients to others refraining from them. Rather, every client would pay exclusively for his own risk, respectively that of people with the same homogeneous risk exposure as he faces. In being compelled on the one hand to place individuals with the same or similar risk exposure into the same risk group and to charge each of them the same price per insured value, and in being compelled, on the other hand, to distinguish accurately between various classes of individuals with objectively, factually different group risks, and to charge a different price per insured value for members of different risk groups, with the price differentials accurately reflecting the degree of heterogeneity between the members of such different groups, insurance companies would systematically promote the above-mentioned natural human tendency of quote-unquote like people to associate and to discriminate against and physically separate themselves from quote-unquote unlikes. Nor would voluntarily funded insurers be able to protect any person from the consequences of his own erroneous, foolish, risky or aggressive conduct or sentiment. Competition between insurers would instead systematically encourage individual responsibility, 
and any known provocateur and aggressor would be excluded as a bad insurance risk from any insurance coverage whatsoever and be rendered an economically isolated, weak and vulnerable outcast. Finally, with regard to foreign relations, because states can externalize the costs of their own actions onto hapless taxpayers, they are permanently prone to becoming aggressors and warmongers. Accordingly, they tend to fund and develop weapons of aggression and mass destruction. In distinct contrast, insurers will be prevented from engaging in any form of external aggression because any aggression is costly and requires higher insurance premiums, implying the loss of clients to other non-aggressive competitors. Insurers will engage exclusively in defensive violence, and instead of acquiring weapons of aggression and mass destruction, they will tend to invest in the development of weapons of defense and of targeted retaliation. 5. Even though all of this is clear, how can we ever succeed in implementing such a fundamental constitutional reform? Insurance agencies are presently restricted by countless regulations which prevent them from doing what they could and naturally would do. How can they be freed from these regulations? Essentially, the answer to this question is the same as that given by the American revolutionaries more than 200 years ago, through the creation of free territories and by means of secession. In fact, today, under democratic conditions, this answer is even truer than it was in the days of kings. For then, under monarchical conditions, the advocates of an anti-statist, liberal, libertarian social revolution still had an option that has since been lost. Liberal libertarians in the old days could, and frequently did, believe in the possibility of simply converting the king to their view, thereby initiating a quote-unquote revolution from the top. No mass support was necessary for this, just the insight of an enlightened prince. However realistic this might have been then, today this top-down strategy of social revolution would be impossible. Not only are political leaders selected nowadays according to their demagogic talents and proven record as habitual immoralists, as has been explained above, consequently, the chance of converting them to liberal libertarian views must be considered even lower than that of converting a king who simply inherited his position. Moreover, the state's protection monopoly is now considered public rather than private property and government rule is no longer tied to a particular individual but to specified functions exercised by anonymous functionaries. Hence, the one or few men conversion strategy can no longer work. It does not matter if one converts a few top government officials, the president and some leading senators or judges, for instance, because within the rules of democratic government, no single individual has the power to abdicate the government's monopoly of protection. Kings had this power, but presidents do not. The president can resign from his position, of course, only to have it taken over by someone else. He cannot dissolve the governmental protection monopoly because according to the rules of democracy, the people, not their elected representatives, are considered the owners of government. Thus, rather than by means of a top-down reform, under the current conditions, one's strategy must be one of a bottom-up revolution. At first, the realization of this insight would seem to make the task of a liberal libertarian social revolution impossible. For does this not imply that one would have to persuade a majority of the public to vote for the abolition of democracy and an end to all taxes and legislation? And is this not sheer fantasy, given that the masses are always dull and indolent, and even more so given that democracy, as explained above, promotes moral and intellectual degeneration? How in the world can anyone expect that the majority of an increasingly degenerate people accustomed to the right to vote should ever voluntarily renounce the opportunity of looting other people's property. Put this way, one must admit that the prospect of a social revolution must indeed be regarded as virtually nil. Rather, it is only on second thought 
upon regarding secession as an integral part of any bottom-up strategy, that the task of a liberal libertarian revolution appears less than impossible, even if it still remains a daunting one. How does secession fit into a bottom-up strategy of social revolution? More importantly, how can a secessionist movement escape the Southern Confederacy's fate of being crushed by a tyrannical and dangerously armed central government? In response to these questions, it is first necessary to remember that neither the original American Revolution nor the American Constitution were the result of the will of the majority of the population. A third of the American colonists were actually Tories, and another third was occupied with daily routines and did not care either way. No more than a third of the colonists were actually committed to and supportive of the Revolution, yet they carried the day. And as far as the Constitution is concerned, the overwhelming majority of the American public was opposed to its adoption, and its ratification represented more of a coup d'etat by a tiny minority than a general will. All revolutions, whether good or bad, are started by minorities, and secessionist route to its social revolution, which necessarily involves the breaking away of a smaller number of people from a larger one, takes explicit cognizance of this important fact. Second, it is necessary to recognize that the ultimate power of every government, whether of kings or caretakers, rests solely on opinion and not on physical force. The agents of government are never more than a small proportion of the total population under their control. This implies that no government can possibly enforce its will upon the entire population unless it finds widespread support and voluntary cooperation within the non-governmental public. It implies, likewise, that every government can be brought down by a mere change in public opinion, that is, by the withdrawal of the public's consent and cooperation. Mises, in Human Action, notes, quote, He who wants to apply violence needs the voluntary cooperation of some people. The tyrant must have a retinue of partisans who obey his orders of their own accord. Their spontaneous obedience provides him with the apparatus he needs for the conquest of other people. Whether or not he succeeds in making his sway last depends on the numerical relation of the groups, those who support him voluntarily and those whom he beats into submission. Though a tyrant may temporarily rule through a minority, if this minority is armed and the majority is not, in the long run, a minority cannot keep a majority in subservience. End quote. And while it is undeniably true that after more than two centuries of democracy, the American public has become so degenerate, morally and intellectually, that any such withdrawal must be considered impossible on a nationwide scale, it would not seem insurmountably difficult to win a secessionist-minded majority in sufficiently small districts or regions of the country. In fact, given an energetic minority of intellectual elites inspired by the vision of a free society in which law and order is provided by competitive insurers, and given furthermore that, certainly in the U.S., which owes its very existence to a secessionist act, Secession is still held to be illegitimate and in accordance with the original democratic ideal of self-determination rather than majority rule by a substantial number of people, there seems to be nothing unrealistic about assuming that such secessionist majorities exist or can be created at hundreds of locations all over the country. See on this quote-unquote old liberal conception of democracy, for instance, Mises. In Liberalism, in the classical tradition, he writes, the right to self-determination in regard to the question of membership in a state thus means whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known by a freely conducted plebiscite that they no longer wish to remain united to the state to which they belong at the time, but wish either to form an independent state or to attach themselves to some other state, their wishes are to be respected and complied with. 
This is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and civil and international wars. End quote. In fact, under the rather realistic assumption that the U.S. central government as well as the social democratic states of the West in general are bound for economic bankruptcy, much like the socialist people's democracies of the East collapsed economically some ten years ago, present tendencies toward political disintegration will likely be strengthened in the future. Accordingly, the number of potential secessionist regions will continue to rise even beyond its current level. Finally, the insight into the widespread and growing secessionist potential also permits an answer to the last question regarding the dangers of a central government crackdown. While it is important in this regard that the memory of the secessionist past of the U.S. be kept alive, it is even more important for the success of a liberal libertarian revolution to avoid the mistakes of the second failed attempt at secession. Fortunately, the issue of slavery, which complicated and obscured the situation in 1861, has been resolved. However, another important lesson must be learned by comparing the failed second American experiment with secession to the successful first one. The first American secession was facilitated significantly by the fact that, at the center of power in Britain, public opinion concerning the secessionists was hardly unified. In fact, many prominent British figures, such as Edmund Burke and Adam Smith, for instance, openly sympathized with the secessionists. Apart from purely ideological reasons, which rarely affect more than a handful of philosophical minds, this lack of unified opposition to the American secessionists in British public opinion can be attributed to two complementary factors. On the one hand, a multitude of regional and cultural religious affiliations, as well as of personal and family ties between Britain and the American colonies, existed. On the other hand, the American events were considered far from home and the potential loss of the colonies as economically insignificant. In both regards, the situation in 1861 was distinctly different. To be sure, at the center of political power which had shifted to the northern states of the U.S. by then, opposition to the secessionist southern confederacy was not unified and the confederate cause also had supporters in the north. However, Fewer cultural bonds and kinship ties existed between the American North and South than had existed between Britain and the American colonists, and secession of the Southern Confederacy involved about half the territory and a third of the entire population of the U.S., and thus struck Northerners as close to home and as a significant economic loss. Therefore, it was comparatively easier for the Northern power elite to mold a unified front of progressive Yankee culture versus a culturally backward and reactionary Dixieland. In light of these considerations, then, it appears strategically advisable not to attempt again what in 1861 failed so painfully. For contiguous states, or even the entire South, trying to break away from the tyranny of Washington, D.C., rather a modern liberal libertarian strategy of secession should take its cues from the European Middle Ages when, from about the 12th until well into the 17th century, with the emergence of the modern central state, Europe was characterized by the existence of hundreds of free and independent cities interspersed into a predominantly feudal social structure. By choosing this model, and striving to create a U.S. punctuated by a large and increasing number of territorially disconnected free cities, a multitude of Hong Kongs, Singapores, Monacos and Liechtensteins, strewn out over the entire continent, two otherwise unattainable but central objectives can be accomplished. First, besides recognizing the fact that the liberal libertarian potential is distributed highly unevenly across the country, such a strategy of piecemeal withdrawal renders secession less threatening politically, socially, and economically. Second, by pursuing this strategy simultaneously at a great number of locations all over the country, it becomes exceedingly difficult for the central state 
to create a unified opposition in public opinion to the secessionists, which would secure the level of popular support and voluntary cooperation necessary for a successful crackdown. The danger of a government crackdown is greatest during the initial stage of the secessionist scenario, that is, while the number of free city territories is still small. Hence, during this phase, it is advisable to avoid any direct confrontation with the central government. Rather than renouncing its legitimacy altogether, it would see prudent, for instance, to guarantee the government property of federal buildings, etc., within the free territory, and only deny its right to future taxation and legislation concerning anyone and anything within this territory. Provided that this is done with the appropriate diplomatic tact and given the necessity of a substantial level of support in public opinion, it is difficult to imagine how the central government would dare to invade a territory and crush a group of people who had committed no other sin than trying to mind their own business. Subsequently, once the number of secessionist territories has reached a critical mass, and every success in one location promoted imitation by other localities, the difficulties of crushing the secessionists will increase exponentially and the central government would quickly be rendered impotent and implode under its own weight. If and only if we succeed in this endeavour, if we then proceed to return all public property into appropriate private hands and adopt a new constitution which declares all taxation and legislation henceforth unlawful, and if we then finally allow insurance agencies to do what they are destined to do, can we truly be proud again and will America be justified in claiming to provide an example to the rest of the world? Democracy. The God that failed. The Economics and Politics of Monarchy, Democracy, and Natural Order. Written by Hans-Hermann Hopper and narrated by Paul Strickwerder.